Fraud Alert is a cancer in our industry. That was Mason Malmuth's voice you heard. And we're going to talk about him later because I have been banned from 2 Plus 2. And as you might imagine, I have some things to say about it. Now, that remix was actually made 12 years ago when I was banned the first time. I've been banned more than once there. (laughs) Never for a good reason. Not once for a good reason. But I will get into that when we get into that segment a little bit later in the show. You are listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff, Wittell is your host. We do this usually every Friday, though I think next week's going to be on Thursday. But usually every Friday around uh, 9 to 10 p.m. we start, and then we go all night. We finish very late. The show broadcasts live, and then I slap it up in the archives sometime within the next day. Do a little post-production. I didn't used to do that, but I do it now. But uh, you can listen in either format, and uh, this week we have a special treat. We have Eric Benzamokin. Attorney Eric Benzamokin is going to be on the show to give us some legal analysis, and I'm going to get to that very quickly because, unlike me, he doesn't stay up all night. Unlike me, he has normal hours. So we are going to call him very, very shortly. I'm going to grab Trader Ruski. What, what's happening, Trump? Trader Risky, hello. Marquise what's Brown going on, Trump? I hear I heard all about the two plus two thing. Yep, it's uh, it's unfortunate, but uh, not that unfortunate. I'll live. It's it's not a big deal to me. In fact, uh, I I kind of knew what was going to happen when I made the post that got me banned. Before I hit submit, I thought this is going to get me banned, and it did. So it wasn't a shock especially given Mason Malmuth, but uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. What, what was that in the background? Here's like some voice or some TV in the background. I w- I'm just on a little conference call with Brandon. We're just wrapping oh, up. I'm asleep. I mean, he's asleep. <laughs> Brandon's hiding out from the show. Oh I, my I goodness. Know. I just, well, I woke him up. Cause we, I thought he was, I did. I thought he was awake. Un- was unbelievable. Okay. Well, Brandon's hiding out from the show for the moment. And, uh, and so, so uh, he, he's asleep, in quotes. Uh, Trader Ruski's uh, right here, not asleep yet. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also text that number anytime before, after, or during the show. And I will probably respond to you. Make sure you mention that you don't want it being read on the show at the beginning of your text, if you think I might get confused and read it on the show, especially if it's texted to me during the show. If it's before or after the show, I probably won't read it because I'll have known by then, I'll use my common sense, whether it's something meant to be on the air. But 775-372-8355 is the number for, to both call the show and to text the show. And remember, there's no bad time to text me. 
any time of the day or night, you can text me any question you like or any comment you like, any constructive criticism you like, which I will get sometimes, and I'm not going to be insulted. Now, if you're just trying to troll me or aggravate me, then I'm not going to enjoy it. I may not respond to you and I may block your number. But uh, as someone who wants to give actual constructive criticism, like I think the show will be better if you do such and such, or please don't do this type of state, this type of segment anymore, or please stop doing this thing that bothers me, I may not listen to you. I may think you're wrong, but I always take these under consideration. I do the show for the audience, not for myself. So uh, if you want to give constructive criticism, you can do that too. You want to give compliments, you can do that too. That also helps me understand of what people like and dislike. And I'm glad to report, by the way, among the text messages I've gotten, Robert Goldfarb, who appeared on this show not too long ago about the unfortunate death of his friend uh, Robert Gray, who was in the poker community in Las Vegas, he became a listener. He actually started listening to this show from the episode he appeared on and said, hey, I like the show. So he's actually been listening every week since and texted me today to let me know that. So I am happy that we picked up a listener and uh, a respected person in, in the poker community. It's good to hear that he's listening. If you want to call the Mount Charleston line, that's another way to get a hold of the show. 702-430-1808. It's an old 70s rotary phone on top of Mount Charleston in a cabin. Forwards to me wherever I go, 702-430-1808. The call to listen line is a phone number you can call and listen to the show. You really can. It's very simple. You pick up any phone that can dial and call the number. It does not require a smartphone, does not require an app, does not require a data plan, a computer, or the Internet. No, 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 none of that stuff, and it doesn't use up any of your data. It's just like a phone call. The phone number is... 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, or you can call up the alternate number, 641-741-1095. You just call up and listen, never buffers, never freezes, over a million minutes have been listened to on the call to listen line. Though if you have T-Mobile, it will cost you one cent a minute because of stupid policies they have about numbers that get a lot of calls. Nothing I can do about that. Well, actually, there is something I can do about it, but it would cost me money, so I've elected not to for the moment. I don't think we have that many T-Mobile people. T-Mobile sucks. It does. Switch providers. If you want to go into the chat room, we still have it. There's not as many people as there used to be because it's gotten harder and harder to get in. The modern browsers have made it more difficult to get into Flash chat rooms. You need a Flash-enabled device. You need a Flash-enabled browser. Won't work on iPhones and iPads. You need to have a poker fraud alert account in good standing. And in the Flying Stupidity Forum, I put a sticky thread, meaning a thread near the top of the of the Flying Stupidity Forum on Poker Fraud Alert, which gives instructions on how to get into the chat room. And if you don't follow those instructions, you won't get in because it's no longer as easy as it used to be for some people, in fact, even for me. Even I have to follow those instructions or I don't get in. In fact, I'm not even in right now. I have to go follow my own instructions right now. We're going to replace the chat room by the end of the year with a chat product that is currently in development by a third-party company. Not not for me directly, but nevertheless, a third-party chat product that integrates with the vBulletin software. So that is uh, going to happen sometime before December 31st. In the meantime, you just have to kind of tolerate the way the chat room is now. I guess it's too late. I guess the free roll is going on here. But the, the free roll this week, 
I have to give credit this week because uh, you may not realize it, Trader Ruski, but you actually have donated to it. You donated without realizing it. I just t- took the money from you. I just confiscated it. Uh, Trader Ruski actually offered his last win of $35 for the free roll in the future. And we needed it this week. We were broke. So I retrieved $35 from Trader Ruski that he won, that he pledged to the future free rolls. We appreciate that. And then I also took uh, $23, 10 from one person, 13 from another, from the past, who did not claim their prize within the required six months. In fact, it was substantially more than six months. So I've uh, confiscated those two prizes and put them back in the pool, as I do, and I can do at any point after six months. I may not do it right away, but at any point after six months, uh, your prize may be confiscated. So if I do owe you something you haven't claimed yet, then make sure you do that. I know I am behind with paying people. I will get to paying you very soon. I know I said that last week, but I will get to it this week if I owe you any money from the free roll. But I took uh, $10 from Player123 from way back in November, who didn't claim it, and a guy who calls himself Bitcoin. I have no idea who that is, but he won $13, never claimed it, so that $13 in Bitcoin, or not Bitcoin, has been rolled back in the pool. So we had $58 this week, and the prize pool went as follows, 30 for first, 18 for second, 10 for third. That's the prize pool this week, but it's way too late to enter the free roll, because the free roll began about an hour ago. In fact, it might be done. Trader Risky, do you know if it's done yet? It's at the final table. Shout out and good luck to Bobby Orr who busted me. Yeah, no. but it was my money. I don't feel as bad about busting. Yep, that's true. You'd only be winning back your own money. Well, good luck yeah, to Bobby and, Orr. And, and drop a, a shout out. I didn't know him from the site, but found out he's in our fantasy football league and had been for the last few years. Um, Gaucho Jake. Oh, is he, is he in the free roll? No, he's in our fantasy football, but I, I hadn't had my name as Trader Ruski. It turns out he's a friend of my cousin's. So it's just oh, really? That's, that is funny. Gaucho yeah, yeah. Jake, he actually calls himself Gaucho Jake, and he's not. he makes no secret about this, because he went well, to UCSB, which the, the team is the Gauchos. Figure. And uh, I went to UCSB. I did not know him, first of all, because it's a very big school. And second, because he's a few years younger than me. So I think he I think he entered right around when I graduated. I was only there for three years. But uh, he, we did go to the same school, and we knew some of the same places and some of the same experiences. So he's the only one who can really relate when I tell UCSB stories that I know of on the forum. But, yeah, I didn't know he's in the league with you guys. But, yeah, he's been around a long time in this community. I don't think he listens to radio, but he's, a, he's like a forum guy. So, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, that's what he mentioned. But I did, uh, I used, my dad used to take me and my brother when I was a kid to the summer camp they had for UC graduates. So I did have, you know, Isla Vista and stuff when I was like 12, 13 years old. So I might be able to at least get involved in some of those conversations. Yeah, when he really uh, gets involved in discussions is when it has to do with healthcare. He works in the healthcare industry. I don't know what he does, but uh, whenever the subject of healthcare and insurance companies and that stuff comes up, He's like very, very knowledgeable about that, and he works in that industry. So even I have learned some things from him, and I actually know a lot about that industry too, but not as much as him. He, uh, he definitely knows a whole lot about it. So anyway, I'm going to give the agenda, and then we'll get going. You guys already heard uh, Eric Benzamokin. So he talked about the Stones situation, but we have more to talk about. There's some more news about Stones. And I'll get to that, not as long as last week, but 
nevertheless, some more news that has happened since we did the show a week ago. Then I will get into my ban on 2 plus 2. I've been banned on 2 plus 2 again. It has happened a number of times. In fact, I'm kind of losing count. I'm not sure if it's 3 or 4 or 5. I've been banned a bunch of times, always for stupid reasons. Not just in my opinion. I mean objectively stupid reasons, including this one. So I will tell you all about that and give you my opinion, which I think you already know, of Mason Malmuth. I don't care for him very much. That's the short of it. World Series of Poker main event, second place finisher and amateur player, by the way. This was not a poker pro. Darwin Moon, unfortunately, passed away at the age of 56. This has not been a good year to be a poker player who's 56. We also had uh, Robert Gray, as I mentioned before, pass away of the coronavirus at the age of 56. So Darwin Moon... He did not die of the coronavirus. He died during surgery, which is sad. I don't know what he's getting surgery for, but uh, surgery scares me, I'll be honest. Like, you, you go under and you don't know if you're going to get really unlucky and not wake up. And unfortunately for Darwin Moon, that is what happened for him. I'll talk about that when we get to that segment. He's uh, well-liked in poker, and he had a good story. And you'll find out an interesting thing about his character that some people didn't know, which I think will be very telling about what type of person he was. I didn't really know him. I only knew of him, but I will get to all that when we get to the segment. Sean Deeb has COVID-19, and he announced that he's currently in Mexico, and he's in a Mexican hospital. The second thing about Sean Deeb is that he and Viffer are going at it on Twitter in a pretty hostile fashion as we speak. Like, today this has been happening very actively. And, like, the last two days it has been. And it has to do with an alleged $32,000 debt that Sean claims is owed to him by Viffer, and Viffer denies. And there's an interesting twist to the whole thing, which I'll get to when we get to that segment. Isai Scheinberg got a minor fine and time served as a result of the prosecution against him for running poker stars illegally. I will talk a bit about that and once again give you my feelings about Isai Scheinberg. The Fremont Casino in downtown Las Vegas is in a bit of hot water. They unnecessarily detained an innocent customer. And Nevada Gaming is not very happy about that. Speaking of Las Vegas issues with casinos, remember I told you that the Sahara was suing Vital Vegas, and Vital Vegas, if you remember, is a guy named Scott Robin. Vital Vegas, it can kind of appear to be something that is run by multiple people, but it's not. It's run by one guy named Scott Robin. If you look into it, he admits that. He doesn't pretend to be a few people. He recently blocked me on Twitter, but... Uh, I have some good news for Scott Robin that I think he's probably already aware of, but I have some good news uh, the way he views it, that the case that the Sahara has against him looks pretty weak now. I actually thought it was pretty strong before. Upon reading the filing in response, it actually looks pretty weak. I think he's going to beat it. So I'll tell you about that when we get to that segment. I've actually read the recent filing that his attorney did, and his attorney is actually a pretty well-known attorney who's been on CNN before. A very weird story 
that has to do with a scam came out on 2 plus 2. I can't talk about it there because I'm banned, but uh, nevertheless, I'm going to talk about it on here. It was a weird double impersonation money trade scam. Yes, double impersonation. Now, there's been impersonation money trade scams going way back. In fact, even I have been impersonated before to scam people where someone pretends they're me and says, hey, you can trust me. You know, me, Dan Druff, I, I would never scam anyone, which is true, but fake Dan Druff would scam people and has. Fortunately, that hasn't any, happened any time recently, but in the 2000s, it happened twice to my knowledge. So that has been going on for a long time. But this was the first time I've ever seen a double impersonation money trade scam where two different people were impersonated in order to pull off the successful scam which netted 20k so i'll tell you what happened with this very weird story and this weird and clever scam and then we'll have a discussion about which of the victims bears more responsibility because one victim was kind of tricked into helping scam the other so we'll talk about that we're not going to do any coronavirus news this week just nothing significant has changed in my opinion and it's just going to waste time on the show i don't i don't want to do a topic about the coronavirus that isn't that interesting to you guys you could google it or go to a news site to read that but i i'm not going to do it this week we just don't have anything that important to say and once again the topic we keep tabling about what would Druff do about that first date not my first date but a guy who posted about it on a facebook group i thought it was an interesting story if we have time we'll get to that one I'm sure everyone will be asleep by then, except Brandon, who might come back. In fact, this is one I'd like to hear from him, because uh, anything involving dating and women, I'd like to have Brandon on when we have this discussion, especially because he has a lot more recent experience with it than I do. So that's our agenda for tonight. And I'm going to go right into the Apostle stuff here. We're going to get Eric Benzamokin on here to talk about the latest developments in the Stones situation. We're not going to have a three-hour Stones segment like last week which I got compliments on. I was a little worried I took too long on it last week, but I got compliments that it was a good segment and people learned a lot from it, so I'm glad that I did it now. But no, we're not going to have another one of those like that, and there's not as much to talk about this week by a wide margin. But one thing we didn't have last week was Eric Benzamokin, so I want to have him on to talk about uh, Stones. I'm going to give you also some news about Stones that has come up since last week. There are some important developments since then. So let's, let's see if we can reach Eric. Anyway, here is somebody who managed to make things work. Eric Benzamokin, hello, welcome to the show. I know it's 10 minutes past your bedtime, so I, I'll try not to keep you long. No problem. Glad to be on. Anyway, thank you to, for coming on here. And Eric actually offered this. Eric said, hey, would you like me to come on here and talk about some of the legal issues we've had, or not we've had, but that uh, has been going on here? And uh, I said, yes, definitely. In fact, I, I never turned down Eric Benzamokin coming on the show. Because it's always very informative. I always learn something new. I think the listeners always learn something new. And the segments are popular. People praise them. So anything the listeners like, I want to do so people can praise the show. So anyway, uh, Eric, I know you've been following the Stone situation. I know you've been listening to the episodes I've been doing. I know you've been following some of the articles and stuff about it. And uh, the pretty interesting stuff here. Uh, now, let me. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question at the beginning that you can make whatever uh, free-form comments you'd like to as well. You don't have to stick to the structure of what I'm asking. But uh, 
as far as the reason the Stones lawsuit from the 88 plaintiffs uh, got neutered, can you explain to everybody as a lawyer what exactly was it that really doomed the case to where they didn't have much of a chance to collect very much money? Well, there's a couple of things that a few dynamics in play. So the first is Stone's counsel was successful in essentially a motion to dismiss, and that's under federal rule 12B6. 12B6 is, is a rule there. It's a motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. It's a fancy way of saying that the lawsuit is somehow defective or doesn't um, lay out the allegations succinctly enough or there are specific elements missing from the pleadings or things like that. Now, there are times when a motion to dismiss under that federal rule will be granted, but you're given leave to amend a complaint. So a judge will look at the motions and the opposition and the replies, and he'll say, well, uh, yeah, it's true. You might be missing a little bit here and there, but this doesn't seem fatal. You know, you'll need to, you know, go back and rework this and we'll give you 21 days to refile or something like that. On the other hand, if a motion to dismiss is based on a legal theory which cannot possibly be overcome, at least in that court's eyes, then they'll dismiss the case without leave to amend, which is basically like a dismissal with prejudice. So that's the first sort of stumbling block that the plaintiffs in the case ran into is there was a motion to dismiss filed based on California law, which does not allow for the courts to be utilized to essentially collect on or resolve gambling debts or issues related to gambling debts. Now, it's a difficult argument for the plaintiffs to make that this isn't about gambling or gambling debts. And the way the laws are written, so I have to step back a little bit. I'm, I'm sorry. When you're in federal court, you don't, you don't always follow just federal law on certain issues. Oftentimes, the district court that you're in, so for example, if you're in United States District Court for the Central District of California, uh, often California law is applied by the federal courts, depending on the situation. And so the federal court in this case applied this California law, which essentially disallows the use of courts uh, in the legal system for gambling-related debts, and the the law is so old and so you know sort of so archaic, it never really caught up with California's modern view of gaming, especially where you have uh, not just the uh, Indian and tribal casinos, but you have private card rooms like Commerce or the Bike or Players Club and so on, and uh, and so the law has never really caught up with the changing landscape of California gaming. So the court was sort of, I think they were a little bit handcuffed in that they couldn't uh, reinterpret the law and they couldn't make necessarily new law since there's already precedent dealing with it. Uh, and most district judges honestly don't want to do that. So that was sort of strike number one. And that was really against Stones and the agents of Stones, which would be Caritas or anybody else that is a Stones employee. But that's the only deep pocket in this case. You know, Mike Postle himself you know, probably didn't have much money. Yeah. So, so that's the big strike one. Now, strike two is, at that point, how do you amend the complaint to get past the law that just shut you out? 
it may not really be possible. Um, or the amended complaint may not be like the cause of action that's left that you could potentially amend your complaint and go forward with that wouldn't, that wasn't dismissed out may not have much value to it. Uh, or maybe so hard to prove, uh, like fraud. Fraud is a very high standard, uh, legal standard. And several elements have to be met before you can make the case for fraud or fraudulent activity. And there's simply not the evidence that would have implicated stones or caritis, for example, in committing this fraud, uh, especially since caritis himself wasn't the player uh, and stones is an entity. It's hard for a corporation to commit fraud. Usually the principals are the ones committing fraud. And, it get, you know, it can get kind of kind of complex, complex. So uh, I think that's really what happened um, more than anything. And uh, the, again, the case being brought in a federal court here in California may, you know, may in hindsight not have been the right decision. Maybe it was, maybe they should have traveled into state court. Um, they may still have been faced, you know, they may still have faced a demur or something like that, but you know, you know, everything's 2020 in hindsight. Now, now why would state maybe court have been better if, if it's a state uh, law that you, you can't use the court system for gambling debts and that's what they were applying on a federal level. Why would a state court see it any differently? Uh, I think that there are different causes of action that maybe could have been raised. You could you could argue a breach of an implied the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing, which is sort of like a state court uh, cause of action. You know, it's not based on federal regulatory issues. I see. Uh, you know, that maybe the 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 case for fraud or fraudulent conduct in the, at the state court level might have gotten past the demur. Sometimes state court judges are a little bit more lenient in letting a complaint go forward. And, you know, if you can get past a sort of a bare minimum uh, pleading standard, uh, a lot of state court judges will ultimately just let it get resolved through discovery. And, you know, you'll, and it doesn't mean, by the way, that Stones wouldn't have prevailed in state court or they might have filed something called a motion for summary judgment um, or a motion on the, on the pleadings. And they may still have prevailed at that point, but much more discovery would have been done before they get to that. Um, to that stage, yeah, and they, but, and they, and they again, may not have, they may not have wanted the discovery, right? Like that that may be something that they might not have wanted uh, done because then certain things could have been unearthed that they would not have wanted to have been seen. Sure, and you know, the discovery in a case like this is is really difficult because uh, you can't, you know, who are you gonna, first? Who are you going to depose? You're going to depose Pockle. You're going to depose Caritas. Maybe one or two people as far as stones management, their internal investigators, the remember in the beginning, there was like this, this law firm that stones had hired to conduct like an internal investigation. Yes. You wouldn't be able, so you wouldn't be able to get those records because that's attorney work product and those are protected. I see. So that would have been kind of futile. Um, and that's a privileged document between the attorney and their client. Um, and that may be, you know, in the end, uh, well, I mean, they didn't bring it in the federal court, you know, for standing dig. But uh, again, it's it's there, there may have been other advantages going to state court, but it doesn't mean the outcome would have been any different. It's just a difficult kind of case to bring in California, given the state of the uh, of the of the law when it comes to uh, gambling debt and using the courts. I see. Now, the next question here, I, I don't know if uh, you won't be able to answer this factually because it's not a, a question about the law, just kind of an opinion question about uh, what Stones did and why they did it. So Stones did this settlement where they paid out $40,000 total. Then that's to all the plaintiffs, all the settling plaintiffs combined, and, and, and also includes uh, Max V, which is 40K out the door. Uh, and then 
they demanded in return uh, a, a non-disparagement agreement and probably more importantly to them, the uh, statement from Mac that he was confident that neither Caritas nor Stones uh, was involved with the cheating. They didn't, the statement did not say there wasn't cheating, but it uh, pretty clearly said that not only didn't we find forensic evidence of cheating, but uh, our firm is satisfied that uh, Stones and Caritas were not involved. So uh, that, that was obviously pretty valuable to them. And my question is, do you think they paid out the 40K here and settled because they were basically uh, wanting that statement? Or do you think it was uh, to prevent uh, the cost of the case going forward that whatever they're paying their attorneys, obviously that adds up pretty quickly and in litigation that would really end up uh, could be very expensive or, or do you think both, which one do you think was the stronger uh, motivation in your opinion? I know you can't answer this factually, but uh, just from what you've seen. Well, I, I have a theory. Um, I think that there would not have been much of a settlement had that statement not been included. Um, so, but, but there's an important distinction. The non-disparagement clauses and confidentiality clauses are fairly standard language in settlement agreements. So that's not really the problem. I mean, that, that boilerplate settlement language. The affirmative statement that Restanding was required to make as part of the settlement, that's, in my opinion that was the only reason to settle in the first place. And that was probably done for DOJ's benefit or state gaming or because there was, there was a criminal probe at one point. I don't right. think it's concluded yet. Oh yeah. That, that's um, what I've wondered and, that. Yeah. That's been mentioned. Caritas mentioned it. Uh, it's, it. We even found out about this during a prank call on poker fraud alert. In fact, the first ones to find out about this publicly was this show. We, we, we pranked the, 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 we pranked stone. Some guy answered, and he gave away that the quote DOJ was there, and we figured out that he was referring to to Cal- the state game, uh, to gaming, or or, or a, a state entity, not the State Department of Justice, not the Federal Department of Justice. But uh, then we never heard anything about it. But that was an interesting statement by the guy, and I assumed he wasn't confused or wrong or lying. So, and it seems like that really did happen because, as I said, Coretus has mentioned it, and it's been mentioned in other places. So you think that maybe this statement? They wanted more for the reason of clearing it with the California DOJ than just to look good on social media? Uh, I mean, it doesn't hurt the social media, but I think the reality is that people that have nowhere else to play in a 20 or 30 mile radius are going to go there anyway. Um, You know, and I think, again, I think this was more for the potential criminal probe that may still be ongoing. Um, I think that to the extent there was any internal investigating done, uh, they could turn those results over to the DOJ in, a, in like a form of cooperation. Say, look, here's our internal investigation and here's what was uncovered or not uncovered. And look, even the plaintiff's attorney uh, says that they found no evidence of any wrongdoing, at least on our behalf, on our part. Now, that doesn't necessarily clear possible from criminal activity, but it certainly makes the case against them a lot harder since there was no way... Uh, that he could have done this on his own without some inside help. Uh, just, you know, somebody had to be feeding the information to his phone or his laptop or whatever, you know, the device or whatever. It's just, uh, it couldn't have been done completely by himself. So by releasing that kind of statement, I think 
you know, clears the way for ultimately the DOJ to simply drop the case or stop investigating or determine that uh, there's not much there to go forward on. Um, you know, again, because the and it's important to to keep the distinction separate. You know, the portion of the settlement that required the settling parties to not discuss the issue, not disparage Stone. That's all common. You know, that that's right. not that wasn't written specifically for this case. Um, but plaintiff's attorney uh, issuing a statement the, to the you know to the degree that Verstandi did that was something very specific and created just for this case. Yeah, and in fact, uh, not only did uh, Caritas keep bragging about how unusual that was for how far the plaintiff's attorney went, uh, even the Sac B mentioned in an unusual move or something like that, where they uh, they they referred to it being unusual of the uh, amount that. That Verstandig was uh, that, the, that the statement he put out seemed to exonerate uh, Stones and Caratus, and that's what kind of surprised me. I was expecting something more like uh, what I would think a kind of a standard sort of statement one would make when a settlement takes place, where you're, you're basically saying very little. You're just kind of saying, "Well, uh, we we take back our allegations," or we. Uh, we're we're, uh, we're we're no longer uh, interested in, br- in bringing forward these allegations, or uh, we we didn't find uh, conclusive evidence that, that something happened, or we didn't find uh, direct evidence. Something something where th- you don't have to look at it that closely to see they're basically saying we're not saying you did it, we're not saying you didn't do it. This one's kind of more like we're saying you didn't do it, which to me was unusual. Yeah, it was like it was very eloquently drafted, and it was meant to, uh, at the very least, convey a certain message. Um, but the way that the language appears in that statement, and using the term forensic evidence specifically, for example, you know, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick on Sean D for a second because I think he's a little douchey. But that's <laughs> like me saying, you know, I I didn't see Sean D eat that entire chicken. That doesn't mean he didn't eat the entire chicken. It just means I didn't see him eat it. Yeah. Um, you know, that's an oversimplification, but that's kind of the gist of it. You know, again, it's a very eloquently written statement. I'm sure the draft of that went back and forth several times before a final version was approved uh, and, and released. Uh, but, again, it was worded carefully enough to where if you, if you understand how litigation works and how these settlements work, you can see kind of read, you, know, you can read between the lines on that. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's what I mentioned last time. I mentioned on last week's episode that if you really study it closely, you can find certain things in the statement it's definitely not saying. It's not saying that cheating wasn't taking place. It was, in fact, it kind of was implying it was. Uh, it, it was uh, talking about how we didn't find forensic evidence rather than no evidence. We just didn't find forensic evidence, which, as I said, there didn't have to be any forensic evidence. There could have been none, or it could have been uh, disposed of a long time ago. Then there was uh, uh, like if you watch, if you looked at it really closely, as you said, you could read between the lines. But what kind of bothered me was just that the average person reading it will think, "Oh, okay, so there was this lawsuit, and uh, the plaintiff's attorney is going as far as saying he's satisfied that Stones and uh, Caritas didn't do anything wrong. So uh, maybe this was just all a mistake, or maybe possible somehow doing it himself. But uh, yeah, it's, it's safe to come back to Stones now." And that's that kind of bothers me because uh, that uh, and I, I I know the legal process I know how these things go and I know I know that uh, in fact 
let's let's talk about what the attorney is is required to do. I know I mentioned it last week, uh, but before we do that, though, we have someone to join the call here. I guess he's awake now. He's not asleep anymore. Brandon Drexel Gerson, hello. Is this the fraud show? It is the fraud show. We have attorney Eric Benzamokin on here. We're having a. Uh, a I've met Ed Benzamokin. I met him at the what have you? Uh, at the World Series. Limit Hold'em yes. thing. Yes, yeah. Only hey, Eric, only Trader Ruski did well there. The I'm rest good, of, I'm good. At that at that World Series Trader event. At that, I listen. I give him the backup line, the emergency number. I'm a, I'm sound asleep, and he calls me, wakes me up out of a deep sleep <laughs> on the emergency number. <laughs> to ask me something about fantasy football. Uh, Cam Newton. He heard Cam Newton has having some stomach trouble. Should we be worried? It's ridiculous. Wakes me up. So listen, I'm not going to be on here long. Okay. I'm on this weird schedule now. Well, listen, I may be back like at three in the morning. Okay. Well, we'll probably still, we'll probably still be here. But uh, Brandon, uh, unfortunately, I, I, I mean, you can you can chime in when you want. Uh, Mr. Benzamokin probably going to go to sleep even earlier than you. Uh, he's he's. Well, how can that be? I was already asleep. Well, he's at can't the end go of his... sleep earlier than me. If I was already asleep, well, re go to sleep. Up. I'm saying the next person's head to hit the pillow will probably be his. And uh, I'm just saying that we're just we're getting uh, his Trader Ruski on the line. Yes, hey, buddy. All right. <laughs> uh, we we Eric, how you doing, buddy? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Good. I haven't seen you in, in I guess it's been a while. It's been I think two years. When did we meet up? Yeah, at yeah, two years ago. Yeah, 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 was, yeah um, two years ago. Yeah. Now, why do you go to sleep so early? So I just got on this schedule where i've been waking up at five in the morning and you know i get things done it's quiet i have the whole world to myself it's very peaceful and serene without this craziness and you know this pandemic this this, and i i've been on the schedule so i'm falling asleep every night now at nine ten o'clock and it's just like clockwork why do why do you go to bed early on a a saturday night what's your story it's a friday night actually every night but it's almost like that every night very similar reasons i tend to wake up uh, even on the weekends around 5, 5.15 in the morning, uh, I'm usually in the office by 6 because I find that I can get a lot of uh, stuff done when I'm just uninterrupted and emails aren't, you know, coming in and phones aren't ringing just yet. And, 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 no, and no, no dog barking. And no dog barking. Do you, kind of find yeah. it's, do you kind of find it's more peaceful and serene that early when the whole half the world's asleep and it's just kind of you doing your own thing? Because that's how I, what I've kind of found lately. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, I Yes, I've gotten into a bit of a routine. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll grab a coffee in the morning on my way in, and yep. you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go in, I'll, I'll read, check some news, uh, and then I'll, I'll. I've usually got you know things that I have to get done, or you know, pleadings to type or filings to make. So I just get some stuff ready before uh, my paralegal gets in or, or my assistant, and I try to. Because once the day starts, to be honest, I you know I'm usually pulled away from things, the client calls or some other attorneys on the line or something's happening with a case or something else with the and Sure. You know, it's 15, 20 minutes at a time and I'm on to something else. So, uh, but then true. by the time I get home and, you know, I, I go for a walk usually every evening um, and you, know, you get home, get dinner. And eventually by, by nine o'clock, nine fifteen, I'm just dead to the that's, world. Yeah. That's exactly how I, I feel. So listen, I, I, I'll let you get back to the spiel. I, I don't want to keep you. I wanted to say hi to Druff and my buddy Trader Ruski, of course, who woke me up. Eric, it's <laughs> even more of a more of a blessing you're here. But I want to say one last thing, and then I'm going to go here. Yes. Now, there is some – this is a fraud thing or potentially a fraud thing. Now, there is some breaking news today off the wire that, that uh, the one guy in Mexico with the virus, with the Chinese flu. Yeah. The poker player. Yeah. You know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay, Sean Deeb. 
that there was some backlash or back and forth with him and and, and Viffer. And Viffer, yeah, I'm uh, going to cover it tonight. Now, yeah. uh, this is the thing, though, that I want to mention while we have Ben Zamokin on the line, that that other guy that used to host the show with us, Yes. That lives in, in the islands. Yeah, the sleep. islands. Yes. Yeah, the island. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He interjected into this battle that had nothing to do with him offering his services as a mediator, which I don't even think he's qualified to do. No, I don't that even think fine. he is either. He yeah. wants to be the Bitcoin guy and Reeve transform his image. That's fine. But now he's trying to. Well, what what qualify? I mean, I'm not saying this to start no feud, but just tell me what qualification does he have to be a mediator? Ben's a Mokin, He went to law school. He went to other schools. I mean, he wakes up early. What qualifications? He seems responsible. He has a, a license. What qualifications does the other guy have to, to even offer his services for this? Uh, he does. The, the, the only qualifications he could have, I would say, would be, uh, number one, he's probably – Try to be open-minded. I, Don't I am. base it on your – I know. Okay, I am. I'm, I'm saying – I'm actually speaking in his defense here a little bit. Okay. He is – he was part of poker for a long time, so he knows the way that borrowing and paying back works, especially because he was on the borrowing end a lot of times. Uh, he also, I don't think, is, is friends with either of them or enemies with either of them, so I think he could be pretty neutral there. I think he probably would be neutral. And and third, you know, he's, he's not an idiot. He's, he's not, it's not like he's a dumb guy. So I think he could understand what's going on. Now, I, he would not be even if I didn't have any issues with him. He would not be the one I'd choose because you know, knowing him when I did, he'd sometimes have weird opinions on things. He sometimes have weird takes. Well, on he things. used to post videos of him pissing in a cup, right? Things like that. So, like, he's not the yeah. most reliable person. So, I, while well, I think, so well, I, I respect he has some intelligence, and, and I respect that he knows poker and knows about borrowing and all that stuff. So, he's not the worst one, but he's definitely not the best one. So, Druff, well, the reason why I bring all this up is why don't you, you – know, you're very active on that uh, social media there, not on the Instagram, but on the other stuff, the the Twitter and the tweets, and why don't you interject our own boy, Eric Benzamokin, into the into the subject here? Maybe – I'm just saying it's unlikely, no offense, Eric, you know, because there's already discussion of MyCon and Glance, but why don't you interject him, at least get his name out there? He's a lawyer. He has a degree. He wakes up early. He's responsible, and just at least throw it out there. Maybe we get some momentum going. I, know, I can try. I can, I can see. I can see where there might be a failure, though, because nobody knows him. Which you can say on one hand is good, but then both sides can suspect that there's some shenanigans going on. They go like, "Who's but, the stranger?" But but hold on. But the fact that you're offering it, how could they suspect shenanigans? They're not going to because because Sean Deeb doesn't. He doesn't. Neither. I don't think neither of them cares for me all that much. Like they don't hate me, no. but I don't think either of them like me that much. Well, I'll tell you what, the best way is if it's a mediation, not like an arbitration where a third party just makes a decision. Okay. Because mediation me in the end Sorry. is voluntary and nobody has to settle. You know, there's no, there's no forced outcome. So it's hard to have shenanigans in a mediation because neither side has to agree if they don't want to. Okay. So let me ask you this, Drop. Is it possible you know more about this technology and the Twitter than I do? Is it possible that you could tweet at the affected parties, uh, Viffer and Deeb, and at least tweet at them the Eric Benzamokin radio ad, and maybe one of them click on it and they hear I probably people. can. I could probably put the ad, which I obviously have as an MP3 because that's why I play it. Could I could probably I could put it up on the Poker Fraudler server. Hang on, let me, I'm going to put you, it on the on the yeah. server. And then I can I can just tweet. I could I could tweet it to them. Here I have the guy for you here, and then just 
I have a link to the the MP3. Yeah, we we can try that. Could you do that and, and add me on it? And then also, this would make me real happy. In parentheses, right? Eric wakes up early. Okay, just write that because it just sounds <laughs> okay. crazy. I'll try but to remember yeah, okay. after this long show. But yeah, that's not, not a bad idea. Even even though it probably because you're right, they don't know him. But we got to get the momentum out. We got to take care of our own. He is for better or worse. He's PFA's own attorney. He comes on your show. He gives you money. Let's try to do give something back to Benzamok and at least get his name out there. I, I, I would love I for them to hire him, but uh, we'll see. I'll, I'll drop his name. I'll try it. I, mean, I will try it, it. You know, you never right. listen. In all your years, and you have the experience on the BBSs. Just tell me this: crazier things have happened, yes or no? Yeah. Okay, so let's just see what we can do. <laughs> okay. So that's all I got. Okay. Right, Eric, it's a pleasure. Good to <laughs> talk to you, Jeff. We'll, we'll you know we'll talk during the week. And Trader Ruski, you there, buddy? Hey, buddy. I, I am, brother. <laughs> Listen, don't be waking me up about no Cam Newton, especially on the on the on the, the private, important secret line. That's just ridiculous. Okay, you can wait till the normal I hours know. and call me on my cell, not the emergency line. I want I wanted to put him in last week with the thirty seven points. Right. They still defending hey, it. <laughs> listen, you guys have a great show. Thanks for the time. I'll I'll try to be back. Listen, I wake up at three, four. It's still going on. I'm I'm here. Okay, you know I'll be. Here. We'll be okay? We will be right. waiting good for night, your call. Guys. Have okay. a good show. Bye-bye. Bye, Bye-bye. Brandon. All right. So. Wow. If I knew that endorsement was coming, I wouldn't have called Sean D. Douchey. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, let's – I forgot where we were with Stones. Uh, I, I, I want to ask uh, – I'll just ask another question here. So my train of thought was interrupted. Uh, as far as the clients were concerned um, – some people don't understand this. I saw, you know, there's some criticism that was aimed at Mac by, by people like Sean Deeb and others who didn't quite understand the process. They, they kind of just think the attorney can just decide for themselves, uh, what they want to do. Uh, c- can you describe for the listener, if you were representing, uh, you know, let's say like a case like this, like a lot of plaintiffs, uh, if a settlement offer is being made by the defendant, what is the attorney expected to do? Well, in, in, at, at all times, any offer that's made to settle, no matter how low of an offer it is or how ridiculous the offer may seem to the attorney, an, an attorney has an absolute ethical obligation to inform his client of the offer, and the client ultimately gets to make the decision when it comes to settling. An attorney can give his two cents uh, about the practicality of settling or the value of a settlement, the pros and cons, uh, and but ultimately that decision is up to the client. Now, when you've got 80-some-odd clients, uh, that's a much more difficult task. Uh, communicating an offer, you know, can be done by email, and you typically want to send the same uniform message to all the uh, plaintiffs or all the clients um, and allow them a you know, window of time to respond. You may want to hold some kind of, like, Zoom Q&A, uh, and let everybody attend that's willing to and, you know, just make it available. Um, I mean, it's a lot harder to manage 80-some clients than it is to manage one or two. I mean, I've had cases where I've represented three people at once as plaintiffs because they're also in the same company for various different breaches. Um, but to be honest, in those cases, because the breaches were slightly different, each client has the ability to settle out without the others. My understanding is that this particular case, the vast majority of the plaintiffs had to settle. And I think part of it was Mac was not going to continue representing those that refused. 
where they didn't want to. Yeah, he wasn't. Um, yeah, and that, that creates a, a different kind of problem because certain clients are going to see that as like a form of abandonment. It's really not, you know, if an attorney, it's, you know, there's ethical rules about when an attorney can withdraw and when they can't. At some point, one of the, one of the reasons you're allowed to withdraw as a lawyer is if you really can't, uh, guide your client correctly anymore. That's not the right way to put it. If your client's not willing to heed your advice, in other words, if you have no client control, uh, and a client is going to go rogue and do whatever they want, then you can step back and ask the courts to allow you to withdraw because the client's just not listening to you anymore. Um, and that's likely what was happening with the remaining 20 some odd or whatever it was that chose not to settle. I could easily see Mac filing a motion with the court saying, look, you got to let me out of this now. They won't listen. Everybody else sees this as in their best interest, but they won't. And I can't continue to represent them um, in this, you know, in this manner. Yeah, you know, um, I, I want to say w- one thing here that uh, nobody objected. Apparently, according to the, what I read, not a single one of the twenty-seven that, or whatever it was that they dropped uh, had any kind of formal objection. So obviously that helped uh, helped the matter. Uh, but yeah, that's I, I actually saw some former attorney uh, criticizing that about how they were dropped and it would affect their their future uh, litigation. And I, I said, well, I don't think this is a big deal in a practical sense because I don't think there was anywhere to go with this case. I think it was kind of dead in the water and either you take this type of settlement or or it's pretty much done and, and you're, you're probably going to want to give up, which I'm pretty sure they're going to do. I, I can't see how they're going to go forward. I mean, to be frank, I don't see another attorney stepping in to, to continue the litigation on behalf of those plaintiffs and to now amend the complaint that probably won't go anywhere anyway. Yeah, that's what um, that's what I thought. Yeah. yeah, and there might be a you know an industrious guy out there that takes it on for more press and publicity. Think you know there might be a chance he thinks it's going to garner more more business for him if he steps into the limelight a little bit. But uh, most of the time, most you know a lot most attorneys just once a case is at this point in this juncture, they're, they're everybody's going to be hands off. Yeah. Uh, so regarding the the settlement, it was by email is how they were informed, and I I actually have a copy of that email. I'm not going to read it on here. I've never published it. I've talked about a few things I've seen there, but uh, I'm not going to publish that email. But I, I will say that uh, while it laid it out very clearly to all the clients uh, what the terms were, uh, that it did not uh, I, I did not see anything in that email that seemed to be talking about the downside of settling that is non-monetary basically like uh, for the kind of the, the social media and the fact that stones is going to take this and wave this in everybody's face sort of thing like uh, uh, yeah because there, there's as I've said many times this isn't like a, a minor car accident there there's an emotional connection to all this for these people who believe they were cheated uh, they they probably don't want to see stones, or I, I'm guessing. Of course, I don't. I can't. I'm not in the heads of the plaintiffs, but I, I have to imagine a lot of them wouldn't want stones waving this in everyone's faces, and uh, uh, and and also there's there's the possibility that there can be uh, shame on social media for having signed it, given the uh, the strength of that statement. So I, I don't see that in there, uh, though. This is kind of an unusual case in many ways. So. Um, is it common for attorneys to uh, 
advise these sorts of things. Like if you accept this, then uh, the defendant may go go take the statements and go forth on social media and keep waving. Like, do, do attorneys even typically think of things like this, or or is this just something that they they kind of keep their hands off and they just kind of stick to the legal issues of, of settlements? It's a it's a really really good question because. There's a there's the possibility that it was not foreseeable that this was going to be touted in the way in which it was, especially since there's other confidentiality provisions in the settlement. Um, so this statement being released, I think, was only meant to be um, done to effectuate the you know the settlement with everybody else. But I don't know that they foresaw or that Mac thought that this was going to be promulgated the way it was. And I think it was really Justin that was doing it. Like, yeah, well, it was Justin. Yeah. Well, Justin did it. Yeah. Or, or, so Justin did it. And then the stones account did it. And it's assumed it was Justin on the stones account, but it actually was someone representing stones, maybe Justin, probably Justin who posted it also on the stones account, but then it was mainly Justin just really flaunting it. Yeah. And that's something that probably couldn't have been foreseen. Or even if it was, you couldn't necessarily control. I mean, Justin's got his own, you know, his First Amendment rights too, and you know, he wants to spin that any way he, you know, he can. I'm sure, in his mind, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter what the truth, you know, the truth of it is. But I'm sure, in his mind, he does feel, or he, at least he's convinced himself that he's been wronged or persecuted in some way. And I guess it's in his his form of retribution or something like that. But um, it's certainly, you know, like, you know, grade school tactics. I mean, it's just dumb uh, to continually bring attention to yourself, even if you think you're taking a victory lap. You know, it's like taking your victory lap and then falling. Tripping, <laughs> you know, so, That's a good analogy. So, it's, yeah, so it was just, I, I didn't, I mean, I understand from a psychological perspective why he would do it, but it, it was very stupid um, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay, and uh, let me think of anything else I want. I was, uh, oh, here, I, I do have one more thing. Uh, so I discussed last week the suggestions by one of Postle's friends, this Ku Fang woman. And she didn't directly say it, but she was saying, you know, she was implying pretty strongly that some sort of lawsuit is coming against Postle's biggest critics and detractors in this whole thing. And it, it, Veronica, of course, probably is the one they hate the most. And then uh, behind that, probably uh, Doug Polk and Joey Ingram. Then also uh, ESPN and Scott Van Pelt, who went on the ESPN and Bash Postle. Then also uh, Poker News, who released some articles they were very unhappy about. And probably a few others that they seem particularly angry at. So... Justin has not said such a lawsuit's coming. Postle hasn't said it. Stones hasn't said it. But uh, this friend of Postle's, this good friend of Postle's, has been implying it and kept referring to September 28th, which, of course, is coming pretty close, which is a year from when Veronica first made the accusations on Twitter. She made them on September 28th, 2019. And there is a year statute of limitations for libel and slander in California. And I assume that's where she was getting September 28th. But she was almost implying like something's going to happen on the 28th, which didn't make any sense. But anyway, uh, we'll, I guess we'll see pretty soon if there's anything to this. But uh, my question is for you. Number one, is there any way, if nothing's filed by the 28th, that action could still be taken, for example, based on tweets that uh, continue to be made about this after September 28th? Like, 
just taking Veronica, for example, if she tweeted about this also on October 15th and October 17th, hey, do they also have till then or is it kind of from when this starts? That's my first question. Uh, second, is the, is the statute of limitations any different in federal court than, than a year? And, and third, uh, how do you feel about the ability for them to uh, bring this case in, uh, you know, given that it's, it's hard to prove that Postle cheated in order to either criminally convict him or even uh, beat him in a lawsuit, but it also may be hard the other way for any kind of uh, damages to be sought against those who said he cheated. So th- th- I'd like to hear your thoughts on these things. All right. Well, so I'm really glad that I uh, I made a quick cup of coffee before because I actually have quite a bit uh, as far as my thoughts on on all of that goes. Uh, to answer the first questions though, that are pretty simple, the statute of limitations on a defamation case is one year in California. The statute begins to toll from one year from the day the statement was made uh, public or the def- the defamatory statement was released. You could argue that the initial tweet on September 28th was not or didn't rise to the defamatory statement, but that subsequent tweets did. Uh, and so you could start counting from then. Um, and so, but everything at that point becomes an argument and that's going to be left up to the judge. So if such, such a case were to be filed, uh, the safe route would be to file it no later than September 28th, 2020. But that doesn't mean that if they missed that deadline, they'd be completely shut out from filing something. Federal court, state courts, the same pretty much rule because even if you go into federal court, you're going to have to apply California law because the likely subject of the defamation suit is Veronica who's in California. Now, if you bring in guys from all over the country, so I don't, I think, I remember once Joe Ingram, I think I, he's in Chicago or that's his nickname or something. No, that's his nickname. No, he's, he's in Vegas as is Doug Polk. Okay, so then maybe you get into federal court because you have something called diversity of citizenship of the defendants. Um, but And then at that point, you'd either apply Nevada law or California law, which I believe are the same. Still one year. So the, that, that part of it wouldn't be uh, really changed. Now, as far as the ability to bring the suit and is it likely to happen or what it would be based on and all that kind of stuff, um, a couple of things that are... I think important. So first, the the tweets that are coming from this uh, friend apostle or the, this poker thug or whatever it is, with her stupid poem, uh, who you know, and all that nonsense, is very reminiscent of. If you ever there was a movie, it was very funny. I, I'm probably giving away like my stupid sense of humor, but it was with uh, Ice Cube and the other guy, and it was called Fist Fight, and they were going to fight at the after school, and there were two teachers. And the whole point is that the guy kept, Ice Cube kept saying to the other guy, we're going to fight after school. Three o'clock, we're going to fight in the parking lot. I'm going to get high, I think, right? Whatever it was. Yeah, uh, it was, it was, it was three o'clock high. And in fact, that was, you know, what's weird. I hate to interrupt you here, but the, that movie was, uh, it was from, uh, I think 87. That, that was the only movie I saw promoted at my high school, like on the walls of the high school. I'm going, what the hell? Why is my public high school promoting a movie? Well, it turned out that uh, one of the, I think the writer of it, someone very, very much involved with making that movie went to my high school. And that's uh, not, not present, not at the time, but yeah, was a graduate of the high school and they wanted to support him. I found that out many years later. But anyway, go on. I'm sorry. Yeah, but, but that, but that's sort of the mentality. I think it, it, it feels almost like, the thought, the anxiety of what might come 
in a few hours or in a few days or whatever is really the goal is to make that other person feel so uncomfortable. And that's what this feels like to me. It, it feels like a, it's all like a, like a bullying tactic. Uh, summonses are going to be flying and you're going to get served. And, you know, it's just bullshit. This is nonsense. But, let, but let's assume for a second that whoever it is is serious, that they've got information that this is going to get filed. One, while there's always somebody out there that'll do it, I cannot imagine the attorney that would take that on and file a defamation case given all of the, the circumstances surrounding this issue. There are certain protections in place if somebody is a public figure or a quasi-public figure or a limited-purpose public figure. These are legal terms of art, but the point is that you know, this is not just anybody can sue for defamation if they're in the public light, if they put themselves in the public light, if they subject themselves to public scrutiny, you know, if they're quasi celebrity, uh, there's all these different uh, carve outs to this defamation idea. Plus, truth is an absolute defense, uh, by the way. And that's, that's number one. So, number two, so I don't even I can't imagine that there's be an attorney that would do it. That's that's first. Second. I don't think Pasta can afford an attorney that would take this kind of case on in a federal court for defamation, you know, in a First Amendment sort of setting. Uh, th- nobody's taking this on contingency. Uh, I really don't think so. Well, here's even, my here's my question about, could... about contingency. Let me stop you for a second. Yeah. I was thinking about sure. that. So I thought of the same thing. I thought, how's Pasta going to afford an attorney uh, and uh, to do this? And then who's going to take this on contingency since it seems like a lousy case? Then I thought about the fact that Poker News and ESPN were involved and that, uh, in fact, this uh, Scott Van Pelt, uh, he, he, when he put out that statement, I was a little bit surprised. I agreed with what he said, but I thought, wow, I'm surprised they're putting this on ESPN without absolute proof that Postle had cheated. So I was, you know, it's one thing to say it on, on Twitter. It's another thing to put it on ESPN and broadcast uh, everywhere <laughs> Mike Postle was cheating uh, from, from a respected person on ESPN. So I, I was saying, hmm, like, I wonder if ESPN or Scott Van Pelt were opening the sel- themselves up to, to some kind of lawsuit. So do you think it's possible that an attorney would be taking it knowing that ESPN has super deep pockets and might just settle to make this go away. Not a smart attorney, because no matter how deep the pockets are for ESPN, even guys like Doug Polk or Joe Ingram, they probably have a fairly decent network. Uh, but ESPN, especially in ABC and, and whatever ESPN, the, uh, you know, the affiliate of, uh, they're not just going to dump a quick settlement and pay out. That's not how that works. I know, I know some attorneys, especially newer ones, they think that, you know, you get a, a deep pocket client or a deep pocket defendant and, you know, insurance is going to settle right away. But that's not true. Stones had insurance too. And their settlement was meek. It was terrible. Yeah. I mean, dollar wise. Uh, a lot of times, especially like ESPN, they've got a whole floor of lawyers just waiting for this, these kinds of stupid lawsuits. It's all they, it's all these guys do all day. They, they will, they will outspend and outperform, you know, any attorney that, you know, stomps in with a defamation lawsuit and they will bury this guy in motions, paperwork, depositions, discovery. You know, there, there, there's just no way to compete. You never take on that kind of defendant uh, unless you've got significant resources behind you. And I just can't see any reputable firm, uh, rep, you know, taking on Possible as a client um, and going forward. 
I think the settlement that Curitis was a part of with Stones probably precludes him from being involved in any future litigation related to this. So it would only be possible that would be filing anything. Well, but Veronica, Veronica didn't, uh, she didn't take the settlement. So, and, and of course, Doug Polk but, and all this warrant. So I think it, I think it only prevented the litigation against, uh, anyone who took the settlements, which isn't really anybody very notable. Uh, other than uh, Jeff Boski, for some reason, took it, which makes me think he's oh, kind of broke. Yeah. But... <laughs> it's possible, yeah. The, the claims are only waived by those that signed off. But, but Caritas himself may may, have, may be precluded from doing it uh, because Stones is settled for him, you know, as part of his, you know, him as the employee. I know he had his own independent attorney, but uh, that may have even been provided by Stones because they had, usually the employer has a duty to, uh, provide defense for their agent or employee, especially if it's related to their duties. Or, oh, or their I, I didn't think of that, but yeah, that's a good point. Hmm. So, uh, and, and that's and then number three. You know, I, you know, now you now you really got me woken up. Uh, how how on earth? I you know somebody Veronica. I don't I don't know her personally. I don't know my fossil personally. I only know what I've read and listened to. Um, Put aside the fact that I don't believe for a minute that there's a degree of innocence here on Mike Possel's part. But that's my own personal belief. But even putting that aside, here's a person that simply tried to do the right thing, who noticed something going on that seemed fishy to her. And my understanding of the facts is that she brought it to her employer or her supervisor or the person in charge, uh, which is what she was supposed to do. And when that fell on deaf ears or she was ignored or belittled, then she took the next step and she reached out to people who she believed could ultimately provide her with some answers. Um, there is nothing. And then she went on to tweet about it or, or say what she was going to say. There's nothing defamatory about what she did or how she did it. If the goal is some kind of payback, uh, then I think and hope that possible will rue the day that he thinks he's going to do that or, or that he tries. Um, if I were the attorney defending Veronica or anybody else brought into a defamation case, uh, I would bury Possible and his attorney for years. Uh, they would, I would drag, I would force him to spend every dollar he had and then borrow five times more than he's worth just to stay in the fight. Knowing that I'd win anyway, yeah, it's that despicable. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't picture this. Like I could not picture this was a good case, even you know, being the uh, the amateur attorney I try to be. I, I I couldn't see where this could be successful. There were so many ways that I was even noticing that it seemed like there were uh, ways to stop this, but it, it could just be to. To, to hassle people like like Veronica, who doesn't have the ESPN deep pockets, so who knows? But uh, I guess it's we'll see the shortly. Only motivation. It's the only motivating factor I can see. This is just meant to harass um, and and cause uh, additional despair or distress to the person that Possible views as the one who essentially cut off his gravy train. Yeah. Um, that, that you know, and if if it actually happened, uh, it, it would be it, it's simply despicable. Yeah, I I, I believe so too, and uh, we'll know pretty soon, I think, because of the statute of limitations. Unless, as you said, they they try some to say it started on a different date. But it, to me, it, I agree with you that if they're going to do it, 
the safest thing to do is just, you know, like, why would they wait when they can easily do it without any kind of uh, statute of limitations question just before the 28th? So we don't have much time left. It is the 25th right now, near the end of the 25th. And in fact, uh, Monday uh, will be the 28th. So that, that'll be that. And uh, I, I'm kind of with you now. At, at first when I was seeing this, I'm like, oh, wow, I, I'm kind of believing this is coming. And now, partially because we're getting closer to the 28th, I'm like, yeah, I think, I think you were right that it was just someone posturing or maybe – Maybe it was being considered, and someone w- and this woman was exaggerating, like it's definitely happening. So, well, I guess we'll see. Anyway, Eric, yeah. I, I don't want to keep you up any longer. I know it's uh, almost uh, eleven o'clock here, so thank you for coming on. I appreciate this, and uh, always like having you on the show. Every time we have you on here, there's new things I learned about whatever dis- subject we're discussing, and uh, I know the listeners feel this way as well and of course thank you for uh, all the donations to the free roll over time and for everything else you've done here so we really appreciate that happy to come on absolutely okay good night eric bye good night thanks Thanks, eric all right bye-bye all right so there's a few developments since last week few pretty big developments. The biggest one has to do with someone who didn't involve himself very much in the whole puzzle story, and that is one Phil Galfond. Now, I bet you hadn't heard me mentioning Phil Galfond's name with the puzzle scandal. Oh, I've mentioned him on the show a lot about his run at one site, but I have not mentioned him about the puzzle scandal because he didn't really get involved. I mean, maybe he made a comment or two like all poker players did, but he was never a big figure in commenting on the Puzzle scandal. And the truth is, Phil Galfond doesn't really like injecting himself into drama. He doesn't like talking badly about people. He doesn't like criticizing people, even those that deserve it. That's just not really in his personality. He's kind of got this uh, always positive, happy-go-lucky guy sort of personality. And the few times he does get pissed off, like he'll display it in kind of like a passive-aggressive form. He doesn't like to come at anybody. And that's just his personality. Now, this makes a lot of people really like him because he doesn't get into drama with people. He doesn't fight with people. He doesn't get pissed off. And that's where he differs from many people in poker, including me. You guys know that I am willing and often do get involved in arguments and controversy and that I do not hesitate to do that. I don't hesitate to state my opinion that'll piss people off. Sometimes I'll even state my opinion specifically to piss people off. I won't say things that I don't believe, but I'll say things that uh, I know will get a bad reaction, but I believe them, so I say them anyway. But that's not Phil Galfond. He's like the opposite of that. But nevertheless, Phil Galfond was frustrated when he read Justin Caritas' tweets. He just couldn't keep quiet any longer, and in fact, he wanted to help. And even though I have criticized Phil Galfond on this show regarding how he's run his run at once site, which I'll be clear, he's never ripped anyone off there or anything like that. I just think it hasn't been run properly. I think it's uh, kind of a fail site. But I will say this, that this is something selfless he's doing. And I'll tell you in a second what that is. And I'm very glad to see it. And he really is doing something that is very good for the situation. 
and I'm glad to see him involved, and I'm glad to see him undertaking the effort that he's now undertaking involving the puzzle situation, which really didn't involve him at all, and he never got involved with. So good for him. I give him a big fat thumbs up for this. I'm not being sarcastic. I'm being very serious. Good job, Phil Galfon. I'm proud of you for this. And it makes me think better of you. I didn't think badly of Phil Galfon. It's just uh, I wasn't a huge Phil Galfon fanboy like many others are. I, I don't dislike him, but this I give him nothing but props. So what am I talking about? Well, Phil Galfon has decided that he's going to finally put to bed the excuses that are coming from the Postle side. Oh, they're cherry-picking hands. Postle didn't really cheat. They're just uh, they're exaggerating win rates. They're, uh, they're, they're never showing when Postle loses. They're, just, they're always taking the hands that make him look the worst, but they're not presenting an accurate picture of the situation. And Veronica's only doing this because she wants attention, and she wants to be famous in poker, and this is her way to get it. And Doug Polk just wanted clicks, and Joey Ingram just wanted clicks, and they benefited from this. Everybody's screwing Postle because he's a convenient target, that he's really innocent. Uh, you know, Come on, show us proof that he's guilty. Show us proof uh, you know, of, of that the numbers uh, really show he was cheating. Uh, let's see you disprove the counter numbers that Rounder Life came up with. We're seeing this so much from Postle's defenders, who are very loud. There aren't that many of them, but they're very loud. You have that poker thug, poker grandma person, Kufang is her name. We have that dog for life person whose name is James something. We, you have this, uh, of course, Justin Caritas himself. You have uh, this Poker Heroes account, which may or may not be Justin Caritas. You have uh, this some guy named NorCal Poker who's doing it somewhat too now. There's like a handful of people who are from that area who know Postle and are friendly with him. And they are trying as hard as they can. Of course, we can't forget Rounder Life, Everett Caldwell in Florida, who has worked with Postle. And I think they owned Rounder Life magazine together. In fact, they may still own it together. So there's that group, and they put a lot of time and effort like a surprising amount of time and effort into defending Postle. In fact, uh, even though I think all these people are scumbags for defending Postle the way they are and, and trolling Veronica and trolling other people who were just trying to do the right thing and, in fact, did do the right thing, I, I will say as far as friendship loyalty is concerned, I would be happy to have them as friends from that standpoint. <laughs> like, like One can only hope to have friends who are that loyal to you. I, I don't like them or what they're doing, but I will say they're being very loyal friends to Postle, much more than he deserves. That's It's pretty amazing how much effort some of these people are putting in to defending him when he doesn't deserve it, and it really looks like he's guilty. So it's been kind of like an irritant. It's been an irritant, but most people have ignored it. In the last few weeks, I was rolling around in the mud with some of them just to engage them a little bit, but uh, most people were ignoring them for the last several months. I was one of the few engaging with them. But they're getting renewed attention because of Justin's return to Twitter and flaunting that settlement in everybody's face and flaunting back for standing statement in everyone's face. So this has made everybody pay attention to this, and it's become a subject of annoyance now to the entire community that there's not a simple and easy way to show the average person exactly 
what Postle's win, win rate was, exactly the stats of his play. You know, what does he do on the flop? What does he do pre-flop? What does he do on the river? You know, how often does he uh, d- does he call the river, or d- does he always uh, does he usually raise or fold? Uh, when he does call, is it only in spots where he pretty much has to call without looking terrible, or where the pot's so small he figures he might as well? Like, like we don't have a very very detailed breakdown on everything, and there's a reason for that because there's a ton of hands. It's a period of like 18 months, and it's on a stream. It's not like you can just run it through software and get all the hand histories. It's a tough thing to put together. It's a tough thing to just even get all the hand histories that Postle was involved with in all those hours-long streams that took place like once a week over a year and a half period of time. So that's why there's only limited information on this. Yeah, people were able to figure out the approximate win rates and stuff like that, and, and we definitely saw what there wasn't, and that was like major hands for a lot of money where Apostle, who was very loose aggressive, somehow just never put major money in in a terrible spot. He never fired off huge money with a bluff into the nuts. He never fired off uh, huge money uh, with a bluff into a very strong hand that isn't the nuts. He never fired, fired off huge money when he had a very strong second best hand that was unlikely to catch up. Like that he didn't do. But he'd fire off huge money when it looked like his opponent was going to fold, and he fired off huge money when he was ahead. So I've been challenging the other side, show me hands like this, and then maybe I'll consider changing my mind. And nobody's been able to do so. But still, I do not have the stats. I don't have like the entire possible hand history. I don't know what his real win rate is. There's some dispute about that. I don't know for sure that he didn't call in those spots or that he didn't fire off a lot of money. I just haven't seen it in all the videos I've watched. That's why I've told them, show me. I'm not saying I'm 100% certain this didn't occur. I'm saying I haven't seen it, and I would think they would have presented it by now with a year to look into this if such thing existed. But I still don't have proof. I still don't have proof that it didn't happen. Well, Phil Galfon has decided that he and people who are assisting him are going to come up with this proof, that they are going to put together the full picture, every single hand. And that's a pretty big undertaking. Galfond can't do this himself. It's just too big of a job, and he's also very busy. And that's understandable. I'm not. That's not a criticism. That's just a fact about Galfond, that he's a, a busy guy and that it's a, a very big job. So he's more directing it. But that's not to take anything away. I think it's a great idea. I love the fact that he's directing it. And the biggest reason I love the fact that he's directing it is because he commands respect. If, if just some random says, oh, I'd like to put together this hand history project, people go, oh, yeah, okay, sure, whatever. But but here, Phil Galfon's directing it, and the people want to help. Because they say, okay, well, Phil Galfon's behind this. Yeah, I want to be part of it. Like, just people want to join in with it because Galfon is the guy directing it. And he's a perfect guy to be directing it. Remember, Phil Galfon, in addition to being a great player, also ran a training site and still runs a training site for many, many years. So he is very good at analyzing poker data. He doesn't need any help with learning how to do that or understanding that. So this is already something that he has experience with. And even if he doesn't personally do the work, he'll be overseeing it and directing the whole process. And I have a feeling it will be a very thorough and accurate job. And 
people want to do it because, number one, they want to finally shut up Apostle's friends and have something simple to present. Number two, there's been this talk of these lawsuits, these threats of these lawsuits against Veronica and others, and this will actually be useful to take into court where you can say, well, look, here's why we think he was cheating. <laughs> and, and you show the numbers. And you don't have to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that Apostle was cheating to defend a defamation case. You just have to show, among other things, that it was reasonable for you to say that. And then there's many other factors why it wouldn't that, that case would lose anyway, as Eric Benzamokin said. But it's useful to have. It's a very helpful thing to have, rather than just going to court going, oh, well, I watched a bunch of videos and it really looked like he was cheating. Like, you can say that, and that is valid, but it's much better to have a comprehensive analysis of all the hands he played, and you show, based upon that analysis, why you feel he was cheating. That can be very strong, especially when you compare it to the way a player typically plays, even a really good player. So that's another good thing that will come out of this, is that any lawsuits that could be filed by Apostle or Justin Caritas or anyone else, or like Stones, this will be usable by the defense. It's something you can present to people who don't know that much about the situation. I've had people ask me, how do you know that Apostle's guilty? And can you show me evidence? And these aren't people like Apostle's friends or people trying to be assholes. Like These are just people who don't know much about it and are just curious. Maybe they think that rounder life is correct. Maybe they think that Justin Courageous is correct. They, they, they just would like to see for themselves, and I don't blame them. And my response is just, well, go through Jerry Ingram's videos. It'll become obvious to you. But that's not the best response because these are very long videos. And there's a whole lot of them. Now at least I can say, well, look at Bart Hansen's video that he made. It's only an hour-long video of some of the most egregious hands with Bart commentating on it. So that's very helpful, and thank you to Bart for doing that. But still, that doesn't have stats on all the hands. So I think between what Bart has done and what is being done by Galfon's group here, you're going to have this compilation of hands you can watch, which Bart's already done, some like really egregious hands, and then to answer the, well, these are cherry-picked hands argument, then you have the comprehensive hand histories of everything and all the statistical analysis of that. And that's going to be pretty rock-solid to convince people who don't want to put like a million hours into looking into this. Just like the average person is, hey, you know, I, I just kind of like to take a look at some evidence. You're like, okay, here you go. And you give them both things, and they take a short time, and they'll be convinced. And that's very useful to have. So... This is good. This is very good, and I was very happy to read that. Now, let me tell you what Galfon had to say specifically and where this is. So this is what Galfon tweeted on September 19th, now uh, six days ago. I'm a busy guy. I probably wasn't ever going to think about Apostle again, but Justin Caritas and Stones responded to a legal, quote, victory by taunting the victims. Then he did a vomiting emoji. Phil Galfon vomiting over the way Justin has been taunting people. If we get all hand histories into Poker Tracker or a spreadsheet, I'll create a detailed report with proof or lack thereof myself. So he's even saying, look, if it turns out Postle is innocent, I'll, I'll say so too. But what, we're going to get all the hand histories. I don't have time to do it, but if someone's going to get this together, then I'll put out a detailed report about the way Postle played from every single hand. 
Phil Galfon goes on to say, It seems people have focused on win rate, which helps but isn't the best way to prove guilt or innocence. True, I've been saying that for a long time. What was his river bluff success rate? How often did he make a big better raise versus the near nuts? How often did he take aggressive action with a chop? Like that's that's another good one. Is uh, if you and your other your opponent has a big stack, and you two have the same hand, but it's not the nuts, you can take a super aggressive action, knowing that you're going to tie and you're locked into tying, but your opponent doesn't know that. Your opponent may be afraid you have the nuts. So, like, uh, a simple one would be, let's say you have a nine, and there's ten jack, queen, king on the board. Well, it's hard to take aggressive action into that, because if the opponent has an ace, they're going to snap call you, and you're going to lose a ton of money. But if you know they don't have an ace, then you can be super aggressive with your nine, the second nuts, and you know that uh, at worst you're going to chop anyway, and at best, they're going to fold. In fact, they're probably going to fold because uh, they're, they're not going to see it being worth putting in all this money just to see if you're bluffing with uh, the worse than them or if you're chopping. So uh, that, that's what he's asking as well, which is a good question. Phil Galfon went on to say, it seems people... Oh, no, I read the one. He goes on to say, compare these stats and a dozen others, and I think of now to averages, you'll see an undeniably large difference if you can see the cards. I realize that getting all hands transcribed isn't a simple task, but I'm sure we can accomplish it if someone organizes the effort. So he's saying, get me the hand histories and I will put together a detailed report. So he is going to do work. He's just saying, I'm not going to scrape all the hand histories, but you guys manage that. Give it to me and I'll do the rest. Very nice. And then there's an update since then. This is six days ago. So let me give you the update. On September 20th, the next day, he said, Possible hand history update. With the, ho- the help of High Hands 89 or someone else on Twitter, we have all relevant videos downloaded and saved just in case. That is in case uh, Stones decides to delete them. Because they can at any time. They're not required to keep those videos up. We, and by we I mean awesome volunteers, I'm not doing much, are setting up a framework to crowdsource transcription of hands and make it as efficient as possible. So many of you have reached out and offered to help. Thank you. I'll let you know as soon as we're ready to help with the transcribing. After we've got the hands, we'll convert them to a format that allows them to gather statistics. I plan to do my own analysis and write a report on my findings regardless of the outcome, he writes. I'll share data with others looking to do the same. There are many more qualified than I am to do statistical analysis, but I believe I can create a report of value as a poker expert. No, I think you're fine, Phil. I think we trust you. (laughs) I think you're good enough. I understand... Others are working towards the effort, specifically Matt Berkey, and he's working with someone else who's building a way to automate the data collection. Well, this may result in wasted work. You never know how long things might take, and redundancy is a good thing anyway. So basically he's saying that Berkey's trying to make it – Berkey's trying to have someone work under him to automatically scrape it from all the videos to where people have to just watch all the videos and manually transcribe all the hands. But feels like, yeah, we're going to go forward anyway, and if we both happen to get the same thing, then we do, but we just want to get this done. He writes, as mentioned before, I'm not leading any effort into investigation beyond this data. I've seen others mention organizing that. Please feel free to do so. I just wanted to grab one area I felt I could help with and go. I'm not declaring myself the leader of the possible investigation. So he's saying, 
don't expect more from me. I'm not going to take this and just be the leading anti-possible advocate, but I'll do this. I'll be in charge of this. So very good. Very good. So we will see where that goes. Sean Deeb, we'll talk about uh, later, he also said, uh, thinking of starting a GoFundMe to help pay people for their time and bringing in some stats and better evidence against the cheats, maybe even, even hire some PI to find out who is funding particular things. I think he means the documentary. But fact, they take like 10%, so maybe we should do it P to P. It's always hard to understand what he's talking about. I think he's, uh, I, I don't know what he's talking about. But then he did a poll, but the poll doesn't mean much because he put in the poll, where's the food court? It referenced to something Justin said to him. So like 63% answered that way. So that kind of ruined the poll. I don't think the GoFundMe ever started. Interesting idea. There's a lot of money that could be put together if money is an issue, like if people need to throw any money into this effort. And furthermore, there's a lot of people who could put effort into doing all of this. When you have a lot of people, including a lot of well-funded people and well-known people that are all looking to accomplish the same thing and are up against the same perceived enemy, it's not good to be that perceived enemy. You don't, you don't want the whole poker community after you. You don't want the whole poker community trying to prove something about you that is probably true, that you're trying to deny. If everybody's paying attention to you and coming after you in poker, it's not going to be good for you. And that's kind of what's happening here to Apostle and Justin. And this is their fault. This is their fault. This, this got reinvigorated a year later because uh, after this uh, settlement, Justin had to go run around taunting everybody. And then Postle also taunted people somewhat in that uh, Sack B article. But Justin's really been taunting people, and it got the attention of big names in poker who said, hey, we're not going to take this. We're going to come back, and we're going to prove it. Otherwise, no one would be doing this a year later. Everybody lost interest. Just became a story from late 2019. And I'll tell you, Mike Postle actually benefited from COVID because people stopped thinking about Postle as much. With COVID going on. Think of how long ago it seems when this was brought out. Seems like more than a year ago, doesn't it? Because we could all still play live poker. There was no belief that the World Series 2020 would not occur at the Rio or somewhere in Las Vegas. There was no belief that commerce and the bike would be shutting down. And tons of cardinals would be shutting down. Live poker would mostly be dead. At least for a while. Like... This really came out of left field, this pandemic. And that really made something like the Mike Postle scandal in late 2019 sort of yesterday's news. And people stopped paying that much attention. There wasn't that much to say about it anymore. But Justin gets that stupid statement and then dances around with it on Twitter and taunts people. Then, yeah, everyone's like, OK, F you then. We're going to we're going to get back on you guys. We're going to prove this once for all. So good. So I'll give you updates on that as it occurs. I expect this to really happen. I don't expect that this is going to fizzle out. I think this is something that they're serious about doing. I think it wouldn't look good if Galfon claimed they're going to do this and then just didn't go through with it. He also isn't doing the work with gathering the hand histories, so his part is not super time intensive, and that's not a criticism. I'm just saying that uh, 
you may think about how Run It Once took forever to launch. And I wouldn't put this in the same category because it's much, 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 much less work. He just basically has to get a bunch of hand histories and analyze them and comment on them. And organize the effort of doing so. So, And also Matt Burke, he's got his own separate efforts. I I think this is going to get done. This is what mistake... uh, Justin's making a big mistake here. And I said this last week. He's making a big mistake... By taunting everybody. He should have just gone away. He should have kept the statement close to the vest. And then brought it out privately whenever he was questioned. So let's say uh, you know, some neighbor of his reads something in the paper about it. And says, hey, Justin, read something in the paper about a cheating scandal and you're involved? And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. The, you know, look, look, here's this statement. Uh, it shows I wasn't involved. I was wrongly accused. Uh, you know, they, they, some people lost. They accused this guy of cheating in my game. He wasn't cheating. They didn't understand it. And, and look, even the plaintiff's attorney agrees I was right the whole way. Like, he could put that out there, and anyone who doesn't know much about this would totally accept it. Like, if I knew nothing about this, and Postle showed me the statement, not Postle, if, if, if Justin showed me the statement, i go, yeah, okay, that makes sense. So, like, he should have just held it as something he could present if he were ever questioned about it by future employers, by uh, future women he dates, or uh, whatever. Anyone that questions it, he now has something he can present. And Stones has something they can present if they're questioned about it. And that should have been it. They should not have done the victory lap on social media. They should not have taunted people on social media. They should not have attacked Veronica on social media. This just gets everybody mad again. It's just something you don't want to bring back to the forefront because you're not going to convince anybody. And this is where Justin seemed like a moron because how could Justin not have realized that nobody was going to buy this, that nobody's going to read that statement and go, oh, okay, Justin, you were innocent. Oh, well, if Mac Verstandig put out a statement that his law firm is satisfied you weren't involved and that it was it was tied to a monetary settlement, well, there's no way that was just uh, a statement being made so the case could be settled. There's no way that... Uh, they couldn't really mean that. Like, I, I don't know what he was thinking. But it seemed like he really believed that poker was going to take him back and believe that he wasn't involved and then vilify Veronica for saying bad things about him. But it totally backfired. And then when it backfired, originally he ran away. And then the next day he couldn't help himself and came back and trolled everybody. And as Eric said, it's understandable that he's pissed off. I'm not saying he deserves to be pissed off, but... If he believes that he was wronged, especially if he wasn't involved in the actual cheating, let's just say he was a moron and missed it and dismissed people like Veronica who brought it to him six months before it was brought out publicly. And let's say that's what happened. Let's say he even convinced himself that Mike wasn't cheating. Then it would make sense why Justin really believes that he was screwed and that he was wronged. But even if you think that, you don't come out and taunt everybody that feels very strongly about this whole thing. Because it's just going to make things worse. It's just going to put the spotlight back on you, and you're not going to convince anybody. And in a matter like that, you just walk away from it. You just try to get people to stop talking about it, not to make them talk about it more. And they had stopped talking about it for the most part until recently. Okay, so moving on. I want to tell you about the Wired Magazine article. If you haven't read it yet, you should. The Wired Magazine article 
was something that Veronica mentioned last week on the show was something was coming out. So it's not a surprise this came out. I was expecting it to come out. I didn't know what date it would be. It kept being pushed back. It actually should have come out earlier than it did. But it was released on September 21st. And it's an article about the entire situation. And the article is written for people who don't know poker that well. Though if you do know poker well, it's also useful to read. It's also something interesting to read. But I'm saying that you can give this to someone who doesn't know poker that well, and they can understand it, which is nice. Because as much as I like to read articles that are written by poker players, for poker players about it, I also like articles that I can show others to help them understand the scandal, where I don't have to explain a huge backstory and explain how poker works and how hands work and how uh, how bluffing really works and, and how win rates really work. Like This article does all that work for you. And it's laid out pretty clearly. It's a good article. It's at Wired.com. If you go to the Scam, Scandals, and Shadiness forum on Poker Fraud Alert and go to the thread about Stones and Mike Possel, at the bottom of page uh, 22, you can find the link to that Wired article. As I said, it's uh, a very good article. And the thing I like the most about it is the fact that it brings us backstories on both Veronica and Mike Possel. And this is despite the fact that Mike Possel would not cooperate with the article, according to Veronica, that he, neither he nor Justin would cooperate. But they still were able to piece together a backstory for Mike Possel. And I'm talking about a backstory that goes way before this game. And same for Veronica. I actually learned new things about both of them from reading this article. And once you read this article, you're going to say to yourself, wow, those people who are attacking Veronica on Twitter, they're real pieces of shit. Like, you'll you'll read what she has gone through in her life, and you'll feel very bad for her to take such abuse from Postle's friends and other trolls on Twitter. And I know there's people, by the way, who listen to this show who otherwise I like and otherwise I get along with who will bash Veronica. And, of course, you guys can choose to do what you want. I'm not your dad. But I hope that you would reconsider and not bash her anymore. You should read this article. You should use some common sense and think about, you know, is Possel likely guilty here? And if he is, did Veronica do something brave to come forward about this? Answer is, yes, she did. And then don't give her a hard time. Really, I. she does not deserve a hard time in this. She did something that was very tough that had a lot more downside to it than upside. Anyway, the funny thing is how the article begins. The first sentence is, Mike Postle was on another tear. The moon-faced 42-year-old. <laughs> the moon-faced 42-year-old. Oh, boy. They they call him moon face. That's funny. I don't even know what a moon face exactly is, but it's just kind of funny. It's like they're insulting him in the second sentence of the article. Anyway, the moon-faced 42-year-old was deep into a marathon poker session at Stone's Gambling Hall, a boxy glass and steel casino wedged between Interstate 80 and Popeye's in suburban Sacramento. It really is. I went there three years ago. And it is so nondescript. It does not look like a casino. It's it's nothing like pulling up to Commerce or the bike, where it's very clear you're pulling up to a casino. This is like just like a little building that's like 
It's just like a, a building. It's got its own parking lot, but it just looks like a normal business. It doesn't look casino-like at all, but whatever. I'm not going to read you the whole article. It's, it's pretty long, and you can go to Wired.com to read it. But I suggest you do if you have any interest in this story. It's not super long, but it's something I'm not going to read on radio anywhere near in its entirety. Let me jump to the part, though, about Veronica. 42-year-old Veronica Brill did not share sense, this sense of awe. She had been observing Puzzle up close for a while, both as an opponent at the table and a broadcaster, and she'd come to believe that there was a nefarious reason for his success. For months, she'd resisted mentioning her suspicions on the live stream, hoping that Stones would handle the matter behind the scenes. But the fold against Cordero, that's referring to Marley Cordero, struck her as so fishy that she could no longer keep quiet. Brill leaned back, gently shook her head, and took a half-step toward calling out, quote, God. You know, they referred to Apostle as uh, God and Jesus and everything like that. It doesn't make sense, she said, her soft monotone tinged with mockery. It's like he knows. It doesn't make sense. It's weird. And she said this during one of the streams. Sounding caught off guard by his co-host's skeptical remarks, Kelly, which is one of the other uh, commentators, uh, continued effusively, absolute insanity, guys, before managing to change the subject. Later that night, as she drove in silence toward her Bay Area home, Brill turned the broadcast over and over in her mind. Her insinuation about Apostle, though subtle, had the potential to cause a stir. Fellow players would gossip that jealousy had driven her to smear a more accomplished rival, a decent man who'd just come through a harrowing family drama. Gliding west on Interstate 80, Brill realized that she had no choice but to, to commit one of Poker's cardinal sins. So what is the sin Veronica committed? Like many others who spent huge chunks of time at Stones, Brill had long considered Postle a friend, a generous soul who exuded a puckish charm. Postle was the sort who'd pay for everyone else's drinks while regaling the bar with bawdy tales. But up until the summer of 2018, few of the pro players at Stones thought much of his poker prowess. He was playing well enough to support himself, it seemed, said Jake Rosensteel, a Sacramento pro, but none of us thought Mike was this great poker player. Everyone was, was, everyone was thus surprised when Possible began to dominate the casino's live-streamed Texas Hold'em game started in July 2018. The once middling Possible suddenly turned formidable, even taking thousands of dollars off big-name poker players during their swings through Northern California. As Possible's heater stretched over months, Stone's broadcast team did its best to turn him into a poker celebrity. Brill, a self-described analytics geek whose day job is building medical software, was among those who got clobbered by Possible at the table, and she served as a live stream commentator during much of her streak. That is important that Veronica has a day job. She is not a poker pro. By early 2019, she had seen enough to surmise that Possible's success didn't match, didn't make mathematical sense. She thought he was winning far too often, particularly for a player whose strategy didn't jive with Game Theory Optimal, or GTO, the prevailing strategy in Texas Hold'em today. The fundamental idea behind GTO is that there's a single best decision for every imaginable betting scenario, a decision that will maximize a player's winnings over time. In any given hand, a player who perfectly executes Game Theory Optimal may still lose, but in the course of thousands of hours of poker, a player who adheres to GTO at every moment is virtually guaranteed to come out ahead. So uh, it went on to say a little bit later in the article, Br Brill could detect no trace of a cer cerebral approach to poker in Postle's game. Time and time again, he made decisions that seemed to fly in the face of game theory optimal. 
The biggest oddity that stood out to Brill was the high rate at which Postle stayed in games prior to the flop, as measured by a statistic called voluntarily put in pot, or VPIP. Postle often stuck around with whole cards that would lead most elite players to fold, but he rarely seemed to be punished for his audacity, and Brill thought his, this might be because he was operating with more complete information than anyone else at the table. So you know the rest of this where she went to Justin and Justin dismissed it, so I'm not going to read that. But let me uh, get to some backstory on Veronica that they go into here. Growing up in Edmonton in the 1980s, Brill was always slightly embarrassed by her parents' struggle to assimilate to Canadian culture. See, I didn't even know she was from Canada. I knew she was uh, from Poland originally, but I didn't know that she lived in Canada before coming to California. The family had fled communist Poland when Veronica was six, and they lived in an an Austrian refugee camp before moving to Canada. Though he possessed an advanced degree in engineering, Veronica's father had to work as a janitor in his new homeland. That's pretty brutal. He and Veronica's mother both worked punishing hours and refused to treat themselves to even small luxuries. When she was old enough to take charge of her own social life, Brill indulged her yen to perform. In her 20s, she competed in beauty, beauty pageants and spun hip-hop at Edmonton's clubs as DJ Lady V. I had no idea about this. I didn't know she was once DJ Lady V. She took a meandering route through university and became a licensed practical nurse, an occupation that enabled her to buy her first home at 28. The place came with a broken satellite dish that picked up three channels, one of which showed British poker nonstop. To her surprise, Brill found herself glued to these games in the wee hours of each night. Now, this was about, uh, I think, like 14 years ago or something. I think she's like 42. So this was mid-2000s when poker was constantly on TV. She was captivated not just by the mathematical intricacies of the action, but also by the player's attitude toward money. Growing up so poor, my parents pinched every single penny, Brill says. I watched poker players take their money and turn it into a tool. They were able to separate themselves from that monetary value, and they were able to grow this chip stack and use it as a tool and then invest in themselves. After seeing a boyfriend lose entire weekends to poker, and that's, that wasn't written very well, though what they mean is after seeing a boyfriend play poker for entire weekends. Brill was inspired to teach herself the game through trial and error at a casino in West Edmonton. Soon she was trouncing the well-paid roughnecks who traveled down from Fort McMurray oil fields with thousands of dollars to burn. She'd often take her winnings to Las Vegas and lose it all to stronger players, the price of a poker novice must pay to get better at their craft. In 2008, Brill moved to Del Rio, Texas, to marry a U.S. Air Force fighter pilot that she'd met while taking part in a training exercise in Alberta. Four years later, the couple relocated to Sacramento when her husband was promoted to fly U-2 spy planes out of a nearby base. So that explains how she became part of the Sacramento poker scene. See, kind of a long journey to get there. First, at the age of six which I think was uh, like early 80s, she came to the to Canada from Poland, lived in a refugee camp. Her parents were poor, especially because her dad couldn't get a job that was commensurate with his edu- education. Then uh, she eventually moved to uh, Texas after getting married to a fighter pilot who then moved them both to Sacramento because of the base that the guy was going to be flying the U-2 spy planes from. Though she had little professional experience outside nursing, Brill convinced a local hospital system to hire her for an IT job. She was put in charge of building software that streamlines how medical orders are processed. 
The new career sparked a deeper interest in advanced analytics, and in 2013, she began pursuing an online master's degree in predictive analytics from Northwestern University. At the time, she was several months pregnant with her first child, a boy due to be due to be born that June. That is June 2013. So she was pregnant in 2013. Remember, she was married then. Brill's life was transformed by the arrival of her son, David, whose genetic luck could scarcely have been worse. The infant boy has had lysencephaly, a rare disorder that caused him to have frequent seizures. Brill devoted herself to caring for David, who doctors said was unlikely to survive until his first birthday. On the infrequent occasion she was able to leave the house, she headed for local casinos where she could lose herself in the rigid logic of Texas Hold'em. Stone's gambling hall became her favorite haunt. Brill noticed that Stone's, which had opened in July 2014, was trying to boost its visibility by live-streaming its most competitive games. If Stone's could build a digital audience, top pros would be more likely to play at the casino and sing its praises on social media. By the way, that, that is what was happening. They, they were doing quite well with this until the scandal. The gregarious Brill cajoled Stone's into letting her host a monthly live-streamed game. She proved to be such a magnetic presence at the table that Stone's asked her to work as a regular commentary regular commentator for other games. Brill was a natural adept, uh, adept at alternating between ribald jokes and deft observations. Few at the casino knew how much she was struggling with her son's illness or what an alarming amount of red wine she was consuming to cope. Stones became one of the one place I could go to not feel any pain or just to numb it for a little bit. David made it to his third birthday. This was in uh, 2016 and seemed to be thriving, but then a devastating complication arose. He was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer, leading to his death in December 2016. Let's stop here for a second. That is terrible. That is terrible. Anybody here who has kids knows how terrible that is. If you didn't have kids, can you imagine how terrible that is? You have one child, and this happens? You know, I think it's so fucked up that these scumbags, you know, she's doing the right thing. For the community. She never accused him. She went to, you know, Joey and, and, you know, and whatever happened to get things rolling. And for these, for all these people to like go after, it's just so disgusting. Yeah. And especially you read stuff. They need to get smacked, seriously. Yeah. You read stuff like this and you just feel bad. I know, like, this doesn't have to do directly with the Apostle thing or even indirectly, but uh, you look at, she went through all this here. And you go, okay, she tried to do something nice here, and now you're stressing her out with this? I mean, like, give her a break. Let her let her relax in life for once. For I mean, sure. This I is, mean, this... and just, I mean, so impressive how she came to the country and the parents and where she is today. I mean, plus all the hardships, but just these motherfuckers. Yeah, I really, I, so, you so, know, yeah, and, yeah, I mean, it's, and it's just so sad to think about this story. And I, I had known that she had a child that passed away at the age of three. And I, I knew this only because a troll was harassing her about it. In fact, I'm about to read about that. It's mentioned in the article. If, if the female troll, I even know who it is. I, it's not one I've met personally. Who is it? It's just some. It's a former dealer at uh, Stones, a woman from San Diego, who, who worked at Stones at one point. Uh, it's not a known name in any way. I just. Uh, but not from one oh one from that. Uh, what was what's that place in San Diego? Oh, Ocean's Eleven. No, she no she she went over to San Diego after working at Stones, so she wasn't a dealer there, as far as I know, in San Diego, but. Uh, she kind of fell off the scene as soon as she got 
a very bad reaction for what she did. But that that was how I found out about it. Is just some really nasty things were tweeted about that, which I couldn't believe. But that's when I found out that that Veronica once had a, a three year old child who passed away, and I thought, wow, that's got to be hard. And uh, yeah, she she had this child who was sick, and then seemed to get the hope that he was doing better, and made it way past when they said he would. And she thought, okay, maybe he'll be able to live out a normal life. And then she finds out he has cancer, which wasn't the original problem. And then he passes away in uh, December 2016. So as you might imagine, after that, uh, her marriage followed as far as uh, not the, the, the marriage ended because of this, which happens a lot when these type of situations occur. So it said, In uh, December 2016, Brill's marriage soon failed, a casualty of the couple's overwhelming grief. Desperate for some form of solace, she retreated even deeper into the booze-soaked poker scene at Stone's. And and by the way, they're getting this information from her. So she actually opened up to this Wired reporter, knowing he would print this, basically admitting that she drank a whole lot in those days, that she... It's kind of implying that at that point in her life that she was becoming an alcoholic because of all the stress, which is understandable when you have that going on with your kid and then eventually he passes away and then your marriage fails because of it. Uh, So that's a very sad story. And I know it doesn't have to do with the puzzle thing, but the puzzle thing happened only less than three years later. So you read this and you go, let's not troll this person. (laughs) Of all people, just not to troll. Just don't do it. I know. See, this is the problem. Is I know there's some people that are not friends with Possible and don't really give a shit about Possible, but are just trolling Veronica because they just feel like messing around. They just want to mess around on social media and they think it's funny. This isn't funny because, one, she did the right thing. And two, she's been through so much hell already. You should really stop. I expect it from Possible's friends. I expect it from Justin Caradis. But if you don't have a connection to these people... There's especially no reason to do it. And you, you shouldn't do it no matter what. But uh, if you don't have a connection to it, you really shouldn't do it because she's been through so much here. And, and she did the right thing here. It's not just – it's not like someone did a bad thing and like, oh, they had a hard life. Someone did a good thing and also had a hard life. So don't troll them. Come on. So anyway, here's here's a, the next part of the article talking about one of the trolls who's since deleted herself from Twitter. On October 1st – this is uh, 2019 – As Brill was about to be savaged as a monster who'd neglected her dying son, one of the biggest poker names was busy rallying to her cause. Joey Ingram, a well-known player and host of the Poker Life podcast, had taken a keen interest in the video Brill had assembled of of Postle's questionable hands. I'll I'll skip by this about Joey Ingram because you guys know that part. See, now I've lost it. It it was somewhere in the article where it mentioned further about the person trolling her about this. But yeah, it's what it said there, that someone trolled her about the death of her son, like that she was happy it happened and couldn't wait for it to happen. Something really nasty like that, which totally wasn't true either. Like, Like No parent feels that way. Someone just wrote that to be really, really nasty. And it's in the article somewhere. I'm not exposing any secret or anything. If you scroll through this, the rest of the article, it described everything else that happened. But then there's a part where it talks about Postle's backstory, which I didn't know all of this either. The interview that is about the interview the Postle had with Mattisau in October. The interview did little to quell the poker world's growing belief that Postle was guilty as charged. Strangers started showing up at his house in a subdivision near Stones. I, I don't even believe this. 
they would bang on his door at odd hours and threaten him with violence. See, people love to say this. When people have done bad things and they're shamed for it, they love to say, oh, people are threatening me. Oh, I'm getting threatened with death. They try to turn themselves into the victim. And often these stories are made up or greatly exaggerated. I, I don't believe people actually came down and banged on the doors and threatened to kill him. I want to see these police reports. I, I'm sure Possible called the police if this happened. I would if someone's banging on my door saying they're going to kill me. I'd also get my gun out and be, <laughs> be ready to defend myself. But I'd also be dialing 911 and saying, get over here and help me. So I have a feeling there is no police reports or police phone calls about this matter. I think Possible probably made this up. It's just my opinion, but that's what I'm guessing. Possible began to worry not just about the future of the only career he'd ever known, but also about the safety of his eight-year-old daughter. Even as a child in Wisconsin, gambling was central to Mike Possible's life. Games he played with his five siblings, I didn't even know he had five siblings, that's kind of crazy, often involved a wager. When they played Monopoly, for example, real money changed hands. Possible also invented games of skill and chance, including a prize wheel that he installed at the roller rink his father owned. Kids would pay 50 cents a spin for a chance to hit the $5 jackpot. But as Andrew Possible, one of Mike's brothers, recounted on a Stone's live stream in August 2019, the game was rigged. My brother put some quarters behind the wheel, so when you spun it, you'd always get close to the $5 bill. If there's an angle for my brother to do it, he'll do it. That was from his brother. That was from Andrew Possel about Mike. If there's an angle for my brother Mike to do, he'll do it. Well, I think that answers that. <laughs> What's he going to say? His brother's now biased too? And keep in mind, nobody cooperated on the Possel side with this article, to my knowledge. This was grabbed off of the Stone Stream. One of the Stone Streams where Andrew appeared to talk about Mike. At the time, they didn't know this cheating scandal would happen and that it would later be used so people could understand more about Mike Possel. When he turned 18, as Andrew recalled, Possel got a job with one of the Indian casinos near his home. He started making change for customers before becoming a dealer, a gig that deepened his interest in poker. In the early 2000s, he moved south in the casinos of Tunica, Mississippi, a poker hotbed. He soon found that, given his natural analytical gifts, he could make more money as a player than a dealer. By mid-decade, he was winning big tournaments. In one, he claimed nearly $120,000 in prize money. He was ahead of the curve back then, says Michael Weyer, who came in second to Postle in 2005. He didn't amass that amount of chips by being a dummy. While riding high in Tunica, Postle joined the masthead of a poker magazine called Rounder Life. He He wound up dating one of the models featured in the publication, the Las Vegas born daughter of a professional bowler. Hmm. Remember I said I wanted to know the story about Possel's ex-wife? I want to know the backstory here? Well, we learned some of that in this article. It's very interesting. So I also did not know that he actually met his ex-wife through Rounder Life. He was part of Rounder Life, and they hired some hot chick to pose for pictures, and Mike met her, and they ended up getting married. And she was in Las Vegas and was the daughter of a professional bowler. When she became pregnant in 2010, the couple moved to Sacramento so Postle's parents, who had relocated there, could help take care of the child. A year after giving birth, Postle's girlfriend told him she'd been diagnosed with a brain tumor that required a risky operation and that she wanted to get married before she died. Two days after the couple's hasty wedding in December 2011, Postle's now wife had her supposed surgery. For months afterward, she wore bandages on her head and spoke spoke of undergoing follow-up radiation treatments that her husband was not allowed to attend. But the brain tumor story was a lie. 
An MRI taken just after, just over a week before her, quote, surgery showed that her brain was normal. Before Postle became aware of how thoroughly he'd been fooled, he also learned that his wife was struggling with serious mental health and substance abuse issues. The couple tried to work out their problems in therapy, but the marriage was doomed. Postle filed for an annulment in December 2015, and Postle's ex-wife, who has changed her name, is now engaged, told me, as the author of this article, that she regrets some of the way she acted while drinking to excess during the marriage. She describes her relationship with Postle as, quote, toxic, and said that towards the end, she was desperate to get, quote, out of the gambling lifestyle. Her name is uh, Sabina Ott, by the way. Someone told me her name is actually Stephanie Ott, but she's the one who reappeared after, like, 10 years off Twitter to tweet to Veronica to say, I want to talk to you. I had heard that Postle had full custody, and I had always wondered, what was that mom like to where Postle, of all people, gets full custody? Because courts do not like to give 100% custody to the dad. Sometimes they'll do it to the mom, but when they, they don't want to take a child away from its mom. They don't want it to where the child doesn't see its mom or, or doesn't live with the mom at all. So the mom has to be real screwed up for them to award custody to the dad. And when the dad has their own stability issues, if the dad still gets custody, you know that the mom is real screwed up and often it has to do with drugs. I mentioned, I think it was on last show, that Gavin Smith, who of course has since passed away, he had full custody of his two kids. And in fact, he was able to leave the state with them, which was crazy to me. But his ex-wife must have also been like a real piece of work with real problems because Gavin Smith with his drinking problem, you would think he would not be getting hundred percent custody, but he did. Now in Gavin's defense, I heard that he really loved the kids a lot and uh, treated them very well, but nevertheless, that was one of the cases where I was very surprised to hear the dad get full custody. An ugly custody dispute ensued, says the article filled with restraining orders and accusations of domestic violence on both sides. In 2016, Postle's soon-to-be ex-wife took their daughter to Idaho to live with her new boyfriend. Postle spent a small fortune to press for his daughter's return, a financial burden in the best of times, but one that he must have felt even more acutely because his career was on the downswing. In the years since his move to California, poker had been overtaken by studious practitioners of Game Theory Optimal, some of whom hold science and engineering degrees. Less scholarly players like Postle found themselves eking out a living at low-stakes tables. The past five or six years, you have to constantly improve your game, otherwise you lose, says Jonathan Sofin, the poker journalist. Everybody today, they're studying Game Theory Optimal, they're watching training videos and reading books. The field of players who don't study, they've mostly gone broke. It is true the game has evolved. Even Limit Hold'em has evolved a lot in the last uh, 10 years or so. The game I play now is kind of different than it was before. I've had to adjust certain strategies. If I played the way I did uh, 10 years ago, I'd lose. Postle was still tangling with his ex-wife in family court when his heater at Stones began in July 2018. His winnings came in handy as he continued paying legal fees. Over the next several months, to Postle's relief, the courts agreed he could have sole physical custody of his daughter, and his ex-wife was granted unsupervised visits. After nearly a decade of heartache and hard luck, all seemed to be going right in the in Postle's world. So that creates kind of a motive, and that's what the article's trying to get out here, that he was being crushed with legal fees to get his daughter back and to get full custody, and right around then, he started to have this streak. A similar explanation was offered, by the way, 
for the UB cheating. The UB cheating was rumored to have began because Greg Pearson needed funds to help his wife, who was accused of having sex with a 16-year-old student. And rather than just leaving her, as most guys would have done, Greg Pearson uh, is alleged, never proven, but alleged that Greg Pearson uh, started engaging in this cheating to raise funds for his wife's legal defense. Later, the cheating was by Russ Hamilton in order to raise funds for the Ultimate Blackjack Tour, and that's kind of more clear. But uh, Pearson definitely had some involvement. We even hear that on some tapes that Travis McCarr provided. He doesn't mention his ex-wife in these tapes, but uh, that is a theory that's been put out there. And remember, Pearson was the one in charge of security there, and uh, you saw how that went. That's why it's... Yeah, and I was going to say that too, Druff. I mean, it seemed pretty clear from back then that he, that, that was the trigger event, exactly like what happened here with the why this guy needed the money, Possel. Yeah, and that's what people will sometimes do. Now, Possel, as his brother said, is someone who will always uh, take an angle when he can. So you, you combine someone who doesn't have the moral decency to not do this and a need to do it, and that can kind of push them over the edge to where they're, they're willing to try it and willing to do it. But of course, this is a theory. It's just a guess that it may not be the reason it started. It may be a coincidence or it may only be part of it. But uh, that is a good theory as to what was going on here. Possel may even see it like that he was doing the right thing. Because remember, he was trying to get sole custody of his daughter. So the way he so – obviously, Possel loves his daughter. If he didn't give a crap, he'd say, okay, you know, let my, let my druggy ex-wife take her. But Possel obviously saw that he felt his ex-wife was very unstable and had uh, substance abuse problems, which he even admitted to the reporter here of, of Wired, and that he didn't want his daughter around this woman. And I can understand that. If I were in that situation, if I had a kid with someone who was like that, I would not want my kid uh, living with that person even half the time. I wouldn't trust it. I wouldn't trust my kid's safety in in those situations. I would also worry about who my uh, ex was going to bring around. And I I would be very worried about this. And I also would be trying to get uh, sole custody in that type of situation. So Mike was probably concerned for his daughter. And I'm not trying to defend him, by the way. I'm just telling you what might have been in his head. And uh, he he fights, fights, fights. I want to get sole custody. And it's very hard to do, as I mentioned before. And maybe... When it came time to find a way to get that money back that he spent and that he was still needy to spend and maybe didn't have any more, he thought, okay, well, if my option is rip off poker players and be able to keep this fight up to keep my daughter and uh, get her away from my crazy ex and my druggy ex, uh, and if the option is that where I have to cheat poker players or not cheat poker players and possibly my wife wins because I can't afford my legal representation anymore, uh, I'm going to choose my daughter and cheat poker players. Like that, that may be the way he rationalized it. And that's not you, – you can't do that. Like even if you have, you have a noble reason for why you need the money, you cannot rip others off. You cannot cheat other people to get it. That's your problem if you need well, the money. Well, and Druff, that's how, if in fact it did go down this way, and you know, all the legal things 
that's how he could have gotten sucked his digestion into it and said, look, my kid, blah, blah, blah. Right. That's made a, up some things. I just need to do it for a month to get the legal fees. Then he's sucked in. Then I'm going to drop the dime on you if, if you, you know, if you don't go along with it. Maybe. Yeah, that's a good theory that, that he could have, you know, the two of them were friends and he, he kept bitching to Justin about how he legitimately felt about the fight to get his daughter and all the, headache he was having with his ex and uh, and Justin may have felt bad for him. Justin may have thought, hey, you know, look, his wife did fake having cancer. His wife uh, pressured him to marry her in the first place because of this fake cancer. And she had a bad drinking problem and she had a bad substance abuse problem. And so, so probably Postle was put through hell with all this and Justin probably felt bad for him. And he's like, oh, crap, I have no more money to keep fighting this, and I don't want my daughter with her. I love her so much. I just, you know, How can I have her over there with that crazy woman? And who knows what's going to happen to her there? I don't know what to do. And and uh, so, so it's possible Justin did feel bad for him, or if it wasn't Justin, maybe whoever the accomplice was. If there was a different accomplice and Justin had nothing to do with it, whoever was the accomplice at Stone's may have – felt bad and said, okay, what's well, the lesser of two evils? We can either just cheat some poker players, many of whom can afford it, and, and save Postle's kid, or, or not do it and Postle may lose this legal battle. So they, it could be something like that for someone who was close to him that thought maybe this was the better option. And I, I, again, I'm not doing this to create a picture where Postle's sympathetic because when it all comes down to it, you cannot cheat other people to solve your personal problems. That's That's... You just can't do it. It is not your right to steal from others to get money for things that you think you need. Even if it's stuff you really do need, you have to get it yourself honestly. You cannot steal from others to get it. It just uh, it doesn't work that way. That is not the other people's problem. And, hell, when you steal from them, who knows what they're going without? Maybe, maybe they won't be able to afford their lawyers now. <laughs> maybe they're going to go without super important things. Maybe they can't pay their rent. You know, there's so many terrible things that can happen from someone who loses all their money when you cheat out, when you cheat them, you can't just say, "Well, it's most important for me to have that money." No, you you never can rip people off. It's, there's never an excuse, except if they already ripped you off and you're ripping them off back, and you're 100 percent sure they ripped you off and you're getting them back. That's a different situation. But just ripping off innocent people, there's never, ever, ever an excuse to do it, no matter how good the reason is. You need the money. So, uh, going on here. As the Stone scandal gained national attention in October 2019, the conventional wisdom held that Postle's results were so anomalous that the something hinky may have occurred, but there's still a giant hole in the case against, quote, God. How could he have gotten his opponent's whole card information in real time? The man best equipped to answer that question was an Australian named Andrew Milner, the inventor of the RFID-equipped table that makes live stream poker possible. A former IT worker who plays Texas Hold'em as a hobby, Milner cobbled together his first table in, 20, in 2008 with an eye toward using it as a training tool. But he found there was a huge demand from casinos who sort of sought a low-cost way to reveal whole cards to spectators so they could broadcast games via the Internet. See, I never knew this. I never knew about this Andrew Milner guy and that he invented this type of table they could use for live streams. Justin Caratus, Stone's tournament director, called Milner in October and asked whether – the RFID table had vulnerabilities that Postle could have exploited. Milner all but ruled out a theory that Postle may have tapped into the signal that's relayed from the table sensors to the room that serves as the casino's broadcast center. 
That data is encrypted using the same technology employed by online banks, and it seems unlikely that Apostle had the technical skill to overcome such strong security. I agree. I, I've seen no indication that Apostle was, like, super technical. He wasn't uh, incompetent with, with uh, technology. There, there's been some indications that he has had some experience with that, but uh, this guy's not a master hacker. It's very unlikely that Apostle broke in in some way. Unless it was through a low-tech way, like seeing passwords written somewhere in stones and just copying them down and logging in. Like, that, that's possible. I, I doubt he hacked it. Miller did think it was possible that it was possible that Apostle had installed a tiny webcam on the wall of the broadcast center. I doubt that. Point, pointed at a PC screen that showed the wall of the broadcast center. Uh, or, sorry, pointed at a PC that showed the live stream without delay. But the likeliest scenario, he suggested, involved an inside job. I asked Kuretis, do you trust your people, Milner recalls? It doesn't matter how secure your environment is if you can't trust the guys running it. All other measures are irrelevant. And that's true. That is true. So I'm just about sure there was some kind of accomplice. Maybe it was Justin. Maybe it was not Justin. Maybe Justin was just in denial the whole time. But if it wasn't Justin, it was somebody else there. That's... Just about certain. Again, unless they were careless with their passwords and Postle was allowed into the control room at some point and he saw the passwords and memorized them and quickly typed them into his phone notepad and then uh, logged in without their knowledge. But then they should have seen it in the logs. I don't know what kind of logs he keeps, but I have to think they're some kind of log. So I think he had help. That's what I think. Anyway, you can read the rest of the article. But interesting backstories, huh? About Apostle's ex-wife, about kind of creating what might be a possible motive, about Veronica and everything she went through prior to this whole thing. Very interesting stuff in Wired. I enjoyed the article. I even sent it to my girlfriend, who knows this story, but isn't a poker expert by any means. She's never even played poker. In fact, she didn't understand how poker worked at all until she was with me. She knew it existed, but she had no interest in it, so she never followed it at all until we were together in 2009. So so Ben's played more poker than her? That's true, yeah. In fact, he played more wow. poker than she did as a one-year-old. By the time he was one, he, pay, he played more poker than his mom, and that still holds true today. Yeah, his mom's never played a hand of poker. Not one. And she has no interest that's fine. I, in fact, not to get too far off topic here, but I never really had a desire to date another poker player. I kind of felt like doing this would be opening up a lot of potential drama that I wouldn't have if I was dating somebody who's not in poker. I was like, I can't date someone who's against poker or against me playing it and who can't make certain accommodations to the lifestyle that comes with playing poker. But I don't think I'd want someone who's actually a poker player. There's like so many reasons not to. Yeah, there's a few advantages to it, but there's so many disadvantages. There, there's, and I don't mean uh, like someone who likes to play occasionally or play recreationally. Like the, the girl I was with before my current girlfriend, uh, Miri, who I was with in the 2000s, uh, she played a little like limit hold'em recreationally. And we'd, we'd go to some low-limit games occasionally, play $3, $6 limit hold'em. But she she was not by any means a poker player. She would just 
play for fun. And so that's fine. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like a, a poker pro or, or a very active amateur. I don't think I'd want it. And I, I never dated anybody who was of that description. I met a girl off uh, True Poker almost 20 years ago. And we spent a weekend together, but that was it. And even she wasn't a poker player. She was more of a slot advantage player. Okay, so next possible topic. I want to read you the article, or at least part of the article, that Mac Verstandig wrote for Poker News. He wrote an editorial kind of explaining some things about the case from his perspective. It's not all that much he can say because of restrictions regarding the settlement. But he did write this, and I think it's interesting to hear and to read. So this appeared in Poker News. And he sometimes works with Poker News uh, in various ways, just to give commentary on things or analysis on things. And I, I don't know if they approached him about it or if he approached them, but whatever it was, he wrote this article. And I thought it's something you guys would like to hear, and I'll give my own commentary on the article itself. This is an article by Mac for Poker News. September 19th, he wrote it. Commensurate with the resolution of a lawsuit against Stone's Gambling Hall, a number of my clients and I recently signed public statements concerning the lack of evidence of Stone's complicity in alleged cheating in various live-streamed poker games. Although there are legal limitations to what I may publicly share about the lawsuit... I would be remiss not to offer some insight into how my name appeared beneath those well-circulated words and what has played out since. Now, let me stop right here. He definitely wrote this in response to Justin going around Twitter and waving this in everyone's face and some of the hate that Mac has received since. He was My guess is he was not planning to write this op-ed, but he felt he had to say something because this is kind of the first negative exposure that Mac Possible – not Mac Possible. Sorry, Mac. Mac Verstanda got – Prior to this, everyone was very positive on Mac, and some people have turned negative. I'm not negative. I'm still positive on the guy, but uh, there's some who have turned negative towards him, and this is the first criticism he's ever gotten. So I think he felt he had to say something. He went on to write, let's start with the case itself. California has had a doctrine prohibiting the use of courts to collect on gaming disputes dating back to before the Civil War. And uh, Eric Benzamokin mentioned that on the segment we had with him. There are extreme and horrifying examples of California cardrooms supposedly not paying jackpots, allegedly knowing patrons are being cheated, and engaging in reckless behavior. Patrons often recovered nothing, nothing at all in these cases because of that doctrine. These include very recent and very jarring cases, some of which involve casinos many of us frequent. I've never fully understood why these cases, especially the ones where the casino allegedly refused to pay a jackpot, did not garner much publicity. California's doctrine has had cruel consequences too many times. By the way, he's referring to Indian casinos, and he's right. So many abuses of customers occur at Indian casinos, and he's right. They don't get much publicity, and they should. And the whole Indian casino situation in California, and really everywhere, needs to be redone. I mean, completely redone. It's a disaster. Disaster and very player hostile. But that's a whole different subject. He writes, we took a serious run at overturning this doctrine. We filed a lengthy brief making several arguments. For those who are curious, I hope you take the time to read it, and he links it. And the court actually ruled in our favor somewhat. 
For the first time in California history, we were allowed to proceed with a suit for gaming-centric losses. The one catch, though, is the recovery for most claims would be capped at the rake collected. And the rake, despite familiar player groans about it being too high, did not add up to a particularly noteworthy sum. In fact, it was to borrow a frequently used term of late, nominal. By the way, guess guess who called the settlement nominal in the first place? That was me. (laughs) So I said it, and uh, then all of Postle's buddies started repeating it. They were so happy to hear me say that. And then uh, Stones took it on and started calling it nominal. So that's funny. Not that it's a, an original term in any way that's frequently used, but I'm pretty sure that like everyone started saying that because I started saying it, and then the Apostle group grabbed it from me, and then Mac used it here. While this was playing out in court, we were communicating with counsel for Stones and Justin Caritas behind the scenes. When appropriate and subject to proper legal protections, substantive and material information was shared between and amongst us. That is not to say that I have invested with omniscience or any of Miss Cleo's powers, but as to safely point out, my ultimate statement followed only access to materials outside the public sphere. So was the statement of part of settlement? Yes. Have I made statements pursuant to amicable resolutions before? Yes. Did I execute the statement because I know it to be in the best interest of my clients agreeing to settle? Yes. Was the statement carefully worded to ensure I would not be signing my name to a falsity? Yes. Well, I mean, okay. I I guess this is mostly true. You see what he's trying to do here. He's trying to say, hey, guys, I know I put out a statement that pisses you guys off, but this is kind of standard. This is what you have to do to get settlements done. You've got to understand that. And I carefully worded it to where I wasn't putting down anything that wasn't true. Okay, but it comes off like, you're totally saying Stones and Caritas were innocent and you're satisfied with it. And even Stones itself and Justin himself said this is unusual. The Sack B said this was unusual. It is unusual. So I don't think that statement should have been made to such an extreme. Now, if your clients demanded it, then I guess you had to do it. But it looked like you advised them from the email. I said, it looked like you advised them to accept this and didn't tell them that this is going to have some fallout, and I think you should have. That's my opinion. I know I'm not an attorney, but that's what I think you should have done. I'm glad you recovered some money. It is true that for the first time that someone has won something related to a gambling loss type of case in California, and that's great, but this was not worth it. What you gave Stones was not worth 40 k Now, Eric Benzamokin brought up a good point that perhaps Mac didn't expect this. And I said this also last week, that he didn't know that Justin was going to go nuts like this on Twitter. And he's dealing with the other side's attorneys who were acting very professionally. And uh, yeah, it, it just looks like kind of standard settlement stuff. And you may not think about this happening. But on the other hand, I could have predicted this. I could have totally seen this. Because Stones has been arrogant the whole way. Justin has been arrogant the whole way. Remember at the beginning, before he went quiet, he was being very arrogant. I I kind of expected this would happen. So I, I do think he should have advised the clients that this was likely. And I'm sure he regrets this now. I'm sure he regrets the whole thing. I'm sure he doesn't want to... I'm sure he's not happy he took this case. It cost him a ton of time. He definitely lost money on it. When I say lost money, I don't mean that he, he uh, spent more than 15 k out of pocket. But as far as time spent on this... 
way, way more than 15k worth of time. And that also took away from other legal work he could have been doing, which would have been a lot more profitable. And then there were some real expenses. So, and by the way, I found out the settlement amount, uh, not the settlement, I found out the contingency fee. Remember I said last week 35%? Well, it wasn't 35%, but it was close to 35%. Let me just say that. It was close to 35 My 35 guess was very good. <laughs> and by the way, I was standard. I'm, this is not a criticism. The, the, I will say that the contingency fee is very standard and typical. While there can be a range, it's right in that range, so I'm not criticizing the contingency percentage at all. It was something very normal. But you see what he's doing with this article. He's trying to explain to everybody, hey, you know, I made a statement. It doesn't mean I totally believe it, but I, I made sure to word it in a way to write and say anything false, and this is what you got to do to get paid. And I agree, but there, there are other ways to go about it, in my opinion. He finishes by saying, the statement is notably silent as to Mr. Postle. This is ne- neither coincidence nor drafting error. So he's reminding everybody he didn't say Postle was innocent. But we're not talking about Postle. We're talking about Stones and Caritas. Yeah, you, you didn't exonerate Postle. I'll give you that. You did not make it clear or even imply that there was no cheating. But it did very strongly state that Caritas and Stones were not involved. And I think that statement is too strong because I don't think we can say that. I don't think we know. I don't see a reason to make such a statement. Uh, I mean, I know why you did it, but I like absent of a settlement, I don't think it's fair to make such a statement that you're satisfied that Justin Caritas wasn't involved. I will tell you right now, I'm not satisfied that he was involved or wasn't involved. I'm not satisfied either way because I don't know. It's a, there's no way to tell. I'm satisfied to say that either he was incompetent or was involved. That I'm satisfied to say. I will say that over and over. Justin Caritas was either incompetent or involved. I will say that. But I will not say I'm satisfied he was involved, and I'm not going to say I'm satisfied he wasn't involved. That's just too hard to tell. He finished by saying, A final observation, poker is a game that tends to reveal much of one's character with some modicum of precision. This affair has been a stark reaffirmation of that core truth. I admire greatly my clients who elected to resolve their claims after a court capped their potential recovery, and I admire equally my clients who did not for their own respective reasons. So he's also trying to put out an olive branch to the clients that were unhappy about the way it all went down and that didn't take the settlement that he understands, which I believe. I think he does understand. He's not a dumb guy. I mean, it, Max is a smart guy. He he totally knows all this. It, it, it's nothing that happened here that I disagree with has anything to do with... Uh, Mac not knowing what was going on. It just, uh, there's just a difference in how I feel one should handle uh, advising people to take settlements when there's other implications involved that are non-monetary. That's my only problem here. Everybody else's stated problems, I don't really agree. So that was Mac's article in Poker News. How should you feel about him going forward? I mean, fine. It's, it's This didn't work out the way he wanted or the plaintiffs wanted, but that's the way court works. Sometimes it works well for you. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you do better than you really deserve to. Sometimes you do worse than you deserve to. When I say deserve, I mean morally. Even sometimes legally. 
legally, I understand what happened here. I, I don't even feel the wrong decision was made legally. Morally, it sucks. Morally, they should have won a lot more. But they didn't. And by the way, California law is written. I understand why. I agree with him that California law needs a ton of reform when it comes to gambling and casinos. And that there should be a lot more publicity about the abuses that take place at casinos, mostly Indian casinos. And by the way, not mentioned in the article, but I want to say also the California Bureau of Gambling is very, very weak. Very weak. All it cares about is collecting money. It does not care about players. It is not uh, a player-friendly gambling commission like Nevada Gaming. Nevada Gaming If you are a player and you have an issue in a Nevada casino, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you can call them to come down, and they have the power of law enforcement. They are law enforcement. They can actually arrest people. They don't need to call the cops. They are the cops. And they can force casinos to do things. And they will act in the interest of players. California is not like that. You don't have the same thing in California. There is a Bureau of Gaming in California, but it's very weak and they really only care about things related to uh, the money they collect and which games are spread. That's really all they care about. So if you have a consumer issue with the way a casino treats you, if you get screwed by a casino, they will not care. And it sucks. And this has been abused very badly. Mostly by Indian casinos, but also by card rooms. Even commerce. So... That needs reform. It needs major reform. So Mac is very right about that, even though it's only part of this whole thing, but definitely true. Do I think that they had a major victory as far as changing California law and the way the and that the, this was historic that people recovered their rake and this is the first time someone succeeded to get back gambling losses in a California lawsuit? No. Not really. Because this is about rake. And that doesn't open a lot for other lawsuits. It's not like this is a landmark case that is going to be referred to and gamblers are now going to be more powerful to sue casinos in California. They're not. This is going to have very little impact. I mean, great job for getting something, but I, I just think the price in getting that was not worth it to have that type of statement flaunted in everybody's faces. Now, maybe Mac should say he was playing 4D chess and that he put out this statement knowing that Justin Caritas couldn't help himself and would run all over Twitter and flaunt it in everybody's faces and just be a real asshole about it. And that would rile up the poker community to where big names in poker would put together an effort to finally expose what really happened through careful analysis once and for all. And that had Mac not put out that strong statement that none of this would have happened. So thank you, Mac. That's what he should have said in the Poker News article. He should have said, you guys may think I didn't know what I was doing by saying that Justin Caritas and Stones were innocent, but in addition to getting the settlement for my clients, I also tricked Justin into running to Twitter and making a fool of himself and getting Phil Galfond and Matt Berkey to do very, very complete analysis of all the hands played, which otherwise wouldn't have happened, guys. You must trust me, even if you do not trust my methods. That's what he should have said. Okay, no more apostle stuff. Let's move on. 
Let's talk about Mason Malmuth. I got banned. I got banned from 2 plus 2. I'll give you some history. Goes back many years. In 2008, I was a moderator on Neverwind Poker. Neverwind Poker was actually then owned by Poker News, by the way. I wasn't technically an owner of it. I was getting disbursements of a very small percentage of their gross revenue from the site. I was not actually a real owner of it. And uh, it was owned by Poker News. My first ban on 2 Plus 2 goes back to 2008, and it was a guilt by association ban. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole story. If you're interested, you can go back in the old archives of 2 Plus 2 and find it. But it involved David Skolansky and a poker player named Brandy Hawbaker, a young woman who unfortunately committed suicide in 2008. And it involved a, a girl who was living with David Skolansky. It involved some emails. Anyway, I had nothing to do with the whole thing. I was just a mod on Never Win Poker. And Brian Mikon was the one who was involved with this whole thing involving David and publishing some stuff that Brandy was sending him. And then when that stuff was being published, then David went and uh, felt his hand was forced and he had to post this uh, embarrassing personal story on 2 Plus 2. Well, Mason was furious because this was kind of embarrassing his primary author of 2 Plus 2 Publishing. So Mason was out for blood and Mason decided that he hated all of us, even though, again, I had nothing to do with this. This is something Brian Mycom was doing. And I was simply a moderator on Neverwin Poker. So Mycon was banned, Neverwin was banned, and I was banned. Even though, again, the only real beef was actually with Mycon, who still isn't back on there, by the way. When people objected to this and said, wait a minute, Dan Druff didn't do anything. Dan Druff is a good poster here. You know, people like my posts there. In fact, this was right after the AP and UB scandals. And I was very involved in exposing that. And in fact, I was the first one to bring this whole issue to 2 plus 2 back in 2007. So a lot of people over there thought highly of me and didn't like to see me banned. And people thought this was very petty and stupid that I was being banned when I wasn't even involved in the whole thing just because I was associated with Neverwin Poker and Brian Mycon. So Mason held firm and he said back, Dan Druff can come back when he disassociates with Brian Mycon and Neverwin Poker. Mason acknowledged I broke no rules. Mason acknowledged I did nothing wrong personally, but he said he didn't want me there because I was associated with Neverwin Poker and Brian Mikon. So I assumed, okay, I guess I'm never going to come back here because I was good friends with Mikon at the time. I wasn't going to disassociate with him. And I also was not going to disassociate with Neverwin Poker where I was very active. And I didn't think Mikon was wrong there. Like Brandy brought something to him. That was newsworthy, and I'm not going to get into the whole story again, but whatever. It just wasn't my thing. I wasn't involved in the story. So I assumed I wasn't coming back. The opening to this show, where you heard the degenerates, remember that? I'll play it to you again. This was Mason. These are little clips of Mason on the 2 Plus 2 poker cast with Adam Schwartz before he listened to this show, because this show didn't exist then. He wasn't listening to Neverwin Poker Radio back then, to my knowledge. But uh, Adam Schwartz and the co-host then, uh, Mike Johnson, Terrence Chan wasn't part of it yet. They had Mason on, and Mason was like, 
it was after I appeared on 60 Minutes, and Mason just came on there to bash me and never win poker. And it was so awkward because, like, Adam and Mike were trying to ask him about all the different topics covered on that 60 Minutes special. And all he could do was talk about me and never win poker. <laughs> and they kept trying to bring him back on topic, and he couldn't. And they kept talking about degenerates and how people are going to see me and Google my name and then go to the website I'm associated with. And that's all he could talk about. So Mikon made this little remix of Mason's appearance on that show. Degenerates. 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 A very important person. These people are going to Google his name. A very important person. These people are going to Google his name. They're going to come to the website that he's associated with. They're going to come to the website. Come to the website. To the website. 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 And this whole website, in my opinion, is just a cancer in our industry. Just a cancer in our industry. Just a cancer in our industry. If it seems like it ends abruptly, it does. This was actually a brilliant thing that Mike Hunt made. I really liked it, and I saved it. That's why I still have it 12 years later. However, it ends so abruptly because I cut off the very end of it because Mike Hunt had a really, really stupid and lame and immature end to the whole thing. So I, I threw that out. I said, come on, Mike Hunt, you made such a good thing. Why, why put this crap at the end? So that's what I kept. This is my version that of was, it. And that was their song, right? Right, that, right, right. That was, the, that was the opening song to the 2 Plus 2 Poker Cast. That's right. <laughs> Thanks for pointing that out. Yes. That was this like disco-like music they always had at the beginning. So Mike on took that music and then superimposed Mason's voice over it, and that was his real voice, except for the like higher-pitched thing that was, uh, or the really low-pitched that was him messing with the, the tone of the voice there. But yeah, th- th- that was real stuff that Mason was saying about me. It was all about me. Degenerates, a very unimportant person. They're going to come to the website he's associated with. That was all about me back in 2008. So he came on like a while after this all happened. When the 60 Minutes thing aired in November of 2008, like much later in 2008. Well, you would think after all that I was never coming back to 2 Plus 2, but I came back to 2 Plus 2. I came back to 2 Plus 2 oddly through a dispute with one of the mods there, Rich Muni of the PPA. Now, Rich Muni and I get along okay now, and he even appeared on this show a number of years ago. But I had a lot of criticisms of the Poker Players Alliance, and uh, Rich Muni at the time uh, didn't like me very much. And uh, after some time that uh, I was arguing with him back and forth on 2 Plus 2, and I had made a new account there, which I didn't use all that much, but I used occasionally to post about important things that were going on in poker. I just didn't say who I was. And some people knew, but they just didn't tell Mason, and I just wasn't banned. And I, I broke no rules. Like I was a I was a good poster there. I would I didn't post all that often, but as I said, I'd show up during important things to me that I'd want to discuss and that was the biggest forum where you could do so. Anyway, Rich Muni then called me out for who I was when I was criticizing the PPA. And people really got mad at him, saying that was kind of a bitch move to do to uh, try to out me to get me thrown off there because I was criticizing him. Well, interestingly enough, this led to my return 
because they decided on 2 plus 2 that they were actually willing to uh, let me stay, partially because looking at all my posts over the years under that account, they were good. So they they thought they actually kind of liked my contributions over there. However, there was a weird restriction that was on me, and that was I could continue being on there, and I could choose any name I wanted. I no longer had to hide under this phony name, but I could not be Dan Druff. <laughs> I could say I was Dan Druff, but I couldn't be listed as Dan Druff. Why? Because David Skolansky demanded I can't be Dan Druff. It was like bringing back too many memories to him that were upsetting him. He didn't want to see Dan Druff on there. He was fine with knowing I was there. He was fine with me saying I'm Dandruff. I just couldn't be Dandruff. It was an absurd term, but I said, okay, whatever. So I chose the name Kilowatt, not Calwatt, but Kilowatt, because Kilowatt was my first name in online poker on Planet Poker in early 2001. So that was kind of a throwback to that. This was, uh, I think, around 2013. Poker Fraud Alert was already operating by that point. So uh, I was back on 2 plus 2. However, this didn't last that long. I think in uh, 2014, something around then, I got a tip which was only partially accurate related to uh, Poker Room Manager in Las Vegas. So it was something where the Poker Room Manager had done something that was uh, kind of messed up, like the guy screwed up at his job for sure. But there were also accusations that he had like stolen money from the jackpot. I forgot the exact story, but there were there were two allegations. One was worse than the other. It turned out the first allegation, which wasn't as bad, was true. But the second allegation, which was criminal in nature, was untrue. And the person who brought it to me had always been very reliable. So I just repeated it as if that was the case. Well, it turned out the guy was wrong who brought it to me. The guy was half wrong. That uh, the, the whole part about the guy stealing from uh, the jackpot or whatever that part of the story was just wasn't true. And he had heard wrong. And that actually changed my policy. At that point, I said, you know what? I'm not going to put out these rumors anymore. And if somebody comes to me with a story, an unverified story like that, I always tell them, post it yourself. It's an open forum. You can, you can post what you want. You're basically taking ownership of your own posts. And that's what it says in the Poker Fraud Alert Terms of Service as it does on 2 plus 2 also. But I'm not going to be the one to say it. I'm not going to put my name behind it unless I know it to be true or very likely true. I, you know, how reliable you are, I just can't put it out like that unless there's some way I can see it's true or likely true because I don't want to put myself in hot water in case you're wrong. The person who brought it to me did it with good intentions and they believed it to be true when they told me. It wasn't someone screwing with me or trolling me, but they were wrong. So uh, anyway, when that came out, Mason, who didn't know the guy, had no relationship with the guy, didn't know him, Mason banned me for it. Isn't that crazy? I was actually banned for that story. And he had some ridiculous term about the exact type of apology I had to put out to this guy to get unbanned. And I did apologize, by the way. It's not like I refused to apologize. Like I, I apologized for what was wrong, but I, I, I had to make some absurd statement that I was not going to make. That Mason was demanding. Mason likes to humiliate people. He likes to force people to humiliate themselves. Like, uh, look at Dutch Boyd. Remember Dutch Boyd and the uh, lawsuit Mason Malmuth had against him? And then part of the uh, settlement of this lawsuit involved uh, Dutch had to make an apology to Mason. 
and then Mason stickied it on the most popular forum on 2 Plus 2, Never uh, News Use Gossip. And he stickied it for like two years up there at the very top. Dutch boy apology, just a just a needle Dutch, like an asshole. And then when the time expired that he said he didn't leave it up there, he actually like asked, hey, everybody, maybe we should leave it up longer. He just got killed in the responses. He just got killed, Mason. Like his own users were just raking him over the coals over that whole thing, saying he's being petty, that he shouldn't have been up there as a sticky in the first place. That just, But that's so Mason. He likes to assert power. He likes to believe he's the king of poker. He likes to humiliate people. So he basically wanted me to humiliate myself to get back on 2 plus 2 over a matter that had nothing to do with him. I didn't post any of this on 2 plus 2. It's not like he's saying, oh, you can't post this type of crap on 2 plus 2, you're gone. I posted nothing of this on 2 plus 2. I posted this on my own site, and I was getting banned for it. Does that sound right to you? Does that sound like a reason I should be banned? Now, does he have the right to ban me? Yeah, of course he does. It's his site. If he wants to ban me for a stupid reason, he can. But is it dumb? Yes. Is it petty? Yes. And did he really care about this uh, poker room manager from some small poker room in Vegas that I had made a false accusation that I had repeated from someone else? No. Mason didn't give a shit about that. Mason was still bitter over what had happened in 2008. He was still bitter. Why he let me back on in the first place, I don't know. That was I, I had to guess. I, I really think it was because my posts were good and he was kind of like reluctantly willing to go along with the advice of some of the mods that, you know, it, it was already starting to slow down there somewhat because poker was starting to die. Black Friday had already occurred. Uh, forums weren't as popular anymore in general, not just in poker, but everywhere. So it was starting to die over there. It wasn't as active as it was in 2000. And they probably convinced him it's good for two plus two that you have someone who's an active, good poster over here who makes thoughtful posts about uh, topics at hand. That's probably why he overlooked it, but the whole time he was bitter and I was gone again. Okay, how'd I get back? Well, again, I got back there under weird circumstances. In 2017, actually, let me go back a little bit further before I I wasn't back on 2 Plus 2 yet. In uh, 2015, there was uh, a fight between, well, one of many fights between Daniel Negreanu and... Mason Malmuth. They don't get along. They haven't in a long time. It actually indirectly has to do with something that Poker Fraud Alert was somewhat involved with. You remember the whole story of Jacep and the 22Q podcast and all that? I'm not going to rehash the whole thing, but it ended up being a scam. Uh, Poker Fraud Alert had some association with it, and uh, Negranu was associated with it. And Negranu wanted to promote the 22, 22, the 22Q podcast, which he was going to be guesting on, on 2 Plus 2, and Mason wouldn't let him. And Mason said, we don't allow charities to be promoted here. Which, fine, I, I agree with that policy, because there are a lot of charities that are scams. Well, Daniel went off on him and said that Mason's being an asshole, and he's the only one in poker not cooperating with this, and this is for a great cause, blah, blah, blah. Well, you can imagine how proud Mason was when it turned out this was a scam and it made Negreanu look horrible after Negreanu had wrote, written very critical things about Mason on his own website. So Mason has been rubbing this in Negreanu's face ever since. He still does sometimes. Well, Mason was again arguing back and forth with Negreanu in December 2015. 
and I mentioned it over on Poker Fraud Alert that this was happening, and I knew people would be interested because it had a connection to Poker Fraud Alert because of JSIP and all that. So this is what I wrote in December 2015. Most of Mason's discussion centered around the fact that he jumped to bash Negreanu and make him look like the bad guy in the Poker Star situation. This is referring to the Supernova lead thing. Which was transparent and an asshole thing to do. If he didn't already dislike Negreanu, he wouldn't have said a word about it. The 22Q donation that, that is Mason donated to the 22Q Foundation to make up some of what got stolen by Jacob. The 22Q donation was definitely a stab at Daniel. Mason is not known for his charity donations. He did this one because he wanted to show up Daniel. Believe me, Mason didn't give a shit that Jacob scammed 22Q, aside from the fact that it proved him right. Okay. That post got Mason furious. Why? One line. Mason is not known for his charity donations. That got him so mad to read. Why did it get him so mad to read? Because he actually had a charity. He had a tennis charity, of all things. Weird tennis charity where he and his wife have a foundation called the Mason and Charmaine Malmuth Foundation where they pay for tennis lessons for kids who can't afford it. I would think there'd be a better use of charity dollars than to give uh, tennis lessons, but that is the charity that they have been sponsoring. That's, that's their foundation. I guess it's because Mason and his wife like tennis and play tennis, so they wanted to do a tennis charity. Whatever, it's up to him. It's his money. It's his charity. I, I'm not going to criticize that. But he had this charity, which I wasn't aware of. Why didn't I know about Mason's terrorist charity? Well, I'll tell you why. In January 2016, Mason could no longer contain his anger at me. He couldn't ban me because I was already banned. But he could no longer contain his anger about what I had written in December 2015. He did not want people believing my words that he is not known for his charity donations. So he made a statement through the what they call the 2 Plus 2 magazine, which isn't a real magazine. It's like an online magazine. But this is what he wrote. This note is going to have a slightly different topic from what these publishers' notes usually have. And that topic is the Mason and Charmaine Malmuth Foundation. Even though it was established in January 2007, <clears throat> since we have a no solicitation for money policy on 2 plus 2, it's also been my policy not to talk about our foundation. Oh, wait a minute. So why was he so mad? He's admitting right there he doesn't talk about this foundation. He doesn't talk about this charity until now, now being January 2016, a month after I had posted Mason's not known for his charitable donations. Well, in December 2015, he wasn't. He was making them, but he wasn't known for them because he was keeping it quiet. Now, it's fine that he kept it quiet, but why was he mad at me for saying he doesn't typically donate to charity? He's not known for it. I didn't say he doesn't do it. I said he's not known for his charity donations. Well, he wasn't. It was a correct statement, but he was so mad about that. And for some reason, he just couldn't get it through his head that since he had not been public about this tennis charity, there's no way I could have known about it. But anyway, I'm not going to read the rest of the statement. It's just basically telling everybody, hey, we have this tennis charity and we weren't public about it. So he was even more bitter at me. And he was really looking for a way to get back at me for this. Well, he thought he found his way to do this. Well, actually, there's one other thing happened that made him even angrier. When this tennis charity was being discussed, Belly Buster, you know, the guy who runs the Poker Fraud Alert poker room, the No Fraud Online poker room, the one you play the free roll on every week, he discovered that the Mason and Charmaine Malmuth Foundation's tax returns from 2011 through 2015, which were the most current at the time for the past five years, 
showed zero dollars in charitable disbursements. So this charity, the donations that they had given, according to their own tax returns that are publicly available. Zero point zero charity disbursements. So everyone had a good laugh about that. And then some discussion started. Okay, well, what does this mean? Is this charity real? Like, what's going on with it? What's Mason doing? Some accusations were made on the forum, not by me, but by others, that Mason was doing something shady. I was having a hard time rectifying this. because It just didn't seem like Mason to run some sort of charity trick. But there it was on his own tax returns for the foundation that they were doing $0 every year in charity disbursements. And you can still see a screenshot of these uh, tax returns on Poker Fraud Alert. In fact, uh, you can see a link to all these threads about the stuff I'm talking about in a thread called Banned from 2 Plus 2 Again for Mentioning Mason's Tennis Charity. So I wasn't sure what to think regarding this charity. Really weird with the $0 disbursements. But Mason was furious about this. He got even angrier when Larry Laffer, then a member of the Poker Fraudler Forum, he's not anymore, but he was back then, he kept making fake accounts on 2 Plus 2 to try to post about this. And by the way, I did not direct him to do this. I had no idea he was doing this until after someone on my site had posted that Larry was doing this. So this was he wasn't being like a, a representative of mine or he wasn't doing my dirty work. He really did this on his own, I swear. But... Larry kept making fake accounts on 2 plus 2 and kept asking Mason to comment on it, and the mods kept deleting the messages and kept banning the accounts. So finally, Mason realized that he's going to have to put an answer to this because otherwise Larry's going to just keep making these accounts and make it look like he has something to hide. So Mason finally had to address it, and he stated that the tax returns were an error, and that the mistake was by his accountant and had gone back all 10 years of the charity that had been made since the beginning. And I don't know why he didn't catch such an egregious error for 10 straight years on his own charity's tax returns, but that's what happened. Do I believe him? Yes. And I can say that. See, I'm not going to tell lies about Mason to make him look bad. I'm going to be honest, and I believe that the tax returns really were an error. I believe that they actually were dispersing money from that charity. And I think the accountant screwed up for 10 years. I think Mason was an idiot for not looking at them. Why you don't look at your own tax returns? Like This is an egregious, obvious error. How do you miss this for 10 years? You've got to be a dunce, but <laughs> I believe it was an error. And I believe there were real charity disbursements, and I don't think the charity was a scam in any way. Anyway, he was still pissed. He was really pissed that first it was said he's not charitable, then he comes forth about the charity that he runs and then belly buster finds that they put on the tax returns that there's zero disbursements and everyone laughs at him and and it makes him look bad and makes him look like he's shady and it, it all looks very bad for him i i agree but this is his own fault anyway you can imagine how bitter he was at me because this is a guy who has a grudge about every little thing that he perceives as a slight this if he gets the slightest bit insulted about anything you say about him he will remember it for life for life and never forgive you. So can you imagine what he thought of me at this point? Can you imagine? He already hated me for the stuff that happened involving David Skolansky and Brandy back in 2008 and, and Sue and all that. And then he reluctantly put me on his forum, eventually couldn't stand seeing me there, banned me for a flimsy reason, super flimsy reason. 
And then this happens about the charity, his beloved te- uh, tennis charity, uh, looks like a joke because of the tax return thing. So, boy, was he bitter. He could not wait to find an opportunity to get back at me. Well, he thought he found it in 2017. Because in 2017, the following year, someone made Mason aware, I think one of his mods, that I was copying and pasting certain posts from 2 plus 2 over to Poker Fraud Alert. Now, why was I doing this? Was I doing it to infringe upon their copyrights? No, I was not doing that. In fact, these were not even their copyrights because these were not their posts. These were posts by third parties. And I was copying them to Poker Fraud Alert because I wanted to have my own discussions about these issues, which were notable issues in the world of poker. So something interesting would be happening. It would be brought over to 2 plus 2. It would be sometimes posted about originally on 2 plus 2. And I go, oh, I want to discuss this too. I want to give my own lengthy discussion and lengthy thought. Uh, you know, I'd write lengthy essays about uh, what I'd feel about the situation. And I couldn't do it on 2 plus 2. I was banned there. So I'd copy him over to Poker Fraud Alert. And then I would comment. I'd give my own original thoughts. I wouldn't say, okay, here's all the posts on 2 plus 2 about it. I, I'd make a few posts from 2 plus 2, what I thought were relevant. And I would put my thoughts within the whole thing. Very long, detailed thoughts. I wouldn't put like two words. Like I make long, detailed posts. There was no question that I was doing this in order to comment on these matters of uh, public interest myself. And even Mason didn't deny that. But he still felt it was copyright infringement because these were posted on 2 plus 2 and I was copying and pasting them. So his lawyer contacted me in 2017 it took a few months for me to even receive this contact because he sent it to an email address i almost never use he grabbed it off of like the domain registration i don't know why he didn't just use the contact us form and poker fraud alert that would have gotten me right away but he did not and when i checked that email that i rarely check like months later i saw that he had uh, sent me this demand the demand was that i stop copying anything from two plus two that I remove everything that I have copied and pasted from 2 plus 2, that I remove anything that anybody else has copied and pasted from 2 plus 2, and that uh, I make sure that everybody stops doing this, including me, going forward. (laughs) So I was supposed to go through the hundreds of thousands of posts on Poker Fraud Alert and and scan for anything copied from 2 plus 2 and remove it. Yeah, not going to happen. But I did have to stop and consider where I stood legally. Was I possibly open to a successful copyright infringement lawsuit? And I had to think about what to do at this point. Mason was paying his attorney to contact me and tell me this. Well, what I found was something very much in my favor. And that was 2 plus 2 had a term in their terms of service that you see when you register for the site that states very clearly that they do not own your posts, that you retain ownership of your own posts and are granting them a non-revocable license to reproduce it all they want. So it's basically saying, you own the posts, but we can do what we want with them. You can't tell us to delete them. You can't tell us not to use them anywhere. You can't tell us not to profit from them. Once you make them, we are allowed to use them however we see fit, but you own them. That's the contract you're basically entering into through their terms of service. Now, that's not unreasonable. In fact, I have something very similar on Poker Fraud Alert. In fact, many forums have something similar, and I'll tell you why. 
the reason that is there is to protect the forum owner from legal liability from things that their posters write. Because if you're just uh, acting as a vehicle for uh, others to uh, express their thoughts and they own their thoughts, they own what they write and you don't own it, then you're not responsible. You're not legally responsible. And that's good for form owners because you never know what your users are going to write. The only downside to it is that in cases like these, you don't have ownership of the posts and you can't make demands on how they're used elsewhere. It doesn't matter what's in the terms of service, by the way, because terms of service are between the user of the site and the site, not about third parties. So the terms of service between users and 2 plus 2 have no effect on me. 2 plus 2 either owns the content posted there or they don't. And they say right in their own terms, they don't. So at that point, they cannot make any kind of legal demands as to what I can do with the content. Now, the owners of those posts could make demands. So if somebody got mad at me for copying their post over to Poker Fraud Alert and said, hey, I didn't give you permission for this, then they could be on better footing. When I say they, I mean the owner of the post, the people who made the post. Then they could be on better footing to tell me to take it down. Though there's still some complicated issues with that, but I won't get into all that. But definitely Mason could not tell me what I could do with posts from third parties on his site that his own terms acknowledge that he does not own. If you don't own it, you can't tell me what I can do with it. So I brought that up to his lawyer. And of course, the lawyer said I was wrong because his lawyer is not going to admit I was right because number one, he represents Mason. And number two, lawyers don't like their being, they don't like being told they're wrong by non-lawyers. In fact, that's uh allows them to do their job better if any good point raised by the opposition, who's not an attorney, they, they can always dismiss it and say, I'm the expert, you're not. And it's hard to counter. That's why, as one of many reasons it's important to have an attorney representing you in legal matters, especially serious legal matters. You, you don't want to be your own attorney because you don't get respect in court. The other side's attorney will run, run you over and will show you no respect. You, there, there's just... Even if you feel you can do the same job that the attorney can do, which you probably can't, just the attorney's presence and their qualifications give a lot more validity to your side. But I wasn't ready to hire an attorney here. I was prepared to if I had to, but I was not ready to do it yet. I wanted to see if I could resolve this myself without the expense of an attorney. So I told his lawyer what I found and that I believe this is my right to do so, but I did let him know that I'm not trying to be an asshole here. I'm not trying to be stubborn. I'm not trying to create a standoff. That I'm willing to be reasonable. I'm, I don't feel their demands are reasonable, I told them, and I still don't feel they were reasonable. But I said, if we can come to other terms which are reasonable, I'm willing to talk about it. I don't want to create a problem, but I also don't want to be pushed around and uh, denied my rights. So after some back and forth, and I'll say his attorney was, uh, he worked for a big uh, law firm there called uh, Greenberg Traurig. Uh, he was, the attorney was very pleasant and polite. You know, like it wasn't a, a contentious exchange, but it was, uh, it was an exchange where we had some disagreements, some polite disagreements, and we were trying to come to a conclusion. But fortunately, we did, and we came to something that I thought was very reasonable and fair. And I'm not being sarcastic here. I really think it was reasonable and fair, and that's the reason I agreed to, and that's the reason I did not hire an attorney 
to try to assert my rights further because I thought that what we agreed to was good. Here's what we agreed to. That 2 plus 2 will no longer object to copying and pasting single posts to Poker Fraud Alert, provided that these posts involve matters of scams, scandals, or frauds in poker. So basically any any uh, major concern in poker that uh, is being brought up on 2 plus 2, that it's reasonable for me to copy and paste it over to Poker Fraud Alert, as long as I don't reproduce the thread structure, I just post one post and then say, okay, now here's my comment about it, that they'd be fine with that. Whereas before they weren't, now they are. Their argument was I can't just go reproduce the whole, I can't reproduce several uh, responses in the threads because it starts to look like I'm reproducing the forum structure, which I still disagree with because I'd have to really reproduce a large portion of the forum to for them to make that claim. For me to occasionally put a few posts together doesn't constitute me copying their form. But th- this is where I gave a little. I said, okay, I will stop doing this with multiple posts. I will do it with a single post, and then I will uh, respond. Then I will give my own original thoughts on the matter. And I'll link back. Poker Fraud Alert agreed not to reproduce entire threads or back-and-forth conversations. Poker Fraud Alert will agree to place a link back, I had mentioned that before, to 2 plus 2 when anything is copy and pasted. But I was already doing that, by the way. I was already linking back to 2 plus 2 always, but I threw that in anyway to show a good faith. At the same time, 2 plus 2 basically makes the same agreement about Poker Fraud Alert, that if they were to copy anything from Poker Fraud Alert, that they can do one post and then make their own commentary with a link back. Both sides agree to notify the other if any posts are violating the above agreement, and the posts will be removed. So the burden is not on either 2 plus 2 or Poker Fraud Alert to constantly scan for violations of this. That if it happens, we need to be made aware of it. Now, I'm agreeing not to do it myself, but like my users do it, I don't have to constantly be looking out for it. That if I miss it, then that's fine. I just have to wait until they show it to me that they found it and uh, then I will remove it. And that the same, they'll do the same thing for me if I point out that they've done it. By the way, that never ended up happening. We never contacted each other about removing things. We, you know, both sides kept to this and it was fine. And this agreement only involves posts going forward from this point in 2017 that all posts before that were not going to have to be edited. So that was the agreement we made. It was all done by email. It, was, it wasn't super formal, but it was it, it was a kind of an informal agreement by email that that was going to be what we kept to. And I kept to that, by the way. I, I have kept to that in the three years since. I made a thread about the whole thing explaining it, which was also agreed upon that I would do. I, I didn't blindside them with a thread. I agreed. In fact, they wanted me to make a thread about the fact that this has been resolved. When Mason was posting about it on his own site at the time, before we resolved this, he was not getting a good reaction. Most people were on my side about that, including some very well-respected posters there. They were saying, look, Mason, we like you, but you're wrong. <laughs> so that's also part of the reason he backed down on this, is that uh, most of his own posters were telling him that, number one, he's being petty, and number two, he was just legally incorrect, including some attorneys were telling him that in that thread. But there's one other laughable piece of the agreement 
Remember, this wasn't really about copying and pasting stuff from 2 plus 2. I know Mason was a little annoyed by it, but that's not what this was really about. It was really about getting back at me because he was still mad about the tennis charity. (laughs) So I was told, I didn't have any direct discussion with Mason, but this is through his attorney. I was told by his attorney that Mason was still very upset about that thread that was making fun of his tax returns with a $0 disbursement and the, uh, the the whole thing about the, the tennis charity being made fun of was really upsetting him. And it is upsetting him that I never really set the record straight that uh, the whole charity was legitimate. So the last piece of the agreement was that I had to agree to make a statement that the tennis charity was not a scam, that it was legitimate, and that I believed the tax returns really were an error. Now, had I not believed that, I would have refused to make the statement. I'm never going to be forced to make a statement I don't believe. I'm just never going to do it. I don't care what I get out of it or what lawsuit I get out of. I'm not going to make a statement which I don't believe to be true. However, I believe that statement to be true. I believe that Mason's tennis charity is real. I believe it is not a scam. I believe the tax return zero disbursements thing was an error, albeit a 10-year-long running error that Mason was an idiot not to catch, but an error nonetheless. So I agreed that I would put out a statement about that. So I wrote this is the, in the, my official statement about the whole thing to Poker Fraud Alert in 2017. Finally, I wanted to say something about Mason's tennis charity. You guys know that I'm always honest when I spot any kind of fraud or scam, and I never hold back my true opinion. While I understood everyone's concern given the charity's tax returns, which were found online, I honestly believe Mason's explanation that these were simply tax form errors. While I have criticized Mason for many things over the years, I have never believed he was a scammer or dishonest person. It simply would not make sense for Mason to set up a phony charity and break federal law simply to save a few thousand per year in taxes. My opinion is Mason's tennis charity is legitimate, and this entire controversy was spawned by incorrectly filed paperwork by his accountant. I believed that statement then. I still believe it today. So this was not a, I'm going to make a statement I don't really believe to get out of a lawsuit. This was, I'm going to make a statement which I do believe to be true, but at the time I didn't feel Mason really deserved because he was an asshole. But, uh, but if we're going to be, if we're going to be settling everything else here, fine. They want me to say something I really believe that's in Mason's favor. I will say it. So I said it. I did not agree to cease discussion of the tennis charity. I just simply agreed I would make a statement that I believed it to be legitimate, that I would not oppose that statement in the future, and that Mason's tax returns were simply an error as he claimed. And as you hear right now, I'm not opposing that statement. I still believe it to be true. And I honestly, truly do. Now, this is important, as you'll see soon. The most surprising part of this whole thing, and the reason I'm telling you this whole story, is that Mason surprisingly offered at that point in 2017 that I could return to 2 plus 2 through his attorney. This is unexpected because I didn't say, hey, I want to be back on 2 plus 2 as part of this agreement. Towards the end of the discussion, when we'd already agreed to everything else, his attorney said, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, Mason would like to know if he'd like to come back on 2 plus 2. I was shocked to hear that. Now, I don't know what was in Mason's head, but my guess is that by 2017, 2 plus 2 had really, really fallen upon hard times. It was a shell of its former self. Yeah, it's still 
active, but nowhere near as active as it had been during the poker boom or even in the few years following the poker boom. It had a significant reduction in activity. I mean, significant reduction. I remember like in 08, I couldn't keep up with it all. There's there's no way for me to read everything on 2 Plus 2 in, in News Views Gossip. Forget the other forums. I mean, it's just there's so much posted there, you have to pick and choose what you want to read. Now you can you can easily take it all in. In fact, uh, you can see on, on the front page of... Uh, News views gossip, the same threads can sit there for a long time, for days, before they fall off. So I have a feeling that they wanted quality activity back there, and that given that I was a good poster, and that most people on there liked my contributions, that they wanted me back for that reason, even though Mason obviously did not like me personally. Now, why would I want to come back? Well, it was still the biggest and best-known English-language poker forum, even in 2017. So I said, okay, fine. I don't like Mason, but I would like to participate in that forum sometimes. I'm not going to be an everyday poster, but there's things that come up there that I like to comment on. So I wanted to uh, return to 2 plus 2, and uh, I said, yes, I'll do it. I take the offer. But then I thought, hold on a second. Hold it. Hold the phone. Mason has banned me twice before. For flimsy reasons. I'm afraid it's going to happen again. I'm afraid, in fact, that he's going to bash me. And then if I dare respond to him, he's going to ban me. Or sometime in the future, he's just going to find some flimsy reason to get rid of me. And I say this because that's what he's done in the past. I've never broken a 2 plus 2 rule that was ban worthy. Like I've broken minor rules where the mods have told me that, uh, hey, this is a, a, a technical breakage of the rule. And I say, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. And I don't do it again. Like I, I've always been very respectful of 2 plus 2 rules. And if you don't believe me, go go look at my post on 2 plus 2. You won't find rule breakages. I don't troll over there. I don't, I don't disrupt over there. I stick to the rules. I don't... Sp- do what Mason calls spamming, which is link my own site, which is stupid. So a lot of times I have a lot of things that I could uh, add to the conversation by linking my own site, but that's against the rules there. I've respected that. Like, I, I stick to the rules there, and on the rare occasion I don't know a rule and violate it, I, I say, I'm sorry, I won't do this again, and I don't. I've been very respectful of 2 plus 2, and in fact, most of the mods there actually like me. I get along with most of the mods. Not all of them, but I actually get along with most of the mods, and... There's a reason for that, because I treat them with respect, they treat me with respect, and everything's fine. The problem is Mason has grudges, and he can't get over them. Not just with me, but like with everybody. Mason has a ton of grudges, even over super minor things. Because if you think about this whole story, nothing big happened here. It's just like all about Mason being insulted about this or that, or holding a grudge over this or that. It's not like some horrible thing happened between me and him. Nothing did. But anyway, I was invited back, and I was willing to take it as long as I knew he wasn't going to be petty again and ban me for no reason or insult me and then ban me. So the attorney wrote back to me via email back in uh, 2017. Also, Mason agrees and gives you his word that once your ban is lifted on 2 plus 2, you will not be banned in the future unless you break the rules on 2 plus 2 or this agreement. Well, okay, I haven't. I've kept to the agreement, and... I haven't broken 2 plus 2 rules, but I'm banned. I am banned as of uh, September 23rd. So why is that? Why did I get banned on September 23rd, 2020, th- about three years after our agreement? Well, Mason is a bitter old man with lots of grudges with lots of people. He cannot let things go. He cannot let sleeping dogs lie. 
Even when you think you've made peace with them, you really have not. So Mason had been taking various pot shots at me. Every time I had to, uh, post in a thread there, if Mason was reading and posting in that thread, sometimes even if he wasn't, he'd show up and post something nasty about me. Or he'd respond to something I wrote with some sort of snide remark. Often not even about that topic. Like he, he'd often hijack threads on his own site to bash me. It was tiresome. Like It's not like I was showing up there to pick on him or to make fun of him. And there's a lot to make fun of. But I wasn't. I wasn't making fun of him. I wasn't criticizing him. I wasn't picking on him. I was being very respectful. And if you go look at my posting history, my name is Kilowatt there, you will see that. That unless he would start up with me first, that I was just not even bringing his name up. And I was not starting up with him. He would start up with me. He would find excuses to start up with me and try to find ways to make me look bad or Poker Fraud Alert look bad. And then he'd try to take things out of context to make me or Poker Fraud Alert look especially bad. And it was really bothersome because he would do this where it didn't even belong. It's not even like there was a relevant reason to do these things. He would just see me post and he couldn't help himself. It was like he had to troll me. It was weird. He is so bitter. He didn't see it as trolling. He just seems like he's bitter and he just has to he has to get his shots in. Well, I started getting tired of this. Like it was just grating on me. And I'd start responding to him when we'd have our little tiffs back and forth and people would be like I like the users there, they didn't want to comment. They're kind of afraid to say anything. They were just kind of like, Ugh, this is this is weird, guys. <laughs> like there's some serious topic being discussed there, and I make a serious post about it, and Mason comes back uh with some sort of veiled insult, and then I respond to it, then he responds back, and it hijacks the thread, and people kind of want to say stop it, but they're afraid to because Mason's the one who owns the site, and you could tell everyone's kind of cringing, what the hell are these two guys doing? And I was aware of that too. Like I didn't even like doing this because I knew like everyone was getting upset seeing this. They It would ruin the threats. But I, I couldn't just like let him do it and say nothing back. But even when I'd respond back to him, I would not be too hostile. Like I'd, I'd still keep it civil. A lot more than he was. And I would never start up with him. It was always him starting first. Finally, I got tired of it. I mean, it's, it's, there's only so much of this crap I can take. And, and really, how important is 2 plus 2 to me? 2 plus 2 is not that active anymore. There are some subjects that come up, like scandals in poker, interesting stories in poker, that not only are covered better on Poker Fraud Alert and with more posts on Poker Fraud Alert, but sometimes they don't appear on 2 plus 2 at all. Sometimes, like, I'll find something... I'll post about it on Poker Fraud Alert. I'll go, oh, I wonder what they're saying on 2 plus 2. They've got to be talking about this over there. I go, nope, nothing. I go, weird. Maybe it's not in this section of the forum. I'll do search. Nope, nowhere on, on 2 plus 2. And then I'll think, okay, maybe they haven't discovered it yet. Like, days will pass and still nothing on 2 plus 2 about, like, the particular subject. So it it really is a shell of its former self. And I'm not saying Poker Fraud Alert is more active than 2 plus 2. It isn't. 2 plus 2 is more active, but... 2 plus 2 was once way, 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 way more active than Poker Fraud Alert. And Poker Fraud Alert has stayed about the same during its eight and a half year run, which is actually pretty impressive since forums have really fallen out of favor. People prefer Reddit and Facebook and Twitter now. They don't like forums as much. So the fact that I've kept roughly the same level of activity as we had eight years ago is, is pretty good. But 2 plus 2, boy, they've just really, really cratered. So I, I don't really need it. Like, why do I need it? Yeah, there, there's a few times that I really want to post there. Like, the, the Internet Poker Forum I like to discuss uh, Bovada or anything else. That's, like, the only place to do that. 
or sometimes a t- topic will come up there, which is only being discussed there. And yeah, I could bring it over to Poker Fraud Alert, but there's already an existing discussion. I'd like to put in my two cents, especially if it's something important, especially if I, I have a take that others haven't presented yet. So yeah, I'd like to post there for that reason, but can I do without it? Of course I can. I'm by no means a, a two plus two addict or even a regular. I I show up occasionally and post. And again, look at the history by kilowatt, and you'll sometimes see months go by where I don't post anything. So yeah, I can do without it. So I was not afraid about getting banned. I didn't want to get banned, but if I'm going to get banned, whatever. It's it's not a big burden to me. It's not a big loss. So I was getting more and more tired of Mason's behavior. And I was getting less and less patient. And I'm thinking, you know, very soon I'm just going to say something to really piss him off on purpose because I'm just tired of this crap. Well, it finally happened. First of all, as I mentioned during the episode we did two weeks ago about Jonathan Little and about the tiff he had with uh, Phil Nagy of ACR. And by the way, Jonathan Little and I have been in contact and he said he'd like to come on this show. So we'll probably have him on soon. So if you're a fan of Jonathan Little, you'll enjoy that segment when we have it. So uh, I guess Mason has kind of brought us together. (laughs) So thank you, Mason, for that. We're going to have Jonathan Little and I'm sure we'll have some words about Mason. But uh, Jonathan Little, in that thread, I had not posted yet. I hadn't made a single post in the Jonathan Little thread yet. And Mason still found a way to bash me and Poker Fraud Alert. He really stretched to do it, but he found a way to bring me and Poker Fraud Alert up and was bragging how he rejected Poker Fraud Alert as a podcast that they're willing to feature in the Never in the News Views Gossip Forum. That they told one podcast uh, that they can't be part of 2 Plus 2 because they didn't meet their standards and he linked the thread so everyone can see which one they're talking about. Like He finds little passive-aggressive ways to be a dick and bash me and bash this site. In the freaking Jonathan Little thread, which I had not even been part of yet, or even, I don't even know if I talked about it yet on Poker Fraud Alert. But it was a story I was definitely not part of on 2 Plus 2, and when he talked about me, it had nothing to do with Jonathan Little. Or Phil Nagy. It was a, it was about uh, podcasts. I mean, it was, he's just trying to find whatever way he can to bash me. So I go, oh, boy, that's petty. But I let it go. But then it happened again this past week. It happened in the Mike Postle thread. So the Mike Postle thread, uh, Veronica has been posting there. She posts there as Angry Polak, which is also the name she uses on Twitter. And it's, it's a pretty, it's a semi-active thread. It's not super active, but it's semi-active over on 2 Plus 2 about Postle. So I posted in it, and someone had mentioned that they were disgusted to see the troll attacks on Veronica on Twitter, and I agreed, and I wanted to voice that as well. So I wrote on uh, in, in the Postle thread, yep, the constant... Tr- Twitter troll attacks on Veronica and even a few here, meaning 2 plus 2, are particularly infuriating to watch. She did something selfless and took a fair amount of reputational risk by coming forward with this, and she's taken needless abuse from idiots trying to question her motives. I expected it from Postle's low-life buddies, but everyone else doing it should be ashamed of themselves. Now, do you think there's anything wrong with that? Do you disagree with anything I just wrote there? I doubt you do. Is there anything that should be trolled about this? No. 
What could Mason possibly have an issue with, with that post? Well, the sentiment I expressed there, he didn't have an issue with. But he still found a way to bash me and to attack me and to hijack the thread about Possel. Keep in mind, this is a Possel thread. This is not about him and his beefs with me. So this is what he wrote back. Hi, Kilowatt. I agree completely. It's shameful, and I'm sure you'll agree when people write things about others which are not true and are designed to make someone look bad. For example, here's a post that was written about me and my foundation and my wife I have uh, on another website. So he said, by my count, it contains six false statements. And for those interested, it's post number eight in this thread and then link Poker Fraud Alert. Best wishes, Mason. Why bring this up? Why bring this up? What does this have to do with Mike Postle? What does it have to do with Veronica? What does it have to do with anything that was being discussed in that thread? What does this tennis charity and my 2016 criticism of it have to do with any of this? Is this petty or what? So I responded. I said, I think you should take any personal gripes with me from four, over four years ago and discuss them privately rather than hijack important threads on your own site with such nonsense. That's all I said. And it's true. He obviously still has personal gripes with me about posts about the tennis charity. And if he wants me to talk to him about that, if he wants me maybe to remove things about the tennis charity that he feels are untrue, if he were to ask me like an adult and say, hey, I thought we're getting along better now. I thought, you know, everything's okay. Can you please remove this post from January 2016? I would say, okay, Mason, sure. I'll remove it. Why? Because I'm not looking to cause him trouble. I'm not looking to upset him. I'm not looking to put out bad things about his charity. I am willing to act in a reasonable and peaceful fashion. But he did not do this. Instead, he hijacked his own thread and attacked me when I was simply responding to how people were uh, treating Veronica. So he came back with, but you put yourself in the middle of this as someone who can be relied upon. Don't you think that people, perhaps someone like Veronica, should know a little bit more about you? Perhaps I should put up more links to your website. Ah, okay. So now he's framing it in a really, really dishonest fashion that he cares about Veronica, you see. This isn't about him. He's not bitter that I insulted his tennis charity. No, 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 no. He's not still angry that I made comments about his tennis charity that were not flattering almost five years ago. No, 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 no. It's not about that, guys. He's just worried for Veronica. That's all. He just thinks Veronica can't rely upon me. What? First of all, nothing about that statement I made there was unreliable. Was it a, a critical and insulting post back then? Yes, it was. But keep in mind, this is someone who has always been very critical and insulting about me. And I was banned from his forum at the time. And I wasn't doing it because I was banned. I'm saying I was banned. And when my name would come up, he would bash me. In fact, he even banned someone on 2 Plus 2 once for publishing an article with me in it. He banned uh, ESPN reporter Gary Wise, like around 2008, for publishing an article that I was in. Can you believe that? So a guy who treats me that way, I'm not going to be nice to. I'm not going to say sweet things about him. I'm not going to lie. But if I've got critical thoughts about them, I will express them without reservations. Whereas others that I feel neutral towards or positive towards, I'll sometimes hold back some critical things I think about them. And that's human nature. You'll write the true bad things you think about someone if you don't like them. 
And if you do like them, you're probably not going to say anything bad about them. Maybe you notice some faults they have. And if you're neutral, often you'll stay quiet as well just to not rock the boat. But once the boat's already rocked, you might as well keep rocking. But again, this is back in 2016, early 2016. And, and he's doing this now. He's, he's quoting this now, not asking me to do anything. He's not saying, can you delete this? Can you modify this? He's just putting it up there to say, I have no credibility. I can't be relied upon. Like, what does this mean? I can't be relied upon. It's not like someone relied upon me for something and I, I let them down. It's not like I promised I'd do something and didn't do it. So he's claiming that since my statements about his charity were false in that post there, that I can't be relied upon by Veronica and that maybe he should put up some more links to my website to make it even more clear. He didn't specify what he was going to link. But you know what he's trying to do. He's trying to make me look like I have no credibility Veronica shouldn't trust me, that like I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing, and that they should be aware of that. And Mason's going to make them aware. And this is all petty. This isn't out of concern. Do you think he's really concerned about Veronica? He doesn't know her. She doesn't know him. He's not concerned for anyone, nor does he really think that I'm this dishonest, unreliable person. He's just pissed off that I wrote bad things about him on the Internet when we weren't getting along. That's what he's pissed off about. And instead of coming to me like an adult and saying, hey, you wrote these things about me in early 2016 when we had a beef with each other. Can you please modify it? Can you please delete it? Can you please remove it? Can you at least remove the parts which are untrue, which is this, this, and that? And I would say, okay, Mason, fine. I will do that for you. I'm willing to be reasonable. But he didn't ask any of this. He just tried to put this out there, this post from almost five years ago, and is trying to tell Veronica she can't trust me. Someone he barely knows, doesn't even know at all. Forget barely knows, he doesn't know her. Crazy. So again, just like Mason didn't care about that small poker room manager when he banned me the other time, he doesn't care about Veronica. He doesn't care about whether people judge me as reliable or not. He just wants to take shots. He just always wants to try to make me look bad. He just can't help it. He can't help seeing me post without getting pissed off. It's just like a reflex where he has to insult me. A reflex story he has to attack my credibility. So then he made uh, two other posts to me, also bashing me and trying to, again, assert that he was simply concerned for Veronica, trying to make others aware of my supposed lack of credibility. What do you think the chances are that Veronica, after everything I've done for the Apostle situation and how supportive I've been, what do you think the chances are that she would read a post I made about Mason's tennis charity in January 2016 and say, oh, you know what? Never mind, Todd. I don't trust you anymore. <laughs> I mean, come on. Is there any chance that could happen? Is there any chance this, anyone would care about Mason's tennis charity and my comments about it, aside from Mason, five years later? Nobody cares about this. Nobody cares about this. If Mason wants this stuff modified or taken down, then I would have been very willing to discuss it with him. And a lot more cooperative than he thinks I would have been. But insulting me and trying to attack my credibility is not the way to do it. And I tried to politely say that, and he just kept doubling down. So finally I had enough. I said, okay, between the Jonathan Little thread comment where he bashed me in Poker Fraud Alert when I hadn't been posting there yet, and the comment – I make this – perfectly good comment about how people shouldn't troll Veronica and he comes back with this crap about the tennis charity from 2016. I'm like, that's it. I'm done. I, I can't stand it. Every time I make a post here, this asshole attacks me. I, I can't stand it anymore. I'm just going to post something nasty to piss him off. 
before I always tried to diffuse it. I tried to uh, kind of respond in a similar tone to what he does and, you know, kind of make at least a little humor out of it or, or to defend myself. But I never got too nasty back to him. Even when he'd been, had been very nasty to me, I always try to deescalate, but I said, nope, I'm, I'm done deescalating. I'm going to escalate right back. F him. So I responded by saying that I had over 37,000 posts on my own forum, which is true, kind of true and disturbing. But yes, I have 37,514 posts on Poker Fraud Alert right now. And that it's impossible for me to post with such volume without occasionally and inadvertently posting something that turns out to be factually inaccurate. You can't make 37,500 posts without occasionally saying something that's wrong. It's not possible. I repeated that at the time of the post. I wasn't aware that his tennis charity even existed. And so I posted what I believed to be true when I made it. And even that subsequent post he was complaining about, that was from uh, early 2016, I didn't know much about his tennis charity yet. And uh, I was posting theories of mine which I thought were possible. So I said something after that that I knew as soon as I typed it was likely to get me banned, but I didn't care anymore. I said, people make mistakes. For example... Sometimes they submit tax returns for several years in a row where they erroneously list their tennis charity made zero charitable disbursements. As I said, mistakes happen. I knew he was not going to like that. I knew he was not going to like that at all because he's so sensitive about the tennis thing and the tax return thing. And here I brought it up again. But I was careful to bring it up in a way that was not violating our agreement. I wanted to piss him off. I will not deny that because I was tired of the attacks, but I did still phrase it in a way to make it very clear that these were erroneous tax returns, which he admitted himself. I did not say the charity was a scam. I don't think the charity is a scam. I did not assert that or imply that in my response. I just said, everyone makes mistakes like someone I know did with their tennis charity and the tax returns for it. That's really what happened. He admitted that he submitted mistaken tax returns prepared by his accountant. So that's all I was saying. But I knew he wasn't going to like it. I knew he was going to be really pissed because I brought up a very sore subject. But I said, F him. It's time to get him pissed off because I'm tired of him and his shit. Then I went on to call him out that he was lying about his concern for Veronica and that this is all about his own petty ego, which it is. I said he does not care about anyone but himself and that all of his opinions are seen through the lens of whether a particular person said something to make him feel insulted at some point. I finished up my post by asking, how's that for poker psychology? Because that's another big sensitive spot of his. He wrote a book called Real Poker Psychology. And a lot of people criticized it, especially because there was a similar poker psychology book out at the time by someone else. And he's been very, very bitter about that other book and there's like this big fight between him and the other author and he's been he gets really 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 mad when you bring up the real poker psychology book in any way but in a complimentary fashion you bring it up in any kind of critical fashion he gets furious so that's why i wrote that how's that for poker psychology so that was a veiled reference to his terrible real poker psychology book i went to two plus two today and i found myself banned and that last post was deleted. What have people said there about my ban? They have said nothing because he has not announced my ban to anyone. 
He just quietly removed my post and banned my account and said nothing. Now, wait a minute. Remember what his lawyer told me in 2017? Mason gives you his word that once you're unbanned on 2 plus 2, and he meant back in 2017, that as long as you do not break 2 plus 2 rules or break this agreement, that Mason will not ban you? He gave me his word. Well, we see how much Mason's word is worth. I kept to the agreement. I did not break 2 plus 2 rules, and I was banned anyway. So, what does Mason have to say about that? Well, I actually got a comment out of him. I posted on Twitter that I was banned on 2 plus 2, and I linked the poker fraud thread where I was talking about it, and he responded. He wrote, you wrote on 2 plus 2, hard to believe you're around 70 years old and still act like this. I did write that to him. And I thought you were right. Since 70 will come around in a little more than a year, I decided there was no need for this aggravation anymore. Goodbye. And he wrote good dash by like an old person. <laughs> you notice there's like certain ways like old people write. You can just tell like someone's old by just certain writing conventions. Like, I'll give you one. If somebody abbreviates the name of a state by like the first few letters in a period, they are old. Like California being C-A-L-I-F period or Nevada being N-E-V period. If they abbreviate it with anything but the two-letter abbreviation, like NV or CA, they're old. Because that was the original way that you would abbreviate states when you would write letters. I remember that because I was a kid at the time when you would write Caliph instead of CA. So I was a kid, and it was very easy for me to change that habit. But older people who were well into adulthood when that changed, they, they still have that old habit. So he writes good-by. That's another very old person thing to write. But I responded, what aggravation? I try to peacefully make good and informative posts on your site, and you show up out of nowhere to take frequent pot shots at me and my website. The aggravation comes because you can't help yourself and can't let minor past issues go. That's exactly the truth. Yes, I know I wrote it, but it was exactly the truth. But look, he didn't deny that he banned me just because he felt like banning me. It's not like he said, oh, no, no, you broke such and such 2 plus 2 rule. It's not like he said, no, 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 you broke our agreement. You promised you wouldn't do that. Now that you did, I had to ban you. No, he just doesn't want the aggravation anymore. He just decides he's too old, 69 years old. He just doesn't want to deal with the aggravation of me anymore. Well, that would be reasonable if he wasn't causing the aggravation. Mason, all you had to do was not bash me. And when I say not bash me, if you want to offer constructive criticism of something I write about a particular topic, then go right ahead. That is not bashing. But when you attack me or my character or try to make my website look bad, especially in something that has nothing to do with a topic or thread being discussed, and you're just showing up in a thread to bash me or make my site look bad or make me look bad over totally separate matters from years ago, that is what causes the aggravation. It would make sense if I couldn't help myself and I would always bash Mason there. And he's like, you know what? It's not technically against the rules, but I'm tired of Todd constantly going after me here. He's gone. That would make sense. I avoided him there. I did not want interaction with him there because I knew he couldn't take it. I just figured I would ignore Mason for the most part. I'm not saying I never mentioned him. 
and I definitely mentioned him when I'd respond to his pot shots at me, but I was not there to harass him, and I did not harass him, and I was really trying to avoid any kind of confrontations with him there. And again, go look at my post history, and you will see that. You'll see that my post histories were, it was not about Mason unless he brought me up first. I was always posting about whatever topic came up. I made good posts. I made informative posts. I made thoughtful posts. I was definitely contributing to 2 plus 2. So he's basically admitting, yeah, you didn't do anything wrong. You didn't break rules. You didn't break the agreement. I just don't want to hear anymore. You're just, you're just aggravating. You're gone. Yet he's the one causing the aggravation. He he trolls me and I'm aggravating him. How dare you respond to me? Let me troll you in peace. Let me insult your sight in peace. Let me hijack threads and bash you in peace. Why must you respond? Why must you insult my tennis charity? What has it done to you? I just want to give poor kids tennis lessons. Why can't you leave it alone? Why? (sighs) There's not much more I can say. You guys know Mason. He's got some kind of personality disorder. I don't know what it is. Obviously, at this age, he's never going to change. I remember one time at the Bellagio, at the 100-200 game, which was in the top section, kind of like the little higher section in the poker room. I'm playing in the 100-200, and in the 2040 game, Mason is sitting there, and Mason, when he plays poker, he looks so unhappy. And I don't mean after he takes a beat or when he's having a bad session. 100% of the time he plays, he looks unhappy. I can't think of one time I've seen him in the poker room where he doesn't look pissed off. So it's not like he had a bad day or a bad session. He's just always like really, really sour looking at the table. It makes me wonder why he's even there. He doesn't have to be there. It's not how he supports himself. He plays recreationally. So if he hates being there so much, why does he go? And if he doesn't hate being there, why does he always have a look on his face like he's perpetually pissed off? Anyway, that came up at the 100-200 game where somehow someone mentioned Mason down there and how he always looks pissed off. And I'm like, yeah, totally. That's exactly what what I've noticed. And everybody at the table laughed and everybody shared their own Mason story. And I swear there were like six different people at the table who all were banned from 2 plus 2, including people I didn't even know posted on forums. Like these weren't even like forum people. These were like Bellagio regulars in the 100-200. And just they had like a few posts on 2 plus 2 and they were banned. They all had their like own personal Mason story where he was petty and controlling and banned them over something really stupid. So like the whole table is bashing Mason. Oddly enough, they liked Skolansky. Oddly enough, the table was positive on Skolansky, and I didn't want to burst anyone's bubble and tell, tell the whole Sue and Brandy story, so I just kind of nodded my head along. <laughs> but uh, the, the table liked David. And I think the reason is because David is like not outwardly an asshole when you meet him. He's not like super outgoing, but he's pleasant enough in person, and he doesn't always seem pissed off. He kind of seems like a happier person. He's not like a really happy person, but he doesn't... He's not unhappy looking like Mason, and he's not, like, controlling like Mason. He's kind of just weird. But Mason's, like, the controlling asshole, and Mason and David's kind of like the, the weird guy who has these weird relationships, to say the least. So they liked David at the table. Everyone had good things to say about David, but boy, Mason, everybody hated like, I, I'm serious, like, six different people had stories about him. So that was satisfying to hear. This is several years ago, but still satisfying. Pretty sure I won't be coming back there. I think this is the final straw. And you know what? I don't even know if I want to. 
Because as much as I'd like to participate in the occasional important subject thread there, as I said, it's become less relevant. Often we have a better discussion on Poker Fraud Alert anyway. Sometimes we have a more active discussion on Poker Fraud Alert anyway. A lot of times we copy cover topics they don't even get over there for whatever reason. I've sometimes seen topics brought up that are copied from Poker Fraud Alert. I don't really need it. You know, I'll lurk. There was a topic we're going to talk about at the end of the show that was brought up over there. Nothing about me, but I'll lurk. Occasionally there's interesting content brought over there. Only because it's known as the main like English language poker forum of the poker community since the 2000s. That's the only reason anyone goes over there. 2 plus 2 is only as big as it is despite Mason, not because of Mason. And that's what he doesn't understand. Mason thinks that it's because of his great leadership at 2 plus 2 that it's doing so well. No, it just was in the right place at the right time. And it's really fallen upon hard times. It's really a shell of its former self. And I have to imagine his books aren't selling all that well either. At least not the way they used to. I don't know how well they're selling, but I can't imagine they are selling anywhere near what they did during the poker boom. And I also can't imagine that 2 plus 2 is collecting the type of advertising money they were getting those days. They were making a lot of money in those days. And now I'm guessing not nearly as much. They were even getting a lot of money for that 2 plus 2 poker cast. When I heard what they were making there, I was jealous. Mason got some of it, and Adam got some of it, Terrence got some of it, Mike Johnson got some of it when he was part of it. But I was jealous when I found that out. I definitely was jealous. That's gone now. And that's something else to take note of. Remember uh, Adam Schwartz and Terrence Chan used to be on the 2 Plus 2 Poker Cast for quite some time. And it was uh, it was a popular show. People enjoyed it. It was one of the better things on 2 Plus 2. Then they left. And it seemed like from the final statements from Adam and Terrence that they were just kind of tired with it and done. And then another podcast started up. Debt Poker Podcast, which was the same people plus Negranu. So what happened to being done? Well, I think they were done with Mason. <laughs> I don't know this. I'm just stating what I've observed. But it looks like they were done with Mason. And sure enough, Mason's bitter about it because when... Mason was offering to give threads to popular podcasts that have nothing to do with his site. Uh, the funny thing is the two that were requested the most were my show and Dash Poker Podcast, and Mason wouldn't do either of them. And he really didn't want to talk about Dash Poker Podcast. So if there was no bitterness, he would totally give Dash Poker Podcast space there. Now you can say maybe it's because of Negranu's involvement, because he hates Negranu, and that's probably a large part of it, but... I have to imagine he's not thrilled with Adam or Terrence now. Probably sees them as traitors for working with Negranu now. Which they're not, of course. But I'm sure that's how Mason sees it, because he's so petty. And he always thinks he's insulted or slighted in every single way. Everything that doesn't go exactly the way he wants, or anything said about him that he finds slightly insulting, he will hold a grudge against you forever. And he will never forget it, and he'll link back to it when you argue with him. Remember what you said about me in 2008? 
You know how many people I could do this to who I now get along with, who have said bad things about me on the internet at some point? There's people I get along with very well now who have said or written bad things about me at some point. A lot of people. I don't hold it against them. I get over it. I look at the entire body of the situation. I'm willing to forgive. And I think, okay, if this person was a dick to me before, but is now treating me well and feels bad about the way, the way be, they behaved and they apologize and they're not going to do it anymore and we've agreed to get past it and then they're fine and don't cause the problem again, then I'm fine with them. In fact, even after some time, depending on the circumstances, we could become friends. And that's happened. But Mason, you say one thing that pisses him off and that's it. You are ruined in his eyes forever. Anyway, I don't care. I really don't care. And I'm not saying this like in a sour grapes way. Like, I don't need two plus two after all. Screw you guys. Like, it's not like that. It's I really don't need two plus two after all. That's the truth. Many years ago, this would have been a bigger deal. But even then, I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm off two plus two. But you know, like in the past when I created a fake account because like I didn't do it right away, but like years later, I made a fake account because I still wanted to post some things. I'm not even going to do that now. I'm just going to stay off. Like, like I had done in between. You know, before they let me back on in 2017, I wasn't posting it or a fake account. I just wasn't posting. Same thing now. I'm not going to come back. I'm not going to make posts there. Even if I really have something to say, I'm just not going to say it. I'm going to say it over on my site. All right. Going to move on to talk about Darwin Moon. Darwin Moon passed away at the age of 56. And, you know, it's, it's always sad when someone dies in their 50s. I can especially say that since I'm close to my 50s. I'm only a year and a half away. 56 is not all that far away. Less than eight years for me. So I start to know what it feels like to be that age. I can't imagine I'll be that different when I'm 56. And I would like to think I have a lot more life left than eight years. I don't know what Darwin Moon's health situation was. It is possible that he's been dealing with long-term health problems and that this was something he thought was possible. Most people do not picture themselves dying at 56. Most people think when they're in their 50s, they have a lot of life ahead of them. Darwin Moon is best known as an amateur poker player who made it all the way to second place in the 2009 World Series of Poker main event, finishing second to the very talented Joe Cada. That's not a bad guy to finish second to. That's a very tough guy to beat. Darwin Moon really uh, captured the hearts of many people who root for amateurs to do well. He was someone who definitely didn't play perfectly, definitely had something to learn about poker, but nonetheless was able to handle himself well enough at that main event to get all the way to heads up for the main event bracelet. And of course, win a lot of money finishing second place. He won several million dollars finishing second place at that event. What was his background? As I said, he was an amateur poker player. He was actually a logger from Maryland. And... Here's something that was uh, most interesting about him in the whole story, that he didn't quit working. 
you would think in his uh, mid-40s, which he was at the time in 2009, he was 45 years old, you would think that you win all those millions of dollars and say, okay, I don't need to work a manual labor job anymore. I'm done. I'm just going to relax. I'm going to live on this money. Maybe I'll invest some of it, but that's it. I'm not going to be a working man anymore. And that's what most people would do in that spot. He did not. After he won the World Series, he kept his small logging business going. Why? Because he didn't want to screw the people working under him. He actually uh, wanted to keep the business going. He wanted the employees to keep their jobs. Even though it was not going to make much money compared to what he had from finishing second in the main event. He said it's not going to change him. And he said, we lived on twenty dollars to $25,000 a year for 26 years. I can now live the rest of my life comfortably. I'm still working because my entire family was raised that way. That's what he said to Card Player Magazine in 2010. He said, I've had guys who worked for me, who kept me alive for the first 25 years, and I can't just tell them, you don't have a job, so I just keep working. Isn't that interesting? Also, remember, 2009 is before Black Friday. And he was getting more and more lucrative offers to wear patches at the final table and even before the final table. And he was going to be paid a lot of money to wear poker stars or full tilt or UB, whatever they wanted, whatever was offering at the time. And I know there were a lot of offers like this because the following year in 2010, I got to 88th place, nowhere near second, and I was offered things and uh, I ended up accepting $7,500 right off the bat with escalating payment for every day I made further past day six, which I didn't make, so I got 7500 bucks. That was still nice to get. But he turned he turned down much more lucrative offers than $7,500, and he was there till the very end, the very, very end. He was the second to last guy out. He did not want to wear any online poker site branding because he quote didn't want to answer to anybody he wore a new orleans saints hat that's probably how you remember him if you remember what he looks like and he said he liked cheering for the underdog so he was a big saints fan and that's what he wore the whole way a new orleans saints hat rather than any online poker site never took a sponsorship offer this is a very principled guy this is like a Really like a, a lifetime working man who had very strong principles and could not be corrupted by money. Here he get free money for putting patches on at the final table. I, I've done it. I mean, I agreed with poker stars to do it. He wouldn't do it. Now, I refuse to wear anything that I would not want promoted, like uh, I would not wear UB at the time. But he wouldn't wear anything. Just saying he doesn't want to answer anybody, and uh, he likes wearing his Saints hat. Then he didn't want to quit working. So people found this very charming. That this is really just a working class guy who stayed working class even after winning four and a half million dollars for finishing second place. And of course there were the idiots who were criticizing him and his playing. Oh, he's a fish. Oh, he didn't play heads up well. He had never played heads up poker until he was against Joe Cata for the World Series of Poker title. That was his first time playing heads-up poker. 
So, yeah, he didn't play the best heads up, but he'd never done it before. He was an amateur. He was an amateur who got lucky and also made the right moves at the right time and got that far. You get through that type of a field with a lot of really good players, of course you have to be lucky to finish second. Of course you have to be really lucky to finish second. But obviously he did some things right. And there's people I've played against at that World Series who are amateur players that I know could never make it to second because they just don't play in a way that would ever get them all that far. In fact, these are people. some people are like dead money where they're very unlikely to ever min cash. So he got all the way to second place. So I know there's, there's always assholes who just want to criticize those at the main event final table. But I've never been one of them. I know that the pressure's intense. You're not always playing your best game. And some people there, they don't have the experience. Some are people who just got lucky and made it a lot farther than they ever thought they would. And Darwin Moon was definitely one of them. The official World Series of Poker account tweeted something about his death. They wrote, uh, thanks to the memories, Darwin Moon. You inspired so many people and started one of the most memorable final tables in World Series history. We will never forget. Rest in peace. Nolan Dalla posted a nice retrospective on Darwin Moon, who we got to know back then. Here's what Nolan wrote. Darwin Moon was as real as it gets. No illusions, no pretense, the real deal. The mirror may have two faces, but Darwin had just one. It was freckled, usually decorated with an innocent smile and the confident look of being fully content, comfortable with his own skin and who he was and the proud man he came to be, particularly for those who were lucky enough to know him. I was lucky to know him. And the more I spent with Darwin, the more humble I became merely by his presence and the more impressed I became with sincerity and honesty of his character when such redeeming attributes have become increasingly scarce in a bravado world. A bravado world. Darwin didn't speak much, but when he did, we listened. Less was more. The first time I met Darwin was sticking a microphone into his exhausted face at 2 a.m. on a sizzling Las Vegas night at the World Series of Poker inside the Rio when no one in a tournament room filled with thousands was hotter than the unknown lumberjack from the Maryland Panhandle who annihilated everyone in his path en route to the most unlikely main event chip leader in a decade. Darwin, who I'd never met before and never heard of prior to that year's championship, seemed like he'd just fallen off of a turnip truck into a pumpkin patch. The man could have been an extra in Little Abner. It's hard to believe he was real. Is this your first time in Las Vegas? I asked. Yes, sir. He called everyone sir or ma'am. I flew here on a great big plane and got to the airport and all these people treated me really nice. It was the first time I've ever been on a plane. Wow. The wow was mine, not his, but I'm sure he thought wow also. He's 45 years old. He hadn't been on a plane before. Wait, this guy can't be serious. I thought he's got the chip lead in the World Series of Poker. He's never been, he's never flown before this trip. I've never played out here before. This is my first tournament other than the ones at Wheeling, West Virginia. Turns out Darwin won a seat by at some small buy-in satellite tournament at a casino near his home. Now he was sitting at the center of poker, the poker universe, comp- competing for nearly $10 million first prize and would be the star on national television. What are you going to do if you win it, I asked Darwin, wondering what this past midnight conversation was headed and if my subject would ever be heard from again once the tournament ended. Oh, I'll stay the same. I might buy myself a new pickup and get something nice for Wendy, which is his wife, but that's it. He went on to finish second to Joe Cato, the winner. Someone might correct me here, but I believe Darwin's only major cash in a tournament was this. 
Unlike most players who made the final table that year, Darwin didn't bring a cheering section. He didn't even enjoy the roars of his own gallery. His cheerleader is Wendy, and she was right there, just as she always accompanied Darwin to every poker event. A delightful lady, a partner of life, an anchor of support, they seemed made for each other. Darwin won millions of dollars, I don't recall the amount exactly, but he went back to the rolling green, green hills of western Maryland, and he bought that new pickup truck, and he got something nice for Wendy, and by the time I saw him again a few years later, he was back on his farm chopping wood. His farm consisted of something like 600 acres, which was his land before the big poker paycheck. 600 acres, hell, that's practically the size of a country. That's where Darwin was at home, most at ease. He was a real lumberjack, precisely what you expected when you heard that word lumberjack, who chopped wood and had the Popeye muscles forearms to prove it. He later told me he spent days at a time in the wilderness, connected to the earth, his spirit guided by the stars and the wind. We saw each other on several occasions around that time, as Darwin was a pop popular fixture on the t set of the TV show Poker Night in America. Darwin liked to come around at the production and talk to the crew, even when he wasn't playing. Todd Anderson, the show's creator, came to be good friends with Darwin. His genuine kindness and perpetual good cheer was infectious. I think that's why everyone liked being around Darwin and Wendy, too. One time, Darwin gave me a lecture on the most common body injuries of being a lumberjack. He broke his arm multiple times, cut through his flesh, and had scars up and down both arms. Those trees don't mess around, he said. If a tree is falling, I get out of the way. It's going to fall where it wants. You had to love it. Just listening to Darwin was a treat. It was like be being given the wisdom of Yogi Berra dressed up like a woodsman. Simple but real, always real. With Darwin, the more you got to know him, the more you wanted to know. He spoke a simple language, but with profound depth. I don't think Darwin was capable of telling a lie, which made me wonder if he ever successfully bluffed anyone. As for poker, Darwin never pretended to be anything other than Darwin, and that was fine. He could easily afford to play in big cash games with his millions and could have played in far more tournaments, but Darwin never wanted that lifestyle. It would have kept him out of the hills, away from his trees, and required too much flying on great big plains. That wasn't for Darwin. What was for Darwin was living with nature making his own moonshine, which he did, and I sampled more than once, being loyal to Wendy, being Darwin Moon. Tonight I learned Darwin passed away. I'm really sad. I could not sleep, especially after all we've been through. A shitty year just got shittier. But hey, the good news is at least I got to meet Darwin and interview him and eventually be his friend. How cool that is. Next time I'm in a forest, and I hope that day soon, I will look around and observe the tall trees and try to absorb the connection to the sacred land that Darwin must have felt and experienced hundreds of times in his joyfully fulfilling life. I shall close my eyes and take it all in and listen for the sound of that wind. I'm sure I will hear Darwin's voice. So that's a nice piece. Nolan Dahl is a good writer. If you go to his site, nolandahl.com, he has some good stuff up there. I think that captures him pretty well. I didn't know him personally. But just one of these genuine, simple guys in poker, kind of the antithesis of most people you meet in poker. If you think about who you meet in poker these days, it's kind of a mixture of degenerates, shady people who are kind of scammy, and then like arrogant nerd types who are uh, constantly looking for new ways to win and think they're hot shit. And you don't have all that much else. I mean, it's... Uh, most people kind of fall in one of the three categories. But Darwin didn't. He was just... And I'm talking about guys who were like known in poker, not recreational players. But he, he was a known guy in poker because of what he did in 09. But he was just a lumberjack. He was just a simple guy who happened to get lucky in this tournament and 
never thought anything but that he was just lucky and did not become a different person after winning the money. Went right back to work and bought a pickup truck and a little gift for his wife and just went on. What did he die of? He died of complications of surgery. What surgery? I do not know. Was it COVID-related? Probably not. It was not stated, but probably was not COVID-related. Was it heart surgery? He was somewhat overweight? Maybe. They did not say that either. I am not sure. Just complications of surgery. It is a fact that whenever you go under the knife, you are risking your life. There is a chance when you go under, you will not wake up. General anesthesia kills some people. Just the whole process is being put under and some people die from it, especially if you're doing it the first time. Others will die from complications that arise from the surgery itself, either during the surgery or after the surgery. I don't know exactly what point uh, Darwin passed away, if it was actually on the table or shortly after or days after. But surgery is serious business. That's why I always feel that less is more as far as surgery. I've only had oral surgery in my life. I've never had any surgery ever. The closest thing I was about to have to surgery was going to be a colonoscopy, and then I couldn't do it because of COVID. But I'm actually going to be making an appointment this upcoming week to schedule a colonoscopy. Much as I don't want to do it during COVID times, I just think it's time. There's a family history for me, and I'm 48 and a half, so it is definitely time I do so and not wait any further. And even that doesn't make me happy. I really hate the idea of being put out. But really, any kind of surgery, you're at risk. Now, a colonoscopy, like what I'll be getting, that's that's very, very low risk because they're putting you out pretty lightly with propofol and they're not doing much other than snipping polyps in your colon. There have been complications before, but that's one of the safer surgeries to get, if you want to call it surgery. Other surgeries can be a lot more risky. Now, sometimes you have no choice. Sometimes surgery is necessary to prevent a major problem, to alleviate major pain, or to save your life, and then you just have to do it. But I don't like any kind of elective surgery where it's like cosmetic or where it's where the gain from it is not likely to be much. A lot of people will do surgery too easily. I'm the opposite. I really want to find every option but that. I don't even like the idea of something like an endoscopy. People were telling me to get an endoscopy when I was having my LPR problems and still have them starting two years ago. And I said, no, I don't. I looked into it. It does not look like an endoscopy is going to help me. So I'm not getting one. So I don't know exactly what happened, but he went down for surgery and he passed away. Now, Darwin Moon tweeted today, September 25th. How did that happen? How did Darwin Moon tweet from the grave, Herman Cain style? Well, it actually came from his wife. His wife tweeted today, I would like to take the time to say thank you for all the thoughts and prayers during this difficult time. Darwin was my whole life. He will be greatly missed. Wendy Moon, and then she put a broken heart. It's got to be very sad for her. And she just wanted to put that out there from, for everybody to see from the poker community. 
Got uh, 624 likes. I have to imagine it'll probably be the last tweet from that account ever at Darwin Moon. Taking a look at that account, it's always kind of creepy to look at Twitter accounts of people who passed away unexpectedly. The last tweet that he actually made was a long time ago, it looks like. Looks like over a year ago. There are two tweets that were made by his wife, one about his obituary and one that statement I just read. The last time he tweeted was actually a retweet on April 8th, 2019 about him being at the Heartland Poker Tour. And then he retweeted something from the Saints from February 7th. And uh, what was the last actual tweet he wrote? He retweets a lot, but not a lot. Like every few months he'd retweet something. But scrolling down, I can't even find the last original tweet he wrote. Just It's all retweet, retweet, retweet. No, I can't find a single tweet he made scrolling pretty far back. Oh, I see one he wrote, congratulations in 2015. About someone who won a car. That's the most he's written. Not a guy of a lot of words, apparently. I see someone sent me a message on Twitter. Remember I mentioned I went to UC Santa Barbara? Uh, someone who listens to the show tweeted to me, or sent me a Twitter DM saying they went to UCSB also, but they're the class of 08. <laughs> Makes me feel old when I see the class of 08. 08, I was 36 years old. All right, I'm going to take a break here. Rest in peace, Darwin Moon. Didn't know him, seemed like a good guy. We're going to talk all about Sean Deeb when I come back. And then we have a few other topics. And appropriately tonight, I'm going to play the Eric Benzamokin ad, as I typically do when I take these breaks, because he was on the show. He was on the damn show with us tonight. So, of course, he deserves this to be played. And I will be back shortly. Maybe we'll pick up Brandon at some point. We're getting closer to 3 a.m. when he's going to wake up, but... Won't be exactly a three, maybe a little before, maybe somewhat after. We shall see. I will be back shortly. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew. And it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. 
This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then you can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin. Eric at eblawfirm.us. We're back here. Let's do the Sean Deeb topic. We've waited long enough before talking about Sean Deeb, even though Brandon brought it up earlier. Two stories about him in one week. Neither about the Apostle thing. That was the story about him last week. But this week we've got two other things. First of all, Sean Deeb revealed that for about uh, a week and a half, and I guess now about two weeks, he's been suffering with COVID-19. Even worse, he's not at home. He's in Mexico. He has COVID-19 in Mexico. Now, it's not as bad as it sounds, because if you have money in Mexico, which he does, then you can get taken care of pretty well. The problem occurs if you're poor in Mexico. But he can afford the good private hospitals there. So he's not getting bad care. I'd still rather be in the U.S., but that's where he is right now. He went there to play online poker. He revealed that he has the coronavirus, did not say where he thought he got it. I don't know if perhaps uh, he played live poker somewhere or he just wasn't careful in Mexico. I don't know what happened, but he has it. So this is what he tweeted. It was on September 20th. So I've been keeping this quiet last week and a half, but I have COVID now. And I think I'm going to need your guys' help making a tweet or two go viral so I don't have to get hospitalized in Mexico. And uh, someone was advising him not to go to a general hospital in Mexico. And he said, I'm at the best private hospital in Playa. No doctor would come to my house and do what I needed. So he is hospitalized, but he, he went there kind of like voluntarily because the doctor wouldn't come to his house and do what he was looking for. I don't know what that specifically was. He's been grinding the Poker Stars W Coop during this whole thing. He tweeted on September 20th, I will say W Coop grind while sick was on a whole nother level for me. I may lost a chunk, but I played the best at like 10% strength sleeping during every five minute break every day. See, it's, it's very hard to read his tweets because he doesn't write well, but I think what he's trying to say is that he was playing at 10% strength and yet still playing very well. And he was only sleeping during like the five-minute breaks they were giving him during the tournaments. And still he managed to play well, even though he lost money. So someone asked him, COVID affected you that much or were there other things too? He said, COVID ran me into the ground and I never got myself up. Now, Sean Deeb is 34, but he's also very overweight. So that might 
make it tougher on him. It has been found that people get worse symptoms if they are obese, which he definitely is. And, of course, the biggest factor in the severity of COVID symptoms is age. Some people believe the biggest factor is weight. It is not. It is by far age. It is much better to be young and fat than old and thin. However, weight seems to be the second, or not weight, but the amount you're overweight seems to be the second biggest factor. So if you are very overweight or even somewhat overweight, you're, you are in somewhat more danger compared to those who are your age and not overweight. So this is kind of what I expected. He's getting, it kind of looks like a mid-level version of COVID where it's really knocking him out. But I don't know if he's getting breathing problems. And I, I don't know if this is like really terrible, but I know it's pretty bad as far as COVID goes. He's not in danger of dying, at least not at this point. But it's not like mild or easy to deal with like it is for many 34-year-olds. I think he's probably getting it like someone my age will often get it, where you're really knocked out and can barely do anything and super fatigued and in pain, but you're not in danger of dying. That is pretty common for people my age. And Sean Deeb is 14 years younger than me, but... He's very overweight, so those probably both come together to make him get it more like someone who's in their late 40s. Then he was trying to get the Poker Stars connection to work from his hospital room. He tweeted, trying to get it to fix my connection in my room because it won't connect. To you, Trying to use phone tether when I get this warning. Poker Stars should be able to tell that I'm in Mexico and let me play my day too. So it wasn't letting him play uh, the warning he was getting. It's hard to see. We're sorry we don't offer real money gaming in our area. So the funny thing is he, he's tethering his cell phone and somehow it, the IP for cell phone is not coming up in Mexico. So it's not letting him play. It's and uh, not letting him continue the tournament he'd already been playing. He tweeted on September 21st, you're really not a WCOOP grinder if you're not one-handed 10-tabling on a touchpad in a Mexican hospital with COVID. Okay, Sean, I can agree with that, but listen to what I did. I don't want to make this about me, but listen to what I did. I, in March, when I was in the hospital for a heart scare, I didn't think I was having a heart attack, but there were enough symptoms to where it was worth checking out. So I went to the ER, especially being a a tall male in my late 40s, the chance is higher that I could get heart trouble. Turned out to be nothing, but I went there. And while they had me on equipment monitoring it, I'm like, before they put me on the equipment, I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I want to go get my laptop from my car. And they seemed very unhappy about this. Like, no, no, we already, we already have uh, checked you in here. I'm like, well, you didn't tell me I can't leave. You're walking me all around different parts of the hospital and bringing me back to the waiting room over and over. You, you didn't tell me I'm trapped here now until we're done. So I, I finally talked them into having a nurse walk with me to my car because they wanted to make sure nothing happened to me. It was a male nurse. I guess they were also making sure I don't sexually harass the female nurse. So they sent a male nurse with me to my car. I got my laptop, went back. They didn't know why I got my laptop, though. It was to play online poker. So I sat there playing on Bovada while it was monitoring my heart. And I'm thinking, I bet I'm the first person to play on Bovada while their heart's monitored at this hospital. So now Sean Deeb doing something similar, playing WCOOP, 
10 tabling, he says, using only one hand on a touchpad in a Mexican hospital with COVID. Yeah, that's pretty unique, too. So, Sean, uh, it's not better as far as I know. He's been more involved in something else recently on Twitter, so he stopped tweeting about the COVID as much. But he definitely has COVID and definitely is uh, struggling with some details of it. On September 22nd, he tweeted, One of the worst things for me with COVID is during intense nights of chills and sweating, attempting to flip to the cool other side of the pillow, only to find it's twice as wet as your current side. Both head and body sweat all meet at the bottom of the pillow. I don't know about that. I've never been a big person who sweats when I sleep. Though I know this isn't normal. He has COVID. Maybe he doesn't normally sweat when sleeping. Some people sweat a whole lot when they sleep. I just don't. I have had the experience, like all of us have had, where you're trying to get to the cool side of the pillow and it's still hot. Like you're on the pillow. It's a hot night. The pillow's getting hot. You're like, okay, you flip it over. You picture the cool side of the pillow and it's still hot. It hasn't cooled down from when he last flipped it. And it's very frustrating. I remember noticing that first when I was a kid. We didn't have air conditioner in my house where I grew up because we lived in an area that most of the year was fairly cool. So you just didn't need it. But for like two weeks a year, you did need it. And you kind of suffered during those two weeks. It wasn't always the same two weeks, but it was, it was usually kind of around uh, late August, early September. So when those nights would happen, it'd be so hard to sleep sometimes because of the heat. And the turning over the pillow was one of the things I really remember. Like I remember first noticing as a kid that, the pillow would get all hot, and I'd turn it over, fully expecting it to be cool, and it was not, and it was just so disappointing. And like, okay, now what do I do? Like, now do I just turn it back to the first side and just let it be really hot and wait for this side to cool? Or do I just take this side, which is a little better than the other side? It was a very tough decision, especially as a kid. He then tweeted, one terrible thing about COVID is how hard your body is at retaining water. This is 100% what happens when I drink water. Snap sweated out my top half of body within seconds, no matter how much water. Yeah, that's not good. He, he put a little cartoon picture of, uh, I think it was Huckleberry Hound, drinking water and it leaking out of his body, presumably from like bullet holes or something. I've never had that happen. Six years ago, or now almost seven years ago, when I got really, really sick at Caesars, not only did I have zero desire to drink anything, including water, it was like really tough to force it down. But when I did, I would throw it up immediately. And I started to get worried as the day went on that I was getting super dehydrated because I could not keep water down. And in fact, would throw up and I'd probably lose water from that overall. So I finally decided I'll, I'm going to go to the ER if this doesn't improve by like 10 p.m., And then it finally stayed down at about 7 p.m., where the whole day I couldn't keep anything down, like no water, nothing. And then I got a false sense of security that I was getting better. And then I walked to the bathroom, and then on the way back from the bathroom, I fainted and broke three ribs. That wasn't good. But I also learned I made a mistake that day. I realized later when there was a... There was a conservative blogger who was 26 years old, a female, who died under similar circumstances to that, where she was, she had some kind of stomach flu and she was not able to keep water down. And then she got like 
dehydrated and died. I forgot the exact story, what her name was, but it was something kind of similar to what I was going through in Caesars. And I thought, crap, you know what? I think I cut that too close. <laughs> I should have, I should have gone a little earlier than I did because you can really lose water fast then and it can turn really bad quickly. And by the time you realize it can be too late, that's what it looks like happened to her. Like a healthy 26 year old woman died that way. The next time that happens to me, I'm going to go to the ER and get an IV for that. Because when you when you can't keep water down, you just keep throwing up. Like for, I started off in the morning throwing up everything over and over and over again. And then any attempt to get water down within 20 minutes is be right back out. So it was worrisome. So next time that happens, I am going to the ER and get an IV. Anyway, moving on. He also tweeted, Poker has trained me for this fight. You have to show up every day, ignore the results, and do what you're told. I have better days and I'll have worse days. I'll feel like I won't make it, but can't give up mentally. Then you'll lose. So he's comparing this to poker tournaments and poker cash games. Just You just got to show up and keep playing and play your best and not worry if you're losing. Just say, I'm going to do what I need to do and not give up. And he's saying, if you do give up, you're going to lose, referring to probably dying. That's a depressing tweet. It's supposed to be uplifting, but kind of depressing that he's talking about it, getting to the point where he has to mentally be in the right state or he's going to die. He didn't directly say that, but it's kind of implying that. Apparently, he's having some uh, taste bud issues, so he's having the taste issue with COVID. The changing of taste buds. I'm glad my kids didn't experience watching me not be able to eat pizza or tortilla chips. The simplistic food I eat the most couldn't even swallow. Would would have set back their habits a bunch. I will never give a person shit for complaining about pain. I had no idea your own body could do that much to itself so quickly. It was crippling at times. I don't know how much better he is then. It's, it's been now about four days since he last tweeted that. In fact, almost exactly four days. He tweeted this 3.45 a.m. on September 22nd. He is healthy enough to fight back and forth with Viffer, which will be our next topic. So it sounds like he's not having a good experience with this, and it's been a struggle. But I'm not getting the idea from this that he's going to die or that he's near dying. I just think that it's probably massive fatigue, probably a lot of pain, probably this problem where every time he drinks water, it sweats back out. It's got to be very, very uncomfortable and terribly unpleasant so i feel bad for him or anybody else going through that and i hope sean deep survives i think he will but we've had our issues sometimes but i, I don't think he's a terrible guy he just uh he could be an asshole sometimes but overall he i guess he's okay definitely don't want to see him die of covid but this does show you got to be careful especially if you are overweight or have some other condition that would make you more vulnerable to its effects I have a feeling if he were not overweight, he probably would not have been experiencing it this badly at the age of 34. Most people who experience it like the way he's describing are ones who are older. I'm not saying there's no 34-year-olds who get it like this, but most do not. 34 is kind of an age where you get it moderately. You feel it. You are sick. You have some issues. But it's not horrible. You're not typically asymptomatic, but it's not horrible. It's not debilitating. The debilitating starts like when you're in your 40s usually, especially the late 40s. As I said, Sean doesn't have the profile of the average uh, 34-year-old. Okay, let's move on to 
The other thing about Sean Deeb, and the reason he stopped tweeting as much about COVID, because he's got something else on his mind, and that is a beef he has with Viffer, a.k.a. David Pete. Viffer was known as a degenerate gambler. He was known as a guy who was not afraid to take risks at the table. And at one point he ran up a bunch of money playing No Limit Hold'em. He was someone who was not known as one of the more responsible young players. In fact, he wasn't all that young. I think he was, he, he lied to me about his age the first time we talked. It's before anyone knew who he was. He used to talk on AIM with people and I was actually the bigger name in poker at that point and he talked to me like, you know, like I was the bigger name and he was the nobody, which was the case at the time many years ago. And I remember he told me he was 26 and then I found out later he's only like a few years younger than me. So the 26 was not true, but whatever. He's in his 40s now and he is married to a very attractive woman, like way more attractive than you'd expect he would get. Because David Pete Viffer is not one of the better looking guys in poker. In fact, of course, neither is Sean D. But the woman he married was very attractive and she kind of has like a wholesome look to her. Like she doesn't look like a former stripper or prostitute. She looks like a nice girl and they, they got married and they have kids. And from, all, from what I can tell, she seems like a, a nice girl. I'm like, what is she doing with Viffer? <laughs> And I, I even heard that he may have chunked off all or most of his money. So, like, it wasn't about money, it appears. It wasn't about looks. I think I read the story about this on a previous show. I don't remember anymore. I think she told the story on her Facebook about how they met, and he was persistent about asking her out, and she finally did. And He did well there. That's not really what this is about. It had a small aside here, which we'll get to. But here's here's the story with him and Sean Deeb. Viffer responded to Sean Deeb, not meaning to start controversy, presumably. He's trying to make a joke when Sean Deeb was talking about how he never knew his body could do this to him. Viffer tweeted, should have made weight loss bets as soon as you figured out you got it. That was a joke, you know, like... Perfect time for a weight loss bet when you're going to lose a ton of weight anyway from COVID. That's basically what he's saying. And Sean responded back, would prefer people just pay the debts to me like you. If Viffer didn't make that joke, none of this would have come out. But Sean, he saw it. He couldn't help himself. Which I I don't blame him. If he really is owed money, he doesn't want to see jokes about what bets Sean should be booking. So David responded back. I'll give you the same offers before. We both post 50K, find a mediator. And that's what Brandon was talking about earlier. Find a mediator, like Eric Benzamokin. And if they say, I owe you, take the 50K. If not, I get 50. If you don't want to do that, then you're just talking shit. Now that sounds very convoluted. I'll explain it in a second. Sean said back, you already haven't paid for like seven years. Why would I ever trust you again? So what Viffer's trying to say, you have to like really read carefully to decipher these two guys because neither of them are very good at writing. Uh, Viffer's a little bit better than Sean D, but both of them are kind of hard to understand. But what Viffer's trying to say is that I'm going to give you this offer. If you think that I owe you money, let's make a bet on whether I really owe you money because I don't think I do. 
So we will make a totally separate bet from the money I owe you as to whether or not I really owe you that money because I feel I don't. I feel if we both tell our story that people are going to take my side. So let's uh, let's make a bet that when we tell people the story that uh, whoever we appoint to be the arbitrators here will side with me. And if they side with me, I win. If they side with you, you win. And he was saying that we'll both post an additional 50K here. So if you get if, – if they side with you, you'll keep your 50K, my 50K, and the money that you say I owe you. If not, I keep the money that you claim I owe you and I get your 50K. And as I said, Sean D. responded, you already haven't paid for like seven years. Why would I ever trust you again? Next day, Viffer wrote, let's post up the money and bet. I'll lay you 100K to your 50K. I'll post money. So he's sweetened the terms that he'll – not do even money bet. He'll do a two-to-one bet. Viffer put up 100 and uh, Sean put up 50. I just want to bet you're trying to free roll me and spread false lies, but what should I expect from a poker cheat? Sean Deep says back, how can I free roll you when I am the one who is out the 32K? <laughs> I mean, it's a good point. That's a good point. Sean Deep claims it's 32K that Viffer has owed him for seven years and that the one being free-rolled is him. He says, you owe me 32 k just pay it. How am I free-rolling you by just asking you to give me the money you owe? Sean Deeb went on to write, I don't think you understand what free-roll means. I just want my money back that I paid your debt off for. So this is something about where Sean paid Viffer's debt to somebody else and then Viffer never made it right with him. Viffer responded, trying to collect 32K with no risk of losing, which doesn't make any sense. Like, if you owe it, you owe it. I don't get that line of reasoning. Sean says, listen, you idiot. You admitted many times to Jean-Robert Balland and myself that you owed, and you were just being a dick. You keep trying to save face publicly, but guess what? Your rep isn't great anymore. So pay up what you owe. It's that simple. Be a man again. Viffer tried to take a shot at him saying, what should I expect from a poker cheat? Now, I, I've never heard this about Sean. I, there, there's that one rumor many years ago about someone cheating on open face, but then uh, it, it seemed like it was more just Barry Greenstein being paranoid. I don't I don't think Sean is a poker cheat. I think that's an unfair thing to say at this point. So then Sean says, wait, a poker cheat? What drugs are you on now, Viffer? I missed that the first time around. Please share one case of me cheating. Viffer says, free roll, trying to shame someone into paying you when they don't owe when you're not willing to put your money where your mouth is, you say I owe you 32k. I'm willing to arbitrate it and bet 100k. So you either get 132k or you lose 100. That's not a free roll. And then Sean Deeb says back, "I know you don't have 100k to post. I'll happily have arbitration with the four parties involved in the transaction. I and I paid your debt. And I'm out. I'm out the money. It's not a free roll. It's getting back my own money. You were too dumb to realize that. That's kind of what it sounds like from this exchange here." Sean says, then, then put it your 132K to my 50K and we'll have those two discuss it. What's your punishment for not posting is I still don't think you got a cent. So Sean's starting to warm up to this thing. He's kind of going back and forth whether he really wants to uh, do this bet. It's kind of an interesting concept, right? We haven't seen this before where one person says the other owes money and the guy who's accused of owing money says, not only don't I owe you money, let's bet that I don't owe you money. Where I'll win money if everybody else determines that I don't owe you. 
So let's bet on whether or not I owe you. I've never seen that before in all my years in poker. <laughs> that's that's Viffer for you. So Sean at first is saying, no, just pay me. And then Sean's starting to warm up to it. Viffer says, I'll put up 132k to your 100. We can post 10k with someone like Matt Glantz in the next three days. If I don't post my 132k, you keep the 10. If you don't post your 100k, I keep the 10. So he's saying, for the moment, let's each post 10 with like a neutral, trusted guy like Matt Glantz, who I agree would be a good person to hold the 10k from each person. And uh, if neither of us post the money in advance for our bets so we don't stiff each other, if, if one of us flakes on it, then the other gets the person's 10K. It's kind of like a deposit. Then uh, Viffer took some time out to post a picture of his family. The family is him, his wife, and his two little kids. Looks like two little girls. He tweeted, this is on September 24th, at Sean Deeb, no matter what happens, I've already won. Hope you get better. Billy will have my hundred first thing in the morning. Can can everyone hear the crickets? Referring to that, he didn't think Sean's going to respond to him, and he posted this picture up of him, his wife, and his kids. The picture was definitely meant to make people think that no matter what happens here, that he's doing well. It's him sitting on the steps of a house, like a porch of a house, presumably their house, him and his pretty wife and, and, and the two kids. And the, look, I'm happy without all this. Like, I, I don't care what you guys think of me. I don't care what you think of me, Sean. I've got my wife, my kids. I've already won in life. Look how well I'm doing here. F you. That's it's kind of a weird thing to do, like post a picture of your family in the middle of this whole thing, whether he owes money. I still think that instead of having this stupid bet, they should just put out there, since they're putting us all out in the open, just just put the freaking thing out in the open. Why, Viffer should just describe why he does not think he owes the 32. Sean Deeb should counter with why he does feel Viffer owes the 32. And let it play out from there. If the poker community overwhelmingly gets behind one side or the other, it'll be pretty clear who owes. I think people can be pretty fair about that. Especially people who aren't on one particular side or the other. Chris Moneymaker offered to hold the money or arbitrate. He said, I will hold money or arbitrate. I'm for sure non-biased towards either of you. Sean Deeb came back with, don't need arbitrators. The people involved in the situation can handle it. But I know Viffer will never follow through because he's always known he's wrong and just stalling because he's dead broke scum. Viffer then said the next day on September 25th, I would be willing to MMA fight him for 20K. And Sean Deeb said back, I don't fight people with neck tattoos and drug problems. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Viffer says, Seems to me the 32K you speak of is in question. Posting it might be considered admitting I owe. You don't want to bet. You just want to talk shit. I owe a lot of people money. You're, not, you're just not one of them. Well, that, that kind of would sound like he is broke then. Like, then where's he getting the hundred he's going to post? If you owe this many people money, wh- where do you have the hundred dollars, the hundred K to, to post for this stupid bet? So Sean says back, there's no question about it, Viff. You just don't like to pay your debts to anyone. Again, you back out of deals you offer because you know you'll lose and you can't pay. Sean says, I don't want to bet. I just want the money I paid your original debt off with. I'm not the one trying to make money. I just want my original money back. So, so far, Sean sounds 
better in this whole thing. It, it really does sound like Sean just wants the money he's owed and Viffer's just playing games. Someone named Poker Atheist then asked the question of Viffer. Poker Atheist said, I think it's fairly important to clarify. Did you pay off his debt as a favor to Viffer? This is a question to Sean Deeb. Or did you buy his debt at a discount like a collection agency in order to make a profit? And then here's the explanation from Viffer. He never paid a debt I owed. Sean, how about this? Let's give the trolls what they want. We can all go on major poker podcasts, Joe Ingram, Matt Berkey, and Doug Polk, and tell the story each one. Wait a minute. I don't think this, this, does Berkey even have a podcast? See, I, I know he does some video shows. Does he really have a podcast? How come I'm not mentioned there? How come I'm not mentioned there, Viffer? How dare you? We can bet 10K on what each of them say and 20K bonus if scooped. That means if all three agree with one side or the other. Uh, you can have whoever you want come on and answer questions if you like. It'll be fun. Sean Deep says back, I want my money back. I don't want the attention. I told you we will go to the parties involved from day one. We all remember the details and how everything transpired. You care so much about perception than the reality of the situation. You could have paid me long ago and should have. So it sounds like what Sean Deeb is saying here is, I, I don't want to go on shows. I don't want to make a spectacle of this. Let's go to the people involved, probably the people he was paying the debts for, like uh, all the people directly involved in this situation that remember it at the time. And let's hear from them, not just neutral third parties. That's what Sean's saying. He was saying this on September 25th at 4.46 p.m. It's a very recent. Viffer says back, you mean you just want to make allegations based on no facts and free roll me? My 100K is posted with BB. I'm not sure who that is. I offered you three ways to settle this. You accepted one. Post 50 or say sorry. If you didn't want attention, you wouldn't have thought brought this to Twitter. Sean Deeb says, and for the 10th time, I can't free roll you in a minus 32K. That's not what a free roll is. I want to get my money back. Post the full 132 because I'm not going to win the discussion and then struggle to still get the original money owed. You have done this multiple times over the years. Claim to be getting hustled when you're just getting when you're just stalling. So then Viffer says, "Okay, I'll post 132. You can post 50, and we'll let Billy decide." I wonder if Billy is uh, Billy Baldwin, BB. Sean says, "No, uh, we go to JRB. That's uh, John Robert Balland and Ben. I assume uh, Ben Lamb. As I said multiple times." David Pete Viffer says back, LOL, you can pick anyone but your co-conspirator. If Ben Lamb promises to be impartial, knowing that he's the best man in your wedding, I'll bet 5K he can't say I owe you 32K. I'm not quite sure what that means. Sean Deep says back, Ben has no benefit from me getting paid. His personal relationship is irrelevant for the situation. He was there when the dick got caused. Stop backtracking, Viffer. I, I, I will side a little bit with Viffer on this part. I can see why he doesn't want Sean's good friends deciding this. Then Viffer says back, not backtracking, trying to move toward and put this behind you. I'll let BB, even your butt buddy Todd B, that's uh, Todd Brunson, settle this, if he's willing. Matt Glantz, almost anyone, you keep telling the whole world one thing and we keep backtracking. My money is posted. Sean Deep says, I pick Matt Glantz as arbitrator. I want to see the proof of the full 132K debt and side bet, and then I'll post my 50K. He doesn't want to do it, so I say whoever wins kicks him 5K for having to deal with our illiterate asses. So even John Deeb is admitting here that neither writes very well, which is true. <laughs> this is pretty torturous to read. It's one thing with one of them can't write, but both of them, oh my goodness, is hard to decipher. You need a translator here. So that's uh, 
Oh, it's, it's Billy Baxter, not Billy Baldwin. That's right. It would be Bobby Baldwin. See, I'm getting everything confused at this time. Someone texted me that. So thank you for that clarification, Billy Baxter. Yeah, okay. So that was the last I saw, but then I, I haven't looked that recently. So let me see if there's anything further with this before we move on and before I make my commentary about it. He tweeted, uh, maybe Todd Brunson or Doyle Brunson would. They have been around gambling their whole lives. No one could doubt their judgment or reputation. I'm sure we won't have a problem finding someone who hates us both to settle this. I guess I could. If he wants that qualified. I don't hate them both, but I've had little issues with both of them. Like, really little issues, but, like, I used to talk on AIM to Viv for, like, more than 15 years ago. But then he started being a dick whenever I'd see him in the Bellagio. He'd try to, like, taunt me to come sit in his No Limit game. Like, he's trying to show off and I'm scared to sit in No Limit with him. And I'm like, okay, come to the Limit Hold'em with me. And then he did the same crap to Neverwin, too. He liked to taunt me and Neverwin for some reason about coming and sitting in his No Limit game. And then Sean Deeb is, you know, he and I have butted head a few times. So neither of these are enemies of mine or people that I hate, but uh, they're ones that both have had little issues with me over time. So I don't know. Maybe it should be me. <laughs> Not sure if I want to, though. Biffer also said, I'm sure he's going to get real quiet about this real fast, deflect and do anything he can to weasel out of this. Crickets and deflection. They're both accusing each other of, like, that they're going to back away from this and not do it. They both keep saying, I want to do it. You're not going to want to do it. No, I'm going to want to do it. You're not going to want to do it. No, I'm going to post the money and you're going to disappear. No, I'm going to post the money and you're going to disappear. Like, (laughs) I guess we'll see. I guess we will see which one of the two backs out of this. If both, if neither, if I had to guess, I would say it's probably more likely Viffer's going to back out. I think Sean D is probably more likely in the right here. Not knowing the details, I just have that feeling that he's more in the right. Why he's not willing to do this bet until they're like really pushed into it, I don't know. Like why? He should have just said right away, okay, fine, post the money somewhere with a neutral party that's not going to screw me, and we'll do it. I can understand why he doesn't want the variance of this of like letting third parties decide. But especially if he's pretty confident the third parties are reasonable people who are probably ones that like him better than Viffer anyway, like Matt Glantz would be one, then I don't see why he wouldn't do it. Like, if you're really sure that you're right and people more friendly to you are deciding it, why not? That's definitely a good bet. And Sean Dave is definitely one who likes to gamble. So I don't know why he's hesitant to do this. Maybe there is more to the story and maybe Viffer really isn't owed the money. But again, my gut feeling is Sean Deeb is right here. I got a response from someone here on on Twitter to the Poker Fraud Alert account when I was promoting the show's starting. And some guy responded, you still do these? Weird, dude. (laughs) Why, Why wouldn't I still do these? Why would that change? Why would this show be gone? I just saw that as I was browsing through Twitter. That's where it stands. Let's say for argument's sake that Viffer really does owe Sean the money. I can understand why Sean just wants the 
K drama free and why he thinks this is some sort of game to avoid paying him. But again, the weird thing to me is if he's so sure he's right and he's so sure he has credible witnesses that saw that he was paying Viffer's debt for him and expected to be paid back and Viffer knew that, like why he wouldn't snap accept the bet provided the money's posted in advance, I don't know. That's the one thing that makes me think maybe Viffer has a point. Viffer admitting he owes many people money kind of is suspect that kind of makes it look like he probably does owe Sean Deeb. Like a, whenever somebody who is known to owe a lot of people money and be broke, whenever those people are accused of some sort of financial malfeasance, it's almost always true. It's very rare that the broke poker player who owes a ton of people is accused of something and it's a false accusation. I don't recall one time that's even happened. So that by itself is a good reason that I think that this could be a case where Sean Deeb is correct. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number to this show. Scrolling through the various uh, text messages I'm getting. 773, my wife is excited. She heard you're going to be talking about the Rolling Stones. I did not say that. Oh, I see. She thought I said the Rolling Stones when it was really just stones. I get it. See? The later it gets and the further we get into the show, the slower I am at getting these references. Okay, from the 818, I'm doing good in the free roll. I hope you ended up winning. That's uh, that's about it here. All right, so let's move on to the next subject, which is not about Sean Deeb. We're going to move to a non-Sean Deeb, non-Stones topic. That is Isai Scheinberg. Remember Isai Scheinberg, the founder and CEO of PokerStars? Remember he was wanted by the government since 2011? Remember how he's been hiding from the government since 2011? Remember how he turned himself in? Well, we have some new developments with that case, and it's about what I expected. So Isai Scheinberg, remember, he turned himself in, and uh, this was in January. He turned himself in and was released on $1 million bail. This had been negotiated before he flew to New York to do it. They didn't just grab him. He negotiated that he would be turning himself in. It looked like it was going to be some kind of sweetheart deal. Otherwise, there's no way he would have done this. The guy is over 70. There's no way he's going to turn himself in just to spend a long time in prison. It wouldn't make any sense the type of money he has to come back to the U.S. for that purpose. So it looks very obvious to me that he's not going to get very much time at all. Uh, Norman Chad announced this on September 23rd. He wrote, PokerStars founder Isai Scheinberg sentenced today in New York to time served and, get this, a $30,000 fine. That is not a very large fine for the former owner of PokerStars. Norman Chad tweeted, that's pretty good for running an unlawful online online gambling business that's netted him, oh, somewhere north of 30000 Haley Hintz responded saying, I get your point, but it would have been unjust if Isai received additional time after Lobster Boy Bitar got time served. Isai didn't loot tens of millions of dollars in player deposits either like Bitar, Litterer, and Prince Fergie did. <laughs> That's a good point, that at least Isai ran the business honestly and paid people, in fact, paid 
the full tilt victims by buying full tilt afterwards and making that happen. Otherwise, people who had money in full tilt would not have been paid. Isai Scheinberg was the, the last one that uh, they finally arrested. They had arrested it and everybody else who was charged during the Black Friday bus in April 2011. I did not know if Isai would ever turn himself in, but I guess he got tired of hiding out and decided it was time to put an end to this. Of course, he negotiated a sweetheart deal from afar, which is what gives you the position of strength. When you're sitting in a jail cell, you do not have a position of strength. But when you're in another country and saying, hey, you know, I'm just not going to come back to face these charges unless we make a deal beforehand. And then I'll come back. So if the government offers something that you think sucks, you'll say, nope, I'm not coming back. That's basically what Brian Mikan did, and that worked very well for him. So Isai Scheinberg did something similar. He's like, okay, I'm, I'm not coming back unless you guys want to offer me something reasonable. I'm old. I'm not going to spend time in prison. So if you want to offer me something good, I'll come back. So he did, and he paid this very, very, very token fine. And that's it. It's over. He is not going to get anything further beyond that slap on the wrist. He was sentenced to time served 30K by a judge at the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York, which is the one that brought the charges in the first place. He was uh, charged with bank fraud, money laundering, and illegal gambling. He size 73. Judge Louis A. Kaplan gave this very, very life punishment and allows him to completely avoid jail time since basically he the time served was him showing up in New York, getting arrested and quickly released on bail. So there, there was no real time served. It was, it's really just no jail time. Uh, in his first court appearance, he pled guilty, but even though he was technically facing up to five years in prison, that seemed very unlikely for the reason I told you, that he negotiated these terms before he came back. Judge Kaplan said, I don't condone what you did, but the world is made of fallible people. It was a big mistake, but should not ruin what remains of your life. <laughs> He's actually going to pay $30,100, not just 30000 because he also has to pay a special assessment fee. I'm sure that's going to break him. <laughs> Scheinberg put out a statement I'm pleased that Jub- Judge Kaplan has determined today not to impose a prison sentence in my case Poker Stars played an important role in creating today's global regulated online poker industry by running an honest and transparent business that always treated its players fairly I'm particularly proud that in 2011 when Poker Stars exited the US market all of American players were made whole immediately except for the FPPs but we won't talk about that Indeed, PokerStars reimbursed millions of players who are owed funds from other online companies that could have, that could not and did not repay those players. That part's true. The fund that was paid in order to uh, get PokerStars out of hot water allowed uh, them to get ownership of Full Tilt, and then that money was used to pay the Full Tilt debt that they had to various players and was later used to pay AP and UB players that were screwed. 
PokerStars now operates in a few American markets, most notably uh, Pennsylvania, also is in New Jersey, and might eventually be in Michigan. These are versions of PokerStars you can only play against players from those specific states. It is not owned by Esai anymore and hasn't been for several years. Regarding Esai Scheinberg, it is true that he basically uh, treated online poker very well. He did not allow the platform to be corrupted with other forms of gambling. He was very obsessed with poker. He treated his employees exceptionally well. That's what all of them have told me. He always kept his word. He wanted Poker Stars to be an honest platform that didn't do anything that was shifty. He is correct that Poker Stars was a very big driving force behind the growth of online poker. However, it was operating illegally, and it was operating where competition could not really occur from U.S. companies. U.S. companies couldn't say, oh, we'll, we'll compete with PokerStars. They couldn't because they, they had U.S. interests. They would have gotten in trouble. So he, he had an advantage that other companies that would have wanted to compete did not have. And I never like giving anyone too much credit who succeeded only because they were willing to break the law when others weren't. That's not really fair to say, oh, my company did great because, yeah, we were willing to break the law. And all you goody choo-choos over there, you were afraid to break the law. So we were the successful company. Well, that shouldn't be what makes your company successful. I mean, yes, they were the most successful of the illegal online poker sites, and they did everything very well. But they were still operating illegally, and it wasn't a fair fight. And now they have a huge edge over other companies trying to enter the legal market because they – already had many years' experience that they shouldn't have had because they were operating illegally. So these are all points against Esai. However, overall, he was good for poker. He does seem like a good guy. He's a very loyal guy, for sure, to his employees. He was one of the best bosses to possibly work for, from what I've heard. I never worked for him, of course, but I've heard great things about him. At first, when it was proposed that he should be in the Poker Hall of Fame, I'm like, no, no, he shouldn't. But then I thought about it, and I go, yeah, yeah, actually, he should. He was very influential to 2000s-era poker, and he ran the business responsibly. They did have the money to pay people. As I mentioned, they screwed people on the FPP redemption, but I don't even think that was Isai's idea. That was probably one of the managers under him that did something a little bit shifty. And I say it probably wasn't his idea because he really didn't operate that way. He really always was prideful that he did the right thing. Anyway, uh, he's viewed upon very fondly in poker, especially because the new owners of Poker Stars were pretty bad and corrupted a lot of what Isai had originally did with the site. They were notably different and were notably greedy and didn't care that much about poker, didn't care that much about corrupting the game, and didn't care that much about screwing players in Supernova Elite, and all that other stuff. So it, it very much highlighted what a great owner Esai was, and the new owners were flawed, and you could tell the difference was vast between them. So I, I mostly have good feelings about Esai Scheinberg, and you know I did well on Poker Stars, won a lot of money there. So personally, that was good for me. So Isai Scheinberg will not be spending the remainder of his life 
in a prison cell. He is a free man, and now he can feel free to roam around the U.S. without worried about worrying about being grabbed. There you go. Well, somebody did get grabbed, and unjustly grabbed. It was at the Fremont Casino in downtown Las Vegas. This is kind of a disturbing story. It shows you how sometimes casino security can abuse their power. So they are currently in hot water with regulators with uh, Nevada Gaming because of a 90-minute detention of a woman who was accused of uh, stealing someone else's funds. Not very much, but like $20 worth of funds from a slot machine. A woman in November 2019 was detained at uh, Fremont Casino downtown. She was on slot machines. And uh, another woman claimed that uh, she had stolen about $20 worth of credits out of the machine. What happened was that uh, the woman who had previously been at that same machine said, oh, I left $20 in credit there, and this woman just sat down and started playing it. Now, this is actually illegal. You cannot play somebody else's credit, and a lot of people don't know that. You cannot print someone else's ticket and cash it out, and you cannot play someone else's credit. That's actually against the law in Nevada, and if you do it, they can actually arrest you. So don't do that. In fact, there's some shady casinos that set people up for this. They uh, will do this on purpose to get rid of people who they don't want in the casino. They'll find this as a way to get rid of people who just kind of roam around and they'll purposely set up machines sometimes with a little bit of credit in them, wait for someone to pounce on it, and then kick them out or arrest them. But that's not what happened here. What happened here was that the woman who accused her was crazy. (laughs) It wasn't true. The woman who was accused of playing $20 that was sitting in the machine uh, was just incorrect or crazy. But by the time they realized this, the one who was accused, falsely accused, was detained and held for 90 minutes. What happened was that After the woman accused her, the security guards approached the woman on the machine, accused her of it, and then took her to the back room, handcuffed her, and uh, kept questioning her and and pressuring her to just admit she had done it. She kept repeating over and over that she was innocent, and they weren't believing her. So then they went to go look at uh, video footage but only after a long time, they realized that she was innocent. And they kicked her loose, but by then 90 minutes had passed. So the Nevada Gaming Commission was very unhappy about this, that they detained this woman in this fashion with no real evidence, and that uh, they held her for 90 minutes before even looking at the video footage that could have cleared this up right away, and that furthermore, there was no reason to handcuff her and and hold her in the back like that and and hit her with this high-pressure interrogation that all they needed to do was, at worst, 
tell her, wait here, we're going to review some evidence. And if it turns out that we're going to review the video, if it turns out you did it, we're, we're going to detain you. If you didn't, then no problem. Sorry about that. So that's not what they did. They brought her to the back in handcuffs and kept pressuring her to admit that she had done it. The filing by the Nevada Gaming Commission said the manner in which the security officers handled the arrest of the patron was unreasonable given the circumstances. Under the circumstances, there is no need to detain the patron or subject her to the treatment given to her and the threats to try and force a confession out of her. The matter could have been resolved without even speaking to her, let alone detaining her for 90 minutes. It is likely that there's going to be a fine against the Fremont Casino for having done this now that it has been determined that this was done incorrectly and that they were way too harsh and way too aggressive with this woman who was falsely accused of playing this credit. The casino voluntarily reported the incident to regulators the day after it happened. They are required to report things like this. They weren't trying to get themselves in trouble, but they could get in even more trouble if this had happened and they did not self-report. So this was reported to regulators one day after it occurred. And the regulators finally are filing a formal complaint. Fremont actually could get its license revoked, but it's very unlikely. However, it is also unlikely they will skate away with nothing. They're probably going to get some kind of fine over this matter. There is a four-count complaint filed against the Fremont, according to the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Unsuitable operations, violations of Regulation 5, damaging the state's reputation. I'm not sure what the fourth one is. This occurred at... uh, about midnight, and this woman was not kicked loose until between one thirty and 2 a.m., gaming control agents came to the Fremont nine days after it had happened, and about a week after it had been self-reported by the Fremont that this had happened, and gaming began its own investigation. Also, security officers lied. They uh, contradicted what was right in the surveillance footage. And then it was determined by agents that the security officers were evasive in their answers. (laughs) So the board's investigation revealed that the Fremont did not seem to realize the full scope of the mistakes made by employees that resulted in the wrongful detention of the patron, the wrongful taking of funds from an innocent patron, or the sharing of incorrect information to the investigating officer of Metro and the board. So, uh, it's funny that the security agents still try to lie about this, even though it's right on video. What morons. A lot of times these security guards that they hire are not of the best quality. In fact, one of the Poker Fraud Alert listeners provided me with an interesting ad for a security job in Las Vegas. You are supposed to have six months of security or law enforcement training. And provided you have that, you can go work security for Silver Sevens, which is the former Terribles in Las Vegas. You can go work there for the lucrative compensation of $10.50 an hour. (laughs) 
ten dollars fifty cents an hour. You could make more working it in and out. I'm not even kidding. I looked this up because ten fifty is such a low amount of pay to get to be a security guard, especially right now when there's a lot of violence in Vegas. And I looked up what people get working it in and out in Las Vegas, and the average lowest level employee at In and Out in Las Vegas is $11.97, almost a full dollar fifty an hour more than being a security guard. <laughs> so what would you rather do? Make $12 an hour flipping burgers or make ten fifty working security where you're putting your life in danger? Hmm, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. So th- the problem is they don't get the best quality security guards in a lot of these places, especially somewhere like the Fremont. And they do stupid things and they sometimes just get too excited about detaining people and about asserting their power over people. And that's definitely what happened here, that they just they got this complaint. They just decided for themselves that they think this woman is guilty when they had no evidence she was. And they detained her and they're like, look, make it easier on yourself. Just admit it. You took the 20 bucks. You played the 20 bucks off. Admit it. Stop lying to us. It's going to get worse for you. You're just going to make yourself worse. It's just going to – you're going to be in all kinds of trouble. Ma'am, just admit you took the 20 bucks. If you don't admit it, you don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be really bad. It's going to be really bad. And the woman's like, what the fuck? I didn't do anything. I just, I'm just playing a slot machine in peace and they're bringing me to the back and handcuffing me. What the – like I would be furious if this happened to me. It took 90 minutes. Took 90 minutes for them to go back and look at the footage and go, oh, wait a minute. You didn't play anybody's credits. Oops. Maybe we shouldn't believe every stupid thing told to security by angry patrons. Maybe we better check it out first or at least tell the patron to hang on while we check it out. Maybe we shouldn't handcuff people and take them to the back and hold them for an hour and a half. Maybe we shouldn't. That's a pretty bad violation. And they, they lie to the gaming board. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen to those guards. They should get in trouble for this. They, If they were lying or not cooperating, they're, I don't know what penalties they can get hit with, but they should be hit with penalties, these guards themselves. They try to get out of it with a, with gaming. They're probably shitting their pants because they know gaming is law enforcement and they're probably afraid that things are going to happen to them. So they, they try to lie their way out of it. That's crazy. All right. Moving on here. There's a new development in the Sahara lawsuit involving Vital Vegas that actually is in Vital Vegas' favor. We've been covering this. Nobody else is covering this. We're really the only ones covering the story. But Sahara sued Vital Vegas, which is operated by Scott Robin in Las Vegas. And they're suing them because Vital Vegas kept putting out rumors that Sahara was closing and Sahara was insisting they weren't. So now Sahara is basically saying, you screwed our business. People were canceling conventions. People were canceling uh, trips. Uh, employees were getting very nervous. Employees were going to work elsewhere because they were sure we were closing. You're putting out these very harmful and damaging rumors to our business. And when we tell you it's not true, you keep doubling down and keep uh, putting out the same thing or implying the same thing. So when I read the complaint, when I read the initial filing of this lawsuit, I kind of sided with Sahara because it really looked like that Vital Vegas just wouldn't give up with this. They they just kept trying to say or imply this over and over and over again, even when when, uh, Sahara told them, hey, we're not closing, you're wrong. The rumor was that sometime in September, Sahara is going to be closing for good. 
And Sahara's like, no, that's not true. And it looks like Sahara was right because it's now September 25th and they have not closed and we don't see any plans for them to close in the next week. So it does look like Vital Vegas is incorrect there. Now, Vital Vegas does put out rumors. They are somewhat of a rumor mill. I find, in fact, they're wrong fairly often. But they were sued by Sahara here, which raised an interesting question. So, yes, it can be harmful if you say a casino is going to be closing when it really isn't. But should you really be sued for this? Can people no longer discuss rumors or say, hey, I heard such and such place is going to close or I think this casino might close? Like now saying that can get you sued by a big company like that. That's kind of scary. That's kind of really anti-free speech. But on the other hand, I said, well, look, they told him it wasn't true. And he just kept pressing, 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 pressing. And he wouldn't give up is from what it appeared from the complaint that was filed for that lawsuit. Now, Scott Robin, Vital Vegas, hired famed attorney Mark Randazza to fight this case. Randazza is well-respected and, in fact, has appeared on CNN before. He is a known First Amendment lawyer, and, of course, this is a First Amendment issue. Did Vital Vegas have the right to put out these rumors that Sahara was closing, and did they continue to have the right to put out kind of like implications without directly saying that Sahara is closing after Sahara complained about it? I would say actually probably yes, but where it looks bad is that Sahara did tell him, hey, we're not closing, and it did seem like he was kind of being an asshole and just putting this out there despite them. So at that point, I was kind of thinking, you know, I don't know specifically what free speech rights you have in regard to that, but it does sound kind of bad. I can kind of see how he could lose this. He did harm their business, especially with hotels actually closing these days because of COVID. But in this response from Mark Randazza, it was an anti-slap filing. SLAP stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. We talked about it last week, that this may come into play if Postle or someone else involved in the Stones thing tries to sue Veronica or others that called out Postle. A SLAP lawsuit is one that is, it, it kind of pretends to be something else, but in reality it's meant to shut people up. It's meant to punish people for engaging in speech that the other side doesn't like. Sometimes, in fact often, slap lawsuits are filed by organizations that have a lot of money. In fact, some have in-house attorneys that are working on a salary and they don't have to pay an hourly rate to hire an attorney for it. So for these well-heeled organizations, they can easily sue people without really incurring any kind of extra expense, whereas the individual getting sued doesn't have that same luxury. They have to hire an expensive attorney and sweat this out and it gets very nerve-wracking. So a lot of times people just decide, you know what? I'll just stop saying I'll just stop talking. I'll just I'm going to stop criticizing this company. Cuz they're going to sue me into the ground even if I win the lawsuit, I'll spend so much on attorney's fees and I'll be sweating this out for the whole time. What if I lose and they take everything? So you know what? It's not worth it. I'm, I'm just going to shut up. I'm not going to say anything about them because I'm, I'm so afraid of what will happen to me. 
That's that's what a slap lawsuit is meant to do. California came up with an anti-slap motion that can be filed in court. There can be an anti-slap filing that allows these type of cases to be dismissed pretty quickly and fairly cheaply. I say fairly because it's not like super cheap, but it's a lot cheaper than uh, the way they'd be dismissed in the past. And anti-slap is meant to stop these lawsuits that are aimed at chilling free speech. And it's an easy and quick way to dismiss frivolous lawsuits that are done for this purpose. So you can force an anti-slap hearing at the beginning. And if it's granted, then it's gone. The lawsuit's out. And the one filing the lawsuit, the plaintiff actually has to pay the defendant's attorney fees and court costs if this is granted. So this is uh, something very good. I'm very much for that. I always felt that was a very big hole in the legal system, which still exists in most states. Fortunately, Nevada recognized that this anti-slap is a good idea. They basically copied California. They really did. They really just copied everything from California. They're like, uh, yeah, we want to be like them. Us too. We're, we're just going to copy your legislation, put it in our books. That's almost what they did. And that's fine. California's anti-slap legislation is pretty good. But it really is meant to prevent things where you're being sued to shut up. And there can be all kinds of frivolous reasons they can find to sue you where the reality is they're suing you because they, they just don't like that you said something that was negative about them. They'll find a way to twist it to file the lawsuit to be about something else. They're often libel or slander suits are actually slaps. If Veronica were to be sued here, that would be a good example. So this is really meant to help people preserve their First Amendment rights and not allow those who can afford uh, expensive attorneys to be able to shut people up. An anti-slap filing was done, as I said, and it makes sense because this really is a case of can Vital Vegas say these type of things or not? Well, some more info came out through this uh, anti-slap filing, and now I believe that Vital Vegas is in good shape. I'm not sure, but I think there's a good chance they're in good shape. This is the key portion. Most significantly, prior to July 30th, Mr. Robin spoke with an employee of a business liquidation company. The source told Mr. Robin that Sahara had requested an estimate from at least one liquidation company of how much it would cost to liquidate the entire Sahara Casino and Resort, that Sahara was planning to shut down the casino and resort, and that Sahara represented to the source's company that it was in serious financial trouble. The source told Mr. Robin that their company bid on managing the liquidation of the entire Sahara Casino and Resort, and that Sahara had requested the source's company to provide an estimate of how much a liquidation would cost. They told Mr. Robin that liquidation of the entire casino would result in its closure and possibly its sale. They told Mr. Robin that at least one liquidator had visited Sahara, done an inventory, and submitted a bid for liquidation for the entire Sahara Casino and Resort. The source told Mr. Robin that liquidation bids are valid for 90 days and that Sahara had accepted the bid approximately 45 days prior to Mr. Robin speaking with the source in late July 2020. 
Mr. Robin interpreted this to mean that Sahara would begin liquidation of the Sahara Casino, uh, Sahara Casino and Resort in September 2020, which is when the 90-day bidding window would expire. The source told Mr. Robin that if a business requests an estimate for liquidation, it was virtually guaranteed to go through with the liquidation because a business only asks for a liquidation estimate if it's already in financially des- desperate situation. Mr. Robin considered the source reliable and the news articles, word of mouth stories and Sahara's own public statements Mr. Robin had read and heard up to that point made his source's claims more pro- plausible. Okay, but that's all pretty strong. If he really got a tip from a liquidation company, someone who worked at one of these, that Sahara had not only wanted an estimate, but actually had people visit the property and, and uh, get the estimate, which was good for 90 days, that now 45 days had passed since then when he uh, wrote this, that that was good enough to put out the rumor. It also noted in the anti-slap that uh, Vital Vegas mentioned it wasn't confirmed and it is, it's a rumor and that they hope it's not true, but that they've heard it's closing for good. And that it also asserted that Sahara itself is a public figure and therefore that the standard of actual malice would have to be reached for Mr. Robin to be liable here. Actual malice is where you're you're actually making the statements in a malicious fashion where you know they're not true. Not just you say something that isn't true, you say something that isn't true that you also know isn't true at the time, which is tough to prove because you have to get in people's head and there's no way to do that. So the only way to really prove actual malice is to show some kind of evidence that they knew it wasn't true when they said it. A good example would be like a copy of a person's email saying that they're going to make untrue statements about someone else or about a business. So they're saying if Sahara is a public figure, it it should be protected speech anyway because uh, Mr. Robin believed at the time that this was uh, a valid rumor and that the reason he believed it was a valid rumor was because he was told by a liquidation company and the liquidation company also told him that Rarely do, does anyone ask for an estimate unless they're really serious about doing it. So, if if uh, Sahara knows that they did this, if Sahara knows they had a liquidation company visit and give an estimate, I think that pretty much kills this case. Because Sahara would be asked, did you have bids from liquidation companies and did you share with liquidation companies that you were in financial dire straits? And if they try to say no, then uh, I suppose, I don't know if Mr. Rubin would would name who he talked to, but theoretically he could. And then that person could could, uh, make Sahara look really bad if they back Mr. Rubin's story. So I think this might be a case where Sahara was just getting pissed because you know they were going to close and then maybe they decided not to and then they're trying to make a latch this comeback and vital vegas is with a lot of followers is somewhat ruining that by putting out that they're going to close so i understand why they're pissed off and i understand they tried to contact him and he kept up with it which is irritating to them but as far as legal remedy here it doesn't look like they have much to me if if they really did have liquidators come down I think it is fair that someone can say this is a rumor Sahara is going to close and if if the rumor was because liquidators were coming down and giving estimates I think that's just 
That's what happens. If you have liquidators come down, people find out. You got to deal with it. Not ideal, but you got to deal with it. Remember, truth, as Eric Benzamokin said, is the ultimate defense. And if they were really considering closing for good to the point of getting liquidation companies coming down, then yeah, if someone finds this out and puts it out there, it is your fault for having the liquidation company come down. Like, that's, it's not the person's fault for stating it. Even though he didn't state that specifically, if he's stating that they're really considering closing for good, that does sound like that's what they were doing. Now, of course, these are claims from Scott Robin. Maybe there was no liquidation company, but that's what he's claiming. It seems pretty specific. I think he's probably right. So we'll see where this goes. Even though I, I think Scott Robin is kind of an oversensitive dickhead who blocked me on Twitter for stupid reasons, I do kind of hope he wins this one because I just don't like the idea where casinos can sue you for saying things that they don't like. I say things about casinos all the time that they wouldn't like and haven't liked. No one's threatened to sue me over it, but I wouldn't want to feel like I'm liable every time I criticize a casino where they're going to scrutinize my every word, Mason Malmuth style, and then decide to sue me if they think I've said something which cost them business. I like look at the things I've said about the World Series sometimes. I'll, I'll defend them sometimes. I'll say when they're right, when others are saying they're wrong. But I've also said they're wrong about things. I've also made fun of things. What what if the World Series sued me and said, oh, you're, you're causing people not to come to the World Series because you criticize us? Like I, That could happen if this starts to become commonplace. So I just don't like the idea of casinos being able to sue people for criticizing them or spreading rumors about them. So I do hope Vital Vegas prevails, even though I don't really like the guy very much who's behind it. Next. A weird double impersonation story occurred in poker, and this is pretty fascinating. You know, people impersonate each other online. That's not new. People impersonate others to trick people into sending money. That's not new. In fact, ACR scammer Brian Wojtek does that all the time. That is not very original or creative. That's something that's very commonplace in money trade scams in poker. But when there's a double impersonation, even though I think scammers are scum and I'm not giving them any credit, I do have to say that uh, this scammer was particularly creative and clever because he actually impersonated two different people. This reminds me a bit of uh, a story that occurred with an NBA player which was actually a lot more disturbing. There is a, a player named uh, Chris Anderson. He is now retired, but he was known as the, the Birdman. And uh, he actually was out of the NBA for some time, both for a uh, violation of the league's drug policy and when he was accused of... Uh, uh, having sex with a minor and distributing nude photos of her. Well, it turned out he did have sex with a minor, but the minor was 17 and he had sex with her in a state where this was legal. So while this wasn't great, uh, it wasn't illegal. And the extortion and the uh, distributing of her picture turned out to not have been done by him. And in fact, when the whole story came out, it was very fascinating, and it eventually was covered by the TV show 2020. 
It was a double catfishing where this crazy woman in Manitoba living on an Indian reservation there named uh, Shelley Chartier. Shelley was uh, impersonating both Chris Anderson and this uh, 17-year-old girl in question. So she actually was doing both sides of the conversation. Now, she wasn't talking to herself, but they were exchanging messages back and forth. And and what she would do is that uh, all the conversation that Chris Anderson thought he was having with a 17-year-old girl, he was really having with Shelly. And all the conversation that the 17-year-old girl thought she was having with Chris Anderson was also with Shelly. So they were never talking to each other. The 17-year-old and Chris Anderson, the Birdman, they were never talking to each other. They were always talking to Shelly, thinking that it was each other. And they actually met in person and had sex in Colorado, never having really talked to each other, but thinking they had. Isn't that crazy? So Shelly Charity was maintaining the conversation on both sides. And if you think about it, it's possible. As long as you don't talk on the phone, it is actually possible for someone online to talk to two different third parties and pretend to be each one of them talking to each other. So that's what happened with Chris Anderson back in 2013. Or 2012, I think. And it took a while for it to be understood what was really happening. And in fact, it was so complicated that Chris Anderson, like they tried to show him what happened even with a diagram on a chalkboard. He still didn't get it. It was so complicated what was pulled off there. Well, something kind of similar happened in poker, except it doesn't involve anything sexual. It involves money. There is a a poker pro who went by Grazvidas, some kind of uh, European poker player, G-R-Z-V-Y-D-A-S, Grazvidas. He claims he's a longtime high-stakes online player. He claims that he was scammed by someone impersonating another high-stakes player named James Romero. But the interesting thing here is that while it does appear that uh, Grasvidas really was scammed out of 20K and that James Romero was impersonated, that this was a double impersonation where James Romero was also tricked and he was made into an unwitting accomplice in this money trade scam. So James, the real James Romero actually had to exist and not just exist, but also cooperate with this. But since James is not a scammer, he was tricked into cooperating by the same scammer. So here's basically what happened. Grasvidas posted in a trading chat on Skype called crypto fiat high stakes exchange that he was looking for a money trade. And James Romero posted in that same chat that he also was looking for a trade. Well, right around then, two fake accounts were made on Skype, a fake James Romero and a fake Grasvidas. Same picture, very similar account name, like so as close as possible to imitate the real James and the real Grasvidas. Two different accounts were made to imitate each of them. Right when each of them had expressed that they wanted to trade 
some money. So what happened was the scammer was operating both of these fake accounts and was communicating with both the real Grasvidas, who he was impersonating, and the real James Romero, who he was impersonating. So then the two fake accounts said the following. First, the uh, it was arranged with James, the real James, that... Uh, $20,000 would be sent from uh, America's card room from the real Grasvidas to uh, the real James Romero in return for uh, $20,000 in Bitcoin. And then and then on the other side James Romero was uh, saying that he's going to send uh, $20,000 on Natural H, which is a GG poker skin, in return for the 20 k on America's card room. Now, this sounds complicated, okay? You're like, wait a minute, what, are they doing it for Bitcoin or are they doing it for Natural H? Well, both, because remember, two different people are being talked to. So, James Romero is... Uh, being told that he's going to get 20K on ACR from Grasvidas. He thinks he's talking to Grasvidas. And Grasvidas is like, look, I'm going to send you 20K on, on ACR. And, uh, and what you're going to do is you're going to send uh, 20K in, in Bitcoin to this address. Okay? And then... The fake James Romero told Grasvidas that what he's looking to do is uh, that he wants to get uh, 20K natural eight for America's card room. So what happens here is Grasvidas is going to send the 20K to James, to the real James, the real James account on ACR, thinking he's going to get back 20K on natural eight. The real James is going to get that 20K that he's expecting Except he doesn't think he's sending it to natural aid. He's made to believe he's going to be sending it in Bitcoin. So both of the people involved, both of the real people involved, believe different things of where this money's going. But James Romero is still expecting 20K and really thinks he's going to send it in Bitcoin. So what happened then is uh, yeah, they asked for vouchers and they got the vouchers because they're both uh, respected high-stakes pros online – I haven't really heard of either of them, but I'll assume they are. And uh, I bet you know what happened next. <laughs> As was arranged, Grasvidas sends 20K to James Romero. James Romero, who's expecting the 20K, because it was set up by the scammer, sends 20K Bitcoin, which of course is unrecoverable, to the scammer, thinking he's sending it to Grasvidas. Grasvidas is waiting for his 20K natural eight, which never comes. See the problem here? See what happened? They tell one guy that he's going to be getting natural eight back. They tell the other guy he'll be getting ACR and to forward that money over in Bitcoin. And they send the AC and they have the real Grasvidas send 20K to the real James Romero. But neither Grasvidas or James Romero are actually talking to one another. 
Sounds a lot like that scandal with the Birdman, doesn't it? Except no sex is involved. No one got laid here. No one banged a 17-year-old in Colorado. They just got they got their money banged. So let's take a look where they stand after this. Grasvidas is out 20K because he sent 20K to James Romero. James Romero sent 20K to a scammer. And Grasvidas never got any money back. So Grasvidas lost 20. James broke even because he received 20K in ACR and sent out 20K of Bitcoin to the scammer. And the scammer made 20K. He did the best, didn't he? So one made 20K, one broke even, one lost 20K. So who is responsible here, aside from the scammer? It's it's not known who the scammer was. He was never caught. He got away with it. There's no way to charge back Bitcoin. So now that the smoke is cleared and they know what happened, who is the one who should be responsible? Some say it is James Romero because James Romero was used as the unwitting middleman and was tricked into sending the Bitcoin that couldn't be recovered. See, Grasvida sent America's card room to James Romero's actual account. And while it wasn't the real James he was dealing with, he did see the real James in that chat, uh, said he wanted to do a trade. And he sent it to what he knew was James Romero's actual account on ACR. And he knew that ACR, you could recover money if you've been scammed. You could send a message to support, say, hey, I was just scammed, hold that money. So he had much less of a reason to be suspicious. Uh, James Romero sent Bitcoin, which is not recoverable, just because he got a 20K transfer, which, you know, you never know. For example, uh, what if Grasvidas' account was hacked and uh, he was told to, that he, that, he you know, that 20K was sent to him in that way without Gravi- the real Grasvidas' permission? That's not what happened, but that could easily be happening. Like if, if someone approaches you and says, hey, send me 20K in Bitcoin. I'm going to send you this much on this site right now. You, you got to be real suspicious because you got to make sure it's really that person. Because if it's not really that person, then they can charge back and you're screwed. I mean, the, there's Facebook scams like that. I, I actually had that happen to a girl that I knew through Ken Scaler. Very nice girl, but uh, it was actually a believable story at first. I got a message from her saying that she needs $100 to make rent. And it, it kind of sounded like a realistic story. And I knew she was having money problems. She was very nice. I was actually going to loan it to her. I'm going to loan her the hundred bucks. I, I figured she was had a good enough character. She's going to maybe pay me back, and it's only a hundred bucks. So I was about to loan her the hundred bucks, but then I go, you know, thing. I got to make sure it's really her, not a scammer. So I started questioning her, and yeah, it turned out it was a scammer. She got her account hacked, and uh, it was a scam. So had I sent the money thinking it was to her, then uh, I would have been out my hundred dollars. The scammer tried to guilt me. By the way, the scammer was like. Fine, fine. You, you know what? This, this is too hard. If you don't trust me, if you don't trust me, fine. Just don't send it. I'm just going to suffer. I just, I just can't be take being treated like this. I just can't take. Uh, no one trusts me these days. And that was funny. I knew it was a scammer, though. I didn't feel a bit guilty. In fact, I got blocked as soon as I mentioned I thought it was a scam. I probably shouldn't have said that. I probably should have just kept quiet and pretended like I was cooperating. But anyway, here it was a double impersonation. So it's understandable how this happened. Obviously, it was someone else in that chat who did it because they saw both of them say they wanted to make a trade. So who is the one who should bear the brunt of this? 
So this was presented to 2 plus 2, and Grasvidas said that he admits this is his fault, but also he thought James Romero had a bad attitude about it and uh, wasn't taking any responsibility, and he didn't like this, and he was asking for everybody's opinion on the whole matter. He also didn't explain it all that well. I had to read his post like four times to understand exactly what happened. But what I explained to you is what happened. Where the scammer talked to each one of them. They had never actually talked to each other, but both thought they were. I had to think about this a few times also before deciding who was right. And I was kind of going back and forth as to which of the two victims was more responsible here. I hate to blame victims, but yeah, they both were guilty at the very least of carelessness. Whenever someone wants to make a online money trade with you, especially for an amount like 20K, you can't just take for granted that's who they say they are, even if it's taking place in a chat and you know the person in the chat is real. You still have to worry that the person in the chat may have had their account hacked or their computer compromised. So you you really want to make sure the person you're trading with is actually the person you're talking to before you send something like 20K. You can do it through FaceTime. Maybe you can do the phone if you know their voice. Just something where you know it's that person for sure. It's understandable how they fell for this, but neither of them demanded that much proof that they were talking to the person they thought they were talking to. They were interested in getting vouches for each other, but the voucher doesn't matter. The voucher is only vouching for the real person, not the fake person. The voucher is saying, yeah, real James Romero is reliable. Yeah, real Grasvidas is reliable. And both of those things are probably true. But you're not getting a voucher. Yeah, this is really them. So that's a big flaw in this whole thing. So it was actually mixed on 2 plus 2 what people thought about this. Some people thought that it was Grasvidas' fault. Some people thought it was more James Romero's fault. Some people thought it was half and half. Upon thinking about it, I came to the belief it was about half and half. Because they both basically made the same mistake. They didn't verify who they were dealing with. This was a complex scam and I see how they fell for it, but they both didn't do as much verification as they should have. Where the money was actually received and sent is less important. Grasvidas' point is, hey, I'm sending it to ACR. I know ACR can take back the money if uh, this is a scam. I, I I knew that James was really asking for money in the chat. It was, uh, and, and James is the one sending it out in Bitcoin where it can't be recovered. And James' point is like, hey, I'm just, I, I receive money. Like, I, I get contact with someone I think is you and you're willing to send first and I get the money, so of course I'm going to send where you say to send to. So they both kind of had a point, but they both did not do enough checking. So really they were both equally at fault. Now, the scammer was the one of course, who is really at fault, but he can't be held responsible because he's gone and he stole 20K. So the question is, uh, what do you do at this point? And by the way, the scammer didn't even have to have any poker accounts. That's the funny thing. The, po- the scammer did not need an account on Natural 8. They did not need an ACR account. All they needed is to impersonate both people and make empty promises and have a Bitcoin address. And that's all they needed to get this, get away with the scam. It didn't even have to be someone on ACR or natural eight. Well, the problem is, as I mentioned at the beginning, Grasvidas is the one out 20K and James Romero is not out anything. So after discussion back and forth on two plus two, 
James Romero agreed that he was probably half responsible and was willing to send 10K to Grasvidas. And as far as I know, he did. James Romero said, I'm sending user Grasvidas 10K. We are splitting the loss. So, okay, you know, props to James Romero. I don't know him, but props to him for taking responsibility for his half of this. I don't think he's more than half responsible, but I think half is uh, is is pretty uh, pretty good. I think that's a, a good resolution. I can't even determine which of the two is more at fault here. Both of them made a mistake. And uh, that's good. It's actually... A happy ending. They are making an attempt to find out who is behind the Bitcoin address. Remember, Bitcoin is not completely anonymous. There is a, a a trail on the blockchain of all the transactions. So they posted the address of the scammer. I don't know if that's going to lead anywhere. They also later found out that the same Skype account attempted the same scam on other high-stakes players, but it didn't work. Maybe because the word started to get around about this, but that person was attempting more. Why not? It worked the first time. Why not get more than 20K? The scammer must have been in the chat to see them both asking for it. So that's why this whole thing worked really, really well. Wow. The scammer's getting clever and sophisticated these days. Not a happy ending in that the scammer wasn't caught. Happy in that the two came to an agreement to split the loss here. Really crappy, though. Like, sucks to lose 10K this way each when they didn't do anything wrong because it'd be a bit careless. Always be aware with money trades. It, it just never feel like you're being too paranoid. Never feel like you're being an asshole by demanding the person provide, like, excessive proof. Like, have them hold up a sign at the very least with the day's date. And make sure it's not photoshopped. Or have them hold up the sign and also put their finger on their forehead while they're holding the sign. Things like that. And if they can't produce that within a reasonable amount of time, then don't do it. Things like that. And if the person says, no, that's crazy, then don't trade with them. Say there's a lot of scams going around, I won't trade. Now, if it's like $50, probably not. But then again, Brian Wojtek has been scamming that amount for a long time from a lot of people. So maybe even for $50. Beware of the money trades. I have never been money trade scammed, but my name has been used to money trade scam, but not in over 10 years. Both times I was able to get the money back for the people who were victimized by quickly going to the poker sites in question and telling them what happened and they were able to reverse the funds. I have uh, nothing further here tonight. If you're a Jew... Yom Kippur is coming up. It's the biggest Jewish holiday of the year. That will be on Sunday night. When is the next Poker Fraud Alert Radio? I don't think I can make a week from tonight. I don't think I can make Friday night the 2nd. So the next radio may have to be on October 1st, Thursday. They don't think I can make Friday or Saturday or maybe not even Sunday. So it may have to be Thursday night. Check twitter.com 
slash poker fraud alert for more information on that. There will be a show next week. I'm just not exactly sure what day. Then we will go back to Friday the following week. That's really the day I prefer to have the show. Thank you to Eric Mansamokin for coming on here with his expert legal analysis. Thank you to Trader Ruski for his time on here. Does Brandon deserve a thanks for the brief time he appeared here? I guess he has some good ideas and good insights in the brief time he was here. I had a feeling he wouldn't wake back up in time, and I was right. Thank you also to Trade Ruski for the $35 for the free roll tonight. And, you know, we haven't missed many weeks of Poker Fraud Alert Radio in 2020 because I haven't been going anywhere. <laughs> I haven't been going on trips, and I haven't been catching colds because I don't go anywhere to catch colds. One of the rare benefits of the coronavirus. I don't catch colds and I don't miss radio. Like, it's been several months since I missed a single episode. If you go look back, you'll see every single week we did one in the recent past. I had mentioned recently there's going to be 400 episodes done soon. That we're near episode 400. We're actually not. We're only like on 373. I overestimated. So, Belly Buster was actually offering to have a big free roll for... 400th show and now I had to break it to him that we're not going to have that show until like April <laughs> at the earliest. Oops! Well I guess we'll find out soon if there's really going to be a lawsuit against Veronica or others involved in the postal exposure or if it was all a bunch of posturing who is postal posturing. Alright I'm done here. I don't have got much more to say. You know, I just... I've said it all tonight, and I'm tired. Good night, everybody. Baseball playoffs begin on Monday. Shalom. Shalom.